Heisters, welcome to the story of Payday, a tale over seven years in the making, which took me six whole months to fully decipher and tell. This video celebrates the one-year anniversary of the launch of this series, creating a retelling of the narrative of which I am truly proud. However, it isn't perfect. Treat this video as a director's cut. In it, I've amended my errors, discussed confusing lore points further, and described the definitive narrative of the Payday series as best I can. I've come an incredibly long way over the past 12 months and genuinely hope my content conveys that growth. One tangible way in which things have changed for me is in how brands that I believe in are now interested in partnering with me to bring content to you guys. I'm delighted to announce the first full-time partner of the channel, Apex Gaming PCs. If you've enjoyed this series and maybe want to take your payday playing over to PC or are preparing yourselves for hosts to come in future payday games, then do I have an offer for you. Apex build gaming PCs, but do so alongside content creators to create machines specifically tailored to play their favorite games. Of course, on this channel, that means the Payday series. Over on my Apex partner page, you can see my Payday tailored line, ranging from the hardcore heister to the king amongst thieves. If this is something that interests you, do check out Apex from my partner link down below. Any purchase that you do go on to make goes a long way to helping out the channel. And keep in mind, you can use the discount code NOLI, with 2Ks as usual, for exclusive discounts. That said, it's time. With Payday 3 on the horizon, let's better understand where the crew have come from, and appreciate where they might be going next. For this is the story of Payday. Back to where it all began, just Dallas, Hoxton, Chains and Wolf, the Assault, Sharpshooter, Support and Technician. Thanks to their eyes and ears Bane, a career criminal and intelligence expert, these four extraordinary individuals were able to leave a lasting mark on America through crime alone. Let's start by getting to know these characters and their backstories. Dallas, real name Nathan Steele, is the leader of the Payday Gang as well as probably the most infamous member of the group. According to his backstory, he's a multi-talented individual with a number of past occupations. From a young Chicago mobster who rose through the ranks from bouncer to hitman before eventually turning the mob against itself and another, to an underground gun runner, unlicensed physician, and self-employed hitman with a vendetta against the American drug trade. Dallas did the lot. He's clearly not a man entirely without morals, but one who sees his bottom line as paramount to all else as displayed by his later willingness to be involved in the Payday Gang's own drug-based exploits. As of the events of the first game, he is 42, having spent over a decade on the run from the consequences of his past gang involvement. After having what Bane describes as a criminal midlife crisis, he had a change of heart, wanting a criminal crew to operate with. Bane was quick to reach out and provide, given Dallas's pretty impressive skill set. His nickname appears to originate simply from his city of residence at the point of first interaction with Bane, likely where he chose to live due to their, shall we say, liberal gun laws. Hoxton, real name James Hoxworth, is the most out-and-out -out criminal within the gang. Hailing from a wealthy family in Sheffield, England, he chose not to rely on the silver spoon he was born with, becoming renowned in the bare-knuckle boxing underworld at a very young age. 
Starting his criminal career at 19 in a liquor store robbery, Huxton became accustomed to the criminal lifestyle and the tricks of the trade surrounding it, becoming an extremely proficient marksman and learning to switch between a swindling trickster or intimidating heavy whenever the need arose. After moving down south and joining a London gang situated in the Hoxton district, Hox experienced his first arrest, which would earn him his nickname, especially given its similarity to his surname, something done very often in the UK, hence my channel name if you weren't aware. Hoxton receives Dallas's invite to the gang at the age of 30, making him the youngest member of the original crew. Wolf, real name unknown, is the most unlikely member of the Payday crew. Born in Stockholm, Sweden, he ran a software development company in his hometown. This firm began to struggle in the wake of the Great Recession, losing most clients and causing Wolf himself to take out large personal loans to keep things afloat. When this failed to save his company, leaving Wolf bankrupt and his family on the streets, Wolf was pushed over the edge. It's unknown what became of his family, but Bain reports that he suffered a psychotic break and started acting out crimes he'd witnessed in his favourite action movies, to surprising success. Although more level-headed by 2011 than the events of Payday the Heist, at the age of 32, he's still the most unhinged and violent in the crew, noted by his apparent bipolar personality. Despite this, his lack of hesitation and intimidating nature make him a dependable heister, if nothing else. It would appear his nickname either originates as an English translation of his actual name, or simply from his ferocious personality. Chains, real name known only to be Nicholas, which may also be itself an alias, is the final member of the core crew and the one with the greatest field experience when shootouts occur. He's a military veteran of the US Navy SEALs, which appears to have given him the skills needed to enact successful field triage and medical support. However, his lack of compassion and primary desire for adrenaline may explain why his role changed away from that of support in Payday 2. Going from a troubled childhood to the military and eventually mercenary work explains the ease with which he shifted to the criminal world of the Payday Gang, with most of his mercenary missions entailing something outside the realm of legality, something Chains didn't question as long as he got his adrenaline fix. Joining the gang at the age of 35, Chains is probably still the most athletic and muscular in the group, owing to the physical requirements of being a military man. His nickname originates from his life in servitude as a soldier to the government which the Payday Gang and Crime.net wish to expose and exploit. Most importantly, it is Bane that brings the four together. It is he who designed their masks from their own personal specifications, as well as with the intent to intimidate and make a mockery of the government the gang was waging a crime war against. Bane also orchestrates the heist, providing inside men and drivers to assist in infiltration and exfiltration, and who covers your tracks after the mission is through or from his position as an underworld big brother, the creator of Crime.net. Although I'm going to have to make a number of stretches and assumptions, what we do know for certain is that the Payday Gang's first job was the First World Bank, likely taking place in New York. The bank appears to be a chain, hence its appearance in other media from other locations around the game. This being their first job, there are a number of uncharacteristic occurrences within the heist. For example, their use of deadly force and the supposed heavy handling of the bank manager, who later turns up in testimonials against the gang. This is highlighted by their inability to approach the hell stealthily, as they are able to do so a few years later. What it does show is the crew's ingenuity, ability to enact mass violence, and Bane's control over proceedings. The gang use a pre stashed store of thermite and a trusty drill, soon to be a staple of wolves, to enter the bank vault through the lockdown, stash the cash, and escape in a garbage truck. Not before dispatching of numerous heavily armoured bulldozers, close quarters combat specialist cloakers, as well as the supportive taser and shield wielding riot police. All specialised police units, which would be regular foes of the gang wherever in the US they heisted.
For the next jobs in the Payday Gang's original spree, there was not a great deal of deeper motivation beyond causing havoc, exposing and embarrassing the police, as well as obviously making money. This is something that would change as time went on and the gang's notoriety increased. Following the success of the First World Bank heist and craving more action, the gang hit a Manhattan embassy, escaping with ease and seemingly silently with a valuable briefcase containing plates. One of Bane's trusted escape drivers, Matt Roscoe, was meant to be their ticket out of there, but things are seldom that simple. Matt betrays the crew, taking the briefcase for himself and firing a pot shot at the crew behind the glass. Heat Street follows the gang rushing through the streets of New York on foot to find the now crash car of the traitorous escape driver and get out with the briefcase now handcuffed on his arm. This is one of the crew's most public escapes. If New Yorkers hadn't heard of them before, they certainly did now. Following exfiltration by the pilot Alex, it appears the gang did not sever his arm as they were threatening to do, but instead allowed him to be arrested by the police, obviously not being trusted enough to have any information that would accurately lead the police back to Bane and the gang. Next up, we have Panic Room. The squad head to the New York projects to attempt a phony drug deal with the gang, which was just a front to get them access to a panic room Bane had intel on, filled with US dollars and cocaine. The drug interception and gang hit links back to Dallas's experience with the US drug underbelly. The method of extraction is very much in the payday style. They saw the lock container free from the floor, blow holes through the roof of the apartment complex with C4, and finally Alex winches it free with a magnet attached to his helicopter before fleeing through the project sewers, a dirty escape method that would be leveraged by the gang time and time again. Following this, we embark on the initial diamond heist, the first stealth bomb mission the crew would be greeted with. In this heist, the crew hit a high-rise, the Garnet Group skyscraper, later known to be situated in Washington, D.C. The aim being to acquire the well-guarded family diamonds within the vault at the epicenter of the business headquarters. The plan is pulled off as follows. The gang is able to disable the building's security system and access the keypad into the vault. However, canonically, it seems like the stealthy option didn't come off, as Ralph Garnett, son of Nathan, the CEO of the company, recollects a screw-up at the last business celebration when we come to hitting the Garnet Group a second time years later, indicating that the codes the gang were given by the company's CFO didn't work and a hostage trade was required to liberate the jewels. This is one of the most significant robberies pulled off in the early years of Payday setting, as the crew obtained a massive red diamond in the process, alerting the DC police force of their incredible tenacity, gall, and competence to terrorize the department for years to come. During this first wave of criminal activity, we get to see the first signs of depth that this story holds. At some unknown point, the gang are hired for a suspicious job in Mercy Hospital, which is harboring patients experiencing symptoms of a strange viral outbreak. Their objective is to obtain samples of this virus for an unknown but lucratively paying buyer, offering the Cagliostro manuscript in exchange for two vials of serum, a reward Bane saw as attractive enough to fund the gang's services himself. It's mentioned that Bane knew that this was a bad job before going into it, but his desire for information regarding some great secret overwhelmed his good judgement, something he wouldn't know to regret until years later. The heist itself involved extracting highly positive samples of an infected patient's blood, doing so by controlling the doctors and visitors at the hospital while entering the ICU ward in disguise. Upon successfully finding patient zero, the alarms were sounded, meaning samples had to be tested with the police breathing down the group's necks. Not entirely ethical. When escaping through the lower floors, Bane makes his first mention of Murky Water's shady influence, as they make a heavily armed appearance to destroy the building as the gang escapes preventing the spread of the virus and seemingly suppressing knowledge of the event, notable in its omission from the FBI files. 
At this point, Bane doesn't know exactly what or who this organisation is, although they would have another encounter very soon. The final known heist in the gang's first crime wave takes place in a slaughterhouse and is the first known interaction with the murky water mercenaries who would later become the primary antagonists of the series. This also marks the move that the gang is making towards hitting the DC area specifically. As with most of the other first wave crimes, this one has quite some setup and leaves a lasting impact, adding to the gang's notoriety. With a planned highway car crash orchestrated to force a rerouting of the murky's gold carrying convoy right into the path of the payday gang's ambush, using a heavy loader to push the armored car through the roof of a nearby slaughterhouse. Using the slaughterhouse as aerial cover, the gold bullion is moved through the building and out into an attached export park, using a crane to move the incredibly heavy haul, as well as improvised fire and smoke traps to escape the pursuing police, escaping this time in their traditional van. After lying low for a few months, Wolf actually makes some surprisingly forward-thinking moves, using his technological prowess to identify some new prospective jobs and acquire new weaponry. This would send the gang out to Florida and back to DC again, widening their national reach and setting the scene for some of the events of Payday 2. The first of the Wolfpack heist was counterfeit, bringing with it a trip to Pensacola. Here, the crew would pose as Bodie's pool repairman to infiltrate the counterfeit money printing bunker of Mitchell Summers and Wilson Jones. They hack the security boxes, and as recounted in the Guide of Bane, the crew was unable to defuse the C4 rigged to the bunker, and so the pool explosion is canonical. The crew is, however, successful in watercracking the safe which contained the counterfeit printing plates, the heist's primary objective. Before making their escape, the gang notes some peculiar markings on the rug in Wilson's lounge alongside suspicious radio static, informing Bane of these details, which he immediately links to a great criminal secret that he has been seeking answers to since his own heisting career, associated with the great Italian adventurer Cagliostro. Further investigations upon returning to the New York Crime.net base of operations indicated that a return to the Manhattan branch of the First World Bank was necessary, and that the goal would be to steal roughly $70 million of mine gold. It also revealed a number of all-important clues to an even greater secret, which would run deep into Payday 2. Before the plan could be acted upon, the crew would need to develop a stronger presence outside of New York, as well as connections in the DC area, the location Bane saw as a logical point of progression for the crew, given his political motivations and the need to hide outside of New York. To embark on this connection, we see the heist undercover, a dual-purpose operation. First, it was intended to plant roots in DC, as well as gain the respect and attention of influential Colombian drug lord, one Hector Morales. Second, it typified the type of contract Bane favoured, hitting a corrupt IRS agent who is misusing a server loaded with $25 million of taxpayer money for a personal business deal, money that Bain felt would be better off in their hands, if not the public's. Unfortunately, the intel was a little off, as the DC police force were already onto codenamed Taxman, using the shady apartment business deal as a location for his arrest. All this really did, though, was allow the gang to show their rage. Once the smash and grab was off the table, they opted for just grab with a side of light torture to extract the passwords needed and escape with the server information. It also allowed them to leave their mark on the DC police force, undoubtedly catching Hector's attention in the process. With a buyer for the gold secured, the crew returned to the location of the first heist they attempted as the payday gang, the newly reopened First World Bank. This time, thanks to the intel gathered in Florida, the objective was clear. Drill into some sort of overvault, a room hidden and protected by more than just simple vault doors. This contained the ancient mine gold belonging to Mr. Trust, a mysterious benefactor of both Gensec and the government. 
Not only would the crew be getting richer, they would be cutting off the hand of the organization that was most set to oppose them, as well as delivering a message to those in government. The heist was a success, despite the measures put in place to defend this essential asset, including a secret method of gaining access to the vault door, as well as a coded tile puzzle, the solution to which was required in order to advance further in the vault. After this, Bane would demand that the crew lie low and wait for the deal with Hector to go through, a hiatus that would last a number of months, extended upon receiving their cash, which would sustain their lifestyle into the next year. In early 2013, however, disaster struck, as, coincidentally, once contact with Hector was properly established, Hoxton would soon find himself in police custody. Despite his professionalism and usual caution, lying low in West Virginia, the police were able to arrest and hold the suspect at USP Hazleton, holding on to pretty unassailable evidence of a tape recording from the Diamond Heist and fingerprints from Panic Room. Suspicious, seeing as how Hoxton was the resident ghost in the crew, but manufactured or not, this evidence made his conviction almost a formality. With Hoxton now gone, and Bane, the remaining gang member's only trusted contact, there was only really one choice for this infamous gang. We left off with the crew relocating to build a new criminal legacy in Washington DC, where Bane had been working on a deeper surveillance network in the two years of the crew's hiatus in hiding. Crime.net was bigger and better than ever, and ready for his most prolific criminal associates, the Payday Gang, to make full use of. However, Bane, having become more wrapped up in the teachings of Cagliostro after obtaining his manuscript from the No Mercy job, is fixated on the idea that a criminal crew should operate as four, and having lost one of their key members, the now incarcerated Hoxton, they would need to recruit. This wouldn't take long, as criminal tendencies tend to be environmental, and so it should be no surprise that Dallas would induct his equally criminally inclined younger brother into the gang. Dallas's brother would take on the mantle of Hoxton, partially out of respect for their incarcerated friend and partially to maintain their aura of invincibility and reputation built up over the events of Payday the Heist. This new Hoxton was quite a different beast to his old namesake. Lacking the liberal use of profanity and sarcastic sense of humour, New Hox was much more serious, stoic and meticulous in his mannerisms. His backstory isn't particularly clear and real name is unknown, and although he shares some similarities to his brother, he's 13 years his junior, so Dallas was likely already an accessory of the Chicago mob before he'd even started school. This left New Hoxton as a man who struggled to fit into society, failed to hang on to a job, and quickly turned, like his brother, to crime. Starting out as a minor conman and burglar, he inherited some of Dallas's enemies as well as making his own, committing his first major felony at the age of 24 to earn the money needed to keep their hostility at bay. By the time he joins the Payday Gang, he's been deep in the world of crime for seven years, making him 31 when Dallas reaches out with an invitation to his infamous crew. It's fairly noticeable that New Hawks lacks many social graces, as well as hating crowded spaces, maybe explaining why he prefers to go unnoticed as the resident stealth expert. Coupled with his obsessive tendencies, straight-edge approach to heisting, and the occasional uncomfortably delivered pager line, some have speculated he may suffer from mild autism. Where I admit that older New Hopston's interests do intersect is their respective specialisations, both being keen infiltrators and marksmen, a role that Bane would summarise as the ghost. Upon returning to the field, there was somewhat of a shake-up in the squad's roles. Wolf remaining the technician, but Dallas gaining the role of mastermind, owing to his leadership and reasonable medical experience, while Chain starts living his best life as the team's enforcer, far removed from his old support status. 
Our new Hoxton's ghost role highlighted the move the gang was making away from every heist being a display of physical force and brutality, adding some much-needed guile and subtlety to operations, as Bane increasingly saw the value of getting in and out quietly. The first events of Payday 2 consist of Bane testing the aptitude of the new member to the crew, as well as seeing just how rusty they've become in two years without any challenge. Over those two years, the police continued to pursue the newly named clown case against the Payday gang, but had assumed that the capture of the original Hoxton had broken up their spree and reduced the likelihood of them returning. This meant that even if the gang had become peripheral figures to the DC law enforcement, there was still evidence on record of their crimes. As such, Bane sends the four to the docks to retrieve a server access code and delete their case files from the Washington Police database, giving the crew a blank slate of sorts to enact their Washington crime spree upon. In the police building, we see a number of indications that Bane's usual targets, the banks and art galleries of Washington, are under close surveillance. We also see an arrest warrant for New Hoxton, suggesting something of his entry into the gang was picked up or leaked, maybe by some sort of informant. Using their newfound anonymity, the gang decide to announce their presence once again, hitting a low-life mobster's nightclub for a meager amount of stolen cocaine, again testing the crew's abilities in a gunfight. But so much for a blank slate, eh? After this, Bane reveals the location of their initial safe house, a laundromat called Bodie's Dry Cleaning, the codename Bane uses for the crew's above-the-law ventures, as we saw back in Counterfeit. Though simple, this location holds much of the gang's old equipment stored and saved from their past ventures in Payday the Heist, ready to be utilised in this second spree, as well as a little information Bane's been holding regarding the secret and the hunt for Baldwin. The first wave of crime the gang embark upon can be broken down into two categories, jewellery hits and bank hits. It's unclear how many jobs of this sort the gang did, but the FBI files note that calls from jewellery retailers around DC came in often to report armed robberies at their stores. A more noteworthy jewellery take was the GOLED Familia Diamond Store, its busy downtown location being seen as a crime deterrent, but the Milano jewellers obviously hadn't encountered Bane, who saw the opposite. Sending in the crew despite moderate security to show no location is safe from the payday gang. On the bank front, Washington law enforcement should have known this was the clown's bread and butter, but that didn't save multiple harvest and trusty bank locations being cleaned out for gold, cash and the contents of deposit boxes. This particularly irked the federal government as H&T's losses were all insured federally. Other branches, such as the Roberts Bank in suburban Washington, and seemingly first world branded locations were just as exposed. GoBank virtually signaling that the size of the take was unimportant to Bain, seeing the value in ensuring all of Washington's financial institutions that they were at the mercy of the payday gang. These bank jobs also showcase the power of the Thermal Lance, a brand new drill designed specifically to get through the thick vault doors. Their steadily rising riches had to be spent somewhere, so Bain suggested the crew upgrade their arsenal via one of his DC contacts. Codenamed Gage, surname known to be Gagowski, is an Afghanistan war veteran turned black market weapons dealer. Paralyzed from the waist down in a failed assassination attempt from an unhappy client, Gage is not one to be underestimated despite his frail appearance. Bane describes him as being two steps ahead of most in the criminal underworld, and we know for a fact he is both heartless and financially obsessed, as the FBI files report his discharge from the army came from being hit by friendly fire after attempting to loot the body of his comrade. A real bastard, but not one that we can't deal with. Speaking the language of money, the gang are able to deal with him and acquire some new and useful tools of war. Soon after, the armored transport hits would take place, a series of jobs which Bane contracts based off information on armored vehicle movements received from a Gen 2 informant. 
In one of the four separate takes orchestrated in highly public locations around the city, the gang find blueprints containing information regarding the movement of a classified military weapon being moved in secure civilian rail transport. Ever opportunistic, Bane again sends the squad to track down the train and liberate the tech for the gang's coffers, found to be a state-of-the-art automatic turret. The gang, of course, happily oblige. Following these early heists, essentially warm-up jobs for the out-of-practice crew, Bane started to up the ante, testing the crew's versatility and adaptation to the new stealth prerogative. Shadow Raid was the perfect mission for this, giving the crew no choice but to avoid detection and New Hoxton a chance to impress. This job is actually contracted through Gage unofficially, who got wind of the Murky Water Mercenary Company, storing and moving spoils of war from worldwide conflicts. As Gage intended to assist in future payday operations, and given he lacked the legal connections required to get away with doing a job allowed, the crew are forced to complete the heist without raising the alarm. This is possible, as they knew the shady nature of Murky Water's operations made it hard for them to bring the police into any sort of burglary matters. The crew entered the warehouse silently on the bank of the Potomac River, liberating much of their illegal contraband, including a full suit of authentic samurai armor belonging once to the famed Oda Nobunaga, much to the joy of Gage. Following this success, Gage hooks the gang up with more advanced and powerful weaponry, at a price of course. Particularly after the Payday Gang's success with the Murkies, impressing with their in-and-out silent handling of the job, Bane starts to think outside of himself, contacting a few influential individuals in the DC area, including an old friend of sorts. They would provide the gang with their own heists as independent contractors. During one hit on a larger Washington bank under the much maligned First World ownership, one of Bane's associates would introduce himself to the gang in quite some fashion. You can accept my invitation to my SUV. We we drink, we talk, huh? There's some vodka, excellent vodka. Vlad, 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 where to start on Vladislav Kozak, the enigmatic Ukrainian who once worked as an enforcer within the Russian mob. He's no one-dimensional criminal, having tried his hand at just about every crooked escapade under the sun, settling on extortion and racketeering in the DC area. A bit of a wild card who certainly offers uniquely violent and public contracts. What we learn about Vlad over time is that he may be a little crazy, but he certainly is no fool, appearing to have contacts on the inside of the DC police force and links to many influential associations back in his European homeland. As of this point in the story, his recent eight-year stint in prison drove his proactive desire for revenge via the payday gang. Not only did Vlad offer his own jobs, he would also directly get the crew back in touch with one pivotal figure, but more on him later. After his introduction, Vlad sends the gang on a tirade of personal favours designed to re-cement his position in Washington's underworld. Mulecrasher appears to be the first of Vlad's jobs the crew embarks on, consisting of high vandalism if such a charge existed, something not within the gang's usual line of work. I think this displays just how unconventional a contractor Vlad is, and how influential he must be, despite his odd exterior, if Bane insisted on his top crew risking their freedom in such a public display of destruction. Vlad's briefing demanded they create $50,000 worth of destruction in the Shield Mall, by any means necessary, to force its owner, a Mr. Stone, to pay up for Vlad's valuable protection in his racketeering ring. As with many of Vlad's jobs, planning was a secondary factor, going in blind other than knowing a chopper-assisted escape was their route out, piloted this time by Bile, Bane's secondary helicopter pilot. 
Soon after returning, Vlad again wanted us to do his seemingly simple dirty work in what became known as the Four Stores Heist. This time, the crew were amused by the simplicity of a hit on four basic stores in a quiet part of town for just $15,000 worth of miscellaneous loot. Nothing compared to what they were doing back west. What Vlad failed to mention was the armed security and connections these shops had to the Russian Mafia, of which he was once a part. Well, seeing as these shops used to operate business for Vlad himself, it's not much of a surprise that he wanted to get some revenge for their lack of loyalty to him when he was incarcerated. In any event, the crew managed well enough, despite Vlad's unwillingness to work with details, taking a token sum that was more of a sign of things to come than it was a great take for our crew. Now we move to two jobs even more personal for Vlad, both part of a crusade against his former friend turned snitch Dmitry Volkov, a Russian mafia boss living out the DC area. Ukrainian job looked like a standard jewelry store smash and grab, but standard jewels were not really on Vlad's radar. He was more interested in stealing a one-of-a-kind tiara lined up for Dmitry's bride-to-be to wear at their wedding. As Vlad says, this is more about ruining the perfect day of his once friend than it was a financial venture. The crew head to the back of the store to liberate the tiara, enraging Dimitri's future wife so much that she even goes as far as to call off the wedding. A big win for Vlad, but not enough. Next up on his hit list was the Tasteful Club, a nightclub owned by Dimitri and one of his greatest assets, hosting illegal gambling and being a safe house, so to speak, for his take and product in many illicit dealings. Vlad wanted us to clean him out, take whatever was in his safe, and massacre the profitability of his club in the process, giving us free reign to do whatever we wanted with him should we happen upon the man himself. Things went as planned and Vlad's influence was reasserted at the expense of his rival competitors. Unsurprisingly, Vlad's impressed, and so points us in Hector's direction. The Colombian drug lord to whom we fenced that Mayan gold after overdrill a higher-up in the Mexican Sinaloan cartel, and once founder of the diminished Morales cartel. Hector was beyond pivotal to the East Coast drug trafficking operations of the period. We know Hector had some indirect contact with the gang two years ago, and we know he was cemented within Bain's crime.net infrastructure, so clearly a man we should trust. Vlad presented an opportunity for direct contact with the man himself, offering jobs which revolved around cartel operations and revenge, primarily using the gang as drug escorts and paying exceptionally well for their services. Yet, every job always seemed to go a little astray. In Watch Dogs, Hector sends the gang as convoy guards, holding the back of a meat truck full of his product like fish in a barrel. An issue that came to the fore as a police ambush is sprung on the crew, surrounding the truck. At this point, the department really has little respect for the firepower and ingenuity of the clowns though, shooting their way out of the situation with the drug bags in tow. Following this, Hector orders the gang to a dockside location in an armoured pickup vehicle, aiming to move the remaining cocaine by boat, a task which they unsurprisingly are up to, despite the location also already being staked out by the Washington PD. Seeing the gang's value in a pinch and seeking to leverage them even further, Operation Firestarter commenced, aimed at the rival Mendoza cartel. Hector sends the four to a private airstrip to steal or destroy a shipment of AKMs. He then sends them straight into the heavily guarded lion's den, the FBI branch office, seeking a server containing Mendoza banking records. Strange that a cartel appeared to be entering into police surveillance and protection. Finally, using the financial records to find their bank's location, the gang go and set fire to the cartel's well, not before noticing a high-voltage trap set at the vault door, a mechanism set specifically against their thermal lance, and the peculiarity of Hector's request to record burning the funds. 
Despite these oddities and Hector's unemotional response to the gang completing his request, the money was so good that the gang were comfortable in undertaking the heist with rats. Hector reports that the Mendoza's top lieutenants are fleeing the country and wants to intercept them to enact his full and brutal revenge. The four were to escort methamphetamine cucks to assist in a deal with another DC gang, the Cobras, trading product for information regarding the Mendoza's escape plan. When the crew arrived at the location deep in the woods, they found the Mendoza's men attacking the lab and executing the cucks, leaving them with little choice but to cut for themselves, while under fire from the police who arrived rapidly given the secluded forest location of the laboratory. Escaping this close call with enough product to appease the Cobras, a deal is brokered and the escape convoy of the Mendoza's revealed. The gang quickly descends to intercept the escape route on a bridge out of the city as time was obviously of the essence. To their surprise, the Mendoza's civilian bus was being flanked by police escorts. An even greater surprise comes after gunning down the poorly protected transport vehicle, they find it rigged with C4, another last gasp effort to take out the payday gang. Irrespective of the close calls and peculiarity of the police cooperation with a renowned violent cartel, Hector simply understatedly thanks the gang before going dark on Crime.net. Finally, we have John Henry Simmons, nicknamed publicly The Elephant, a corrupt Republican congressman whose intentions seem far from straightforward. Again, an associate of Bain's, his jobs are some of the dirtiest the gang participate in early on, with a political spin that often involves some sort of blackmail or deception. It's notable that the elephant's jobs tend towards rewarding stealth and subterfuge to not draw any heat on himself. A political crook of the highest order and one that you wouldn't expect Bane to be keen to work with. But I suppose any high political connection is a good one in this world. First up, we have Big Oil. On the face of it, from a humanitarian point of view, Big Oil is probably the worst job we've partaken in thus far. The Elephant wanted us to steal a cold fusion reactor from the secluded laboratory of Nobel Prize winner Professor Rossi. Apparently, this genius scientist had made an incredible breakthrough in the field, offering a source of power that may have left the oil industry dead in the water, something Simmons could not allow. This would involve us gathering intel on the reactor's location from a biker gang who were also interested in acquiring the fusion reactor, and heading over to the newly acquired laboratory address. Rossi and his engine were situated down in the basement of the mansion which housed the lab. From here they would work out which reactor had achieved successful fusion and then airlift the technology back into the right hands, thanks again to Pilot Bile. Not a move for the betterment of the human race. From Bane's point of view though, a lot of the corrupt powers that be were heavily invested in this new technology, so to him, it's a fair price to pay if it means structural reform in the long term. Delighted we could maintain his Republican goldmine, the congressman decides to have us wipe out the competition before his bid for senatorship. Framing frame is of course a framing job, but one carried out on a politician with his own dirt apparently. The gang would head to the Capitol Art Gallery to acquire several valuable paintings from a new Singaporean art exhibit, fencing these paintings to the incumbent senator's people with hidden surveillance cameras installed. The final day saw the crew again leveraging Hoxton's expertise, using the cameras to assist his movements around the senator's rooftop apartment and plant cocaine in his mansion. Whilst foolproofing the framing job and accessing the man's electronic devices, Bane discovers the popular senator was not at all clean himself, being involved in his own weapon and drug trafficking operations while in office, so I suppose here, the ends really do justify the means. As pointed out by the FBI files, this would have just the effect of political musical chairs the elephant needed to find himself in that newly vacant senator role. 
Crime.net's insider asset was becoming more influential, an influence that Simmons himself suggests should be spread more directly to DC's leadership, putting forward just the man for mayoral candidate. Getting his man Robert McKendrick into power as DC mayor involved a smattering of vote fixing in the heist election day, tracking the electronic voting machines to a dockside warehouse and further tagging them to a Goose Island storage facility. Here the crew would use, again, infiltration and subterfuge to access the machines and input fraudulent votes for McKendrick's opponent, Mayor Nancy Schwartz, disqualifying her as a candidate and giving McKendrick the appointment by default. A seemingly useful ally, considering his entire campaign was driven on anti-payday gang sentiment, as within the month, McKendrick has Old Hoxton moved to a lower security prison, in anticipation for a potential retrial something the gang wouldn't have to wait long to act upon, as McKendrick wasn't the only pivotal character to the breakout we'd be hearing from. Soon after, the dentist would come calling. How did it feel, leaving him behind? Olga, would you show Mr. Steele the Department of Corrections transfer plan for inmate Jim Hawksworth? Jim, or Hoxton as we know him, was being moved. And a bit of pressure applied by the right person in the right place could dictate the timing and location of this transfer. As this dentist character implied, it could even mean a fresh new trial for Hawks, and finally an opportunity to break him out of prison. A plan to rescue Dallas's close friend was always in the back of his mind, but now it was being placed on his lap by a man he'd just met. By all rights, this should have been impossible. So few people knew of Hoxton's incarceration, yet there this man stood, offering a lifeline. Of course, the dentist was no ordinary man. Even the unusual circumstances under which Dallas was introduced to this figure were no accident. Attending a regular dental checkup, Dallas assumed his Nathan Steele alias. In truth, it actually appears like many amongst us, Dallas is not all that comfortable when on the receiving end of dental work. So when he sees his regular trusted dentist as being deputized by another, we witness just how uncomfortable this makes him. Rightly so, it seems, as this man is more than simply a dental professional. After sitting Dallas down for his checkup, this becomes abundantly clear, recounting knowledge of events few should know outside of the gang themselves. I think the way the dentist goes about this shows just how informed and calculating the man truly was, taking his role in dentistry and leveraging it as a position of physical power. You see, no man's going to be unwilling to listen whilst a drill whirs in their mouth. Even Dallas, a calculating criminal himself, would sit and take it all in. And take it all in, he does, until he's free from the chair and in a position to refuse. Yet the dentist had one more ace up his sleeve if his offers of daring heist and immense riches didn't suffice. He claims to have the resources to free Hoxton, going far beyond what McKendrick offered of relocating him, promising that he could use his ties and influence to get our man a retrial. Although there was no legal maneuver out there that could free old Hawks, so immense was the wall of evidence against him, the dentist knew that the more he was moved, and the further away from prison he was taken, the easier it would be to break him out by force. Now, this was an offer Dallas could not ignore. So, planning began on the dentist's first heist, the Benevolent Bank, set to lay the groundwork for the breakout. But before we go any further, just who was the dentist? He's a man with very little history known about him. We learn later, after accessing the FBI files, that the first recorded mention of him was in the dying breath of a James Napalm Westmore, when his gang hit the Benevolent Bank in 1977. 
of course a failed attempt at the supposed unbreakable stronghold that the dentist had lined up for the payday gang to take on. Westmore's dying words are quoted as, tell the dentist to go back to hell. Ominous, if that's where he came from. More frightening though, is that this is a man whose plans and schemes had ended other experienced criminals' lives. What's even stranger is that this was almost 40 years ago at the time we were introduced to him. For just how long had this guy been operating and how old did that really make him? When Dallas first meets him, he looks a man in his 50s. So is the dentist just an alias that gets passed down? And why is he so obsessed with these locations in particular, trying to hit the benevolent bank in the past? All of these questions probably filled Bane's mind, but his promise to aid in freeing James Hawksworth was all that filled Dallas's. Good sense and judgment really went out the window and all other plans and contracts were put on the back burner. This was a job fueled by emotion, but first we had to give the dentist his payday. Big Bank was the first step in doing exactly that. Seeing as write his failure in 1977 and finally enter the vault of the unrobbable bank, the benevolent. The dentist's seemingly endless list of connections changed how the crew would approach heists from now on. Using these inside men to disrupt the vast security operations, time locks and vault mechanisms the benevolent housed. The crew utilized their largest anti-vault tool yet, the Beast, a drill so enormous that it required multi-part assembly. Bane chose to audaciously mock the force even further by hiding this tool in a massive ceramic piggy bank hanging from an industrial crane. Floyd, as he was dubbed, proved that pigs can indeed fly, and so too can their helmets. Proceeding through the time lot to the vault, the gang drilled through to the most vast store of cash and bullion they'd seen since Overdrill. Escaping with their prize, though, was another thing altogether. Dragging it all through the massive ornate halls of the Benevolent carried a death wish. Fortunately, an aerial rooftop escape was absolutely on the cards. Bile met the gang on the vast roof of the bank, holding down the more defensible high ground position to load up the chopper. The four escaped, but not before awarding the civilian who'd been of surprising assistance during the assault. I wonder what became of him. And so, the start of a partnership, seemingly profitable to both partners, as over 200 years of historical security was thwarted in one fell swoop. The stakes and ambition of the Payday Gang was finally starting to rival the scale of their New York spree, seemingly elevated by this dentist character. The benevolent hit may well have been a statement, but in hindsight it was little more than just the first test. Soon after, the dentist saw it fit to test the crew once again, as well as open the door to Hoxton's retrial. Codename Hotline Miami would see us tie up one loose end for the dentist while enabling him to leverage his connections and force through the retrial. The objective was the assassination of a man known as the Commissar, an infamous Russian mob boss named Grigory Beria. You see, Beria had ties to the district attorney. Once he was out the way, the dentist would be free to apply the full force of his political leverage upon the DA, securing the stage retrial and, given the clearly corrupt nature of the attorney, even reducing the security surrounding Hoxton's prison escort. Again, we're able to use favors with the dentist to more accurately place assets to assist in the heist, suggesting he was more connected and certainly more omnipotent than even Bane. A scary thought, but one the gang could leverage to their advantage. Day one of this heist is spent terrorizing and goading the Commissar into opening a line of communication with the gang. This in turn would allow Bane to track down the location of his mob's operations. The crew slaughtered his men, set fire to his cars, and destroyed a gas station on his payroll. 
The Commissar's threats and the vain attempt to cease the destruction of his property and assets were his undoing, allowing the Payday Gang to gather his precise location from a delivery barcode to the address which Bane had traced to a wider area from his radio contacts. Day 2 sees the gang make full use of this information, storming his sordid apartment complex which was the epicenter of the Commissar's criminal undertakings and debauchery. This was more of the loud and heavy approach we'd seen from the Payday Gang of old, tailing the Commissar to the roof of the complex, discovering his stash of valuable cocaine and a vault representing the Commissar's last roll of the dice. Sadly for him, he was unaware that the Payday Gang, Thermal Drills and Vaults have somewhat of a symbiotic relationship by this point. Bile delivers and the gang commence the drilling. If you wanted some indication of the Commissar's wealth and power, the gunship he employed to force the crew away from the vault door should offer you some indication. It was all for naught though, with Dallas and company cracking yet another vault and laying waste to the Commissar. Suspiciously, the dentist didn't seem to have any interest in the dividends of regular loot, such as the Commissar's Coke, a big boost to the gang's bottom line, but further muddying understanding of his motivations. If not in it for wealth, then what? Well, the crew wouldn't have to wait long to find out, but first, it was time for him to uphold his end of the bargain. During the wait for Hoxton's retrial date, the Payday Gang were ordered to go quiet. Specifically, Chains chose to head to his personal safe house located in Sweden. Here, he was tracked down by the Swedish Special Forces. Alone, he faced an unknown number of armed officers and for a moment, it looked like a second Payday Gang rescue may have been in order. Except, the Swedish police were not the only ones on Chains' tail. He was also followed by an old friend, John Wick. Yes, the very same Wick you may have heard of, the Boogeyman, a famed hitman amongst the right or wrong circles depending on how you look at it. Wick, the only member of the crew to not bother with an alias. Seeing as he already lived his life as a hitman, he was afforded the sort of legal protection that an alias didn't cover. A personal tragedy had brought him back into this lifestyle and revenge against his former boss Vigo Tarasov had left him intrinsically entangled in the world of violence he'd once escaped from. Desperate for a reprieve from senseless murder, he took the initiative contacting the Payday crew to fight for a cause and a fortune. His connection to Chains appeared to be a military one, both serving in the US Marine Corps. Using his skills as a hitman, Wick covered Chains' escape from the idyllic lakeside house, overwatching from an unknown sniper position. In return for helping out his old friend, Wick's only request was a ticket to join the Payday Gang, appreciating the nobility of their cause. Chains being especially grateful was more than willing to vouch for Wick, emphasizing his trustworthiness and marksmanship, but the crew as a whole were skeptical. Already with the intention to reinstate old Hoxton, they were looking at a crew of five, more than they'd ever operated with before. Wouldn't adding more members simply increase their overall risk? After much deliberation, accounting for the fact that Wick was known also to Hoxton, his place was sealed within the gang. He wouldn't join up immediately, instead heading for DC after his own loose ends were tied up. But from this moment on, Payday began to represent more of a syndicate of exceptionally talented heisters, as opposed to just a small unit, for better or for worse. Now onto the gang's crowning glory that cemented their image of inevitability within the DC forces. The DA had crumbled under the dentist pressure and Hoxton's transfer to the retrial location was easily secured. The gang employed an inside man to pass on the breakout plan to their old ally, intending to intercept his armed detail in the prisoner transfer tunnels, which ran beneath the courtroom that was to preside over his parole hearing. The time window here was obviously tight. Wolf drilled a banknote through the wall, indicating to Hoxton to get down, 
grabbing for the note to distract his captors and avoid the brunt of the control blast. But his understudy, New Holston, was slightly off in his timing and measurement of the C4, delaying the blast and hitting Holston in the leg with a piece of stray debris from the explosion. Despite this mishap, after blasting through the thick concrete walls, the gang swiftly dealt with his armed escort and moved to carry the plan into its second stage. It's here, though, the crew sees a new, more bitter side to Hoxton, as well as his now-scarred face. The scarring, we would later learn, was the result of a chemical bleach burn inflicted by a fellow prisoner. It seems that this, alongside the clear resentment he'd been harboring over his arrest and rapid replacement, had taken its toll on his psyche. Probably not helped by the metal piping lodged in his thigh, Hoxton was clearly more cynical, sarcastic, and was aiming much of that venom at Dallas's little brother, the man who'd stolen his face, reputation, and name. It's at this point Hoxton coins New Hoxton's, or as he saw him, the imposter's new name, Houston. While originally a derogatory dig emphasizing that he had a problem, now Hoxton was back in the crew, over time the name grew to have its own reputation, being another Texan location and following the naming convention of his brother's alias. The name would become just as feared as Hoxton's, probably to his extreme displeasure. At least now, I can talk about the two without it being incredibly confusing. Following his outburst at Houston and once Dallas had seen to his wound, the second phase began, a planned high-speed escape to a short-term safe house in a fortified armoured truck. Despite Hoxton's escort being lightly armed at the behest of the dentist, the infamy of the gang and its well-known affiliation with Hawksworth had brought quite the police presence to the streets of DC, wary of the gang's scheming. Rightly so, except Hoxton was one step ahead. The police presence be damned, why waste the time now his freedom was secured? He was certain there was a rat within Crime.net, someone who had delivered the feds to his doorstep and provided the evidence needed to secure his conviction. So, to the FBI headquarters they would go, navigating a nearby multi-story car park to shake the police pursuit. On the way there, Hoxton revealed his new mask, allowing Houston to keep his old face, one he no longer identified with after his scarring and change of demeanor left him more vicious than before. Unsurprisingly, the FBI headquarters situated at the Hoover building were on high alert after the escape, making a quiet entrance impossible. However, because of the breakout, they'd sent their usually garrisoned forces as first responders, leaving home unguarded. This meant a payday gang which was not only reinforced by Hoxton's presence, but also armed for virtual war, made short work of the station troops, breaking into the force's command center and hacking their main server, as Hoxton sought information on the individual who he believed had sold the entire gang out, potentially also explaining the troubles chains had back in Sweden. Whilst analyzing the data loaded on the server, Hox was unable to find anything concrete like a name. But he did find plenty of evidence to corroborate his insider man theory, as well as information that would inevitably lead the gang to this rat if they could use Bane and the dentist's considerable resources to decrypt the server information. As such, stealing the FBI's main server was the new objective, one that they completed with ease. These newly downloaded encryption keys, specific case files, and secure DNA samples made this server Crime.net's greatest treasure a true trove of confidential information regarding the clown case, putting the payday gang two steps ahead of their police pursuers at all times. It was probably this audacious waltz into the federal property, which was the straw that broke the camel's back as far as the DC force was concerned, as soon after, big changes started to be implemented. 
In the wake of the hit on the headquarters, Wick joined up with the crew proper. Although despite the crew growing in number, Jobs remained a four-person ordeal, as any more would muddy operations and make a subtle approach much harder. Hoxton and Houston were often separated whenever possible. With Hawks back in the crew, you may be surprised to hear that he never really reprised his role as a marksman. Instead, we see he'd become much more of a hardened scrapper and dirty fighter, owing to his experiences in prison. Although hellbent on revenge, decoding the server information was no small operation, so his bloodlust had to be contained. Lest we forget, before revenge could come, we had to repay the man who'd enabled any of this. The dentist needed his diamond. He'd been waiting long enough. The dentist was beginning to demand more of the gang, and it was clear that he had an appetite for heist with a historic or supernatural flair. This was likely because a relic backed by a good story would always sell, but the gang weren't really in the line of stealing supposedly cursed objects. Irrespective, they'd have to do his bidding for as long as the contractor Free Hawks held firm. However, before the gang had the chance to head to the National Gallery and hunt down the dentist's second quarry, they received an emergency call from none other than Vlad. His brother-in-law had gotten himself into quite the predicament, and Vlad was calling in a personal favour. Wanting to remain in his good books, given his history of revenge and unpredictability, the gang reluctantly agree to Vlad's emergency request, even if one of the largest heists of their lives was just days away. Time was therefore of the essence as they headed to the woods west of the capital, parachuting into the location Vlad had received the Mayday from. Here they found a wreckage of a civilian aircraft, next to a surprisingly unarmed but highly intoxicated pilot. Crazy clearly ran in the family, as we find out this man, Harudin, of Bosnian and Norwegian descent, was actually Vlad's brother-in-law. He'd been sent on a Colombian cocaine smuggling run for Vlad before this unfortunate, I'm sure alcohol unrelated, crash landing. The crew's primary objective was the exfiltration of Harudin, which was easier said than done when the guy couldn't stay on his feet longer than 10 seconds. More importantly for Vlad, though, was the recovery of his shipment, paying more for its safe return than he did his own brother-in-law's. Given their fatigue after the pretty demanding coke romp in the capital forests, the possibility of bringing in a new crew member was brought up. Capitalising on this suggestion, Hoxton, as if just to irritate Houston, suggested that the nature of the next heist would require additional stealthing expertise. He just happened to know a guy, or a girl in this case. Clover, her first name being Rochelle, was an experienced criminal despite only being 27 when she joined the gang. Much of this experience was second-hand, coming as a student of one of the most prolific heisters in the UK, our very own Hoxton. You see, at a young age, she headed over to the Welsh port of Holyhead, intending to graft, steal and cheat in England after a juvenile arrest had halted her progress in Ireland. Her intentions were quickly derailed as she picked the wrong man to pull a con on. A technique like the pigeon drop wasn't going to work on Hoxton, although his sharp dress made him appear a good mark. Despite catching her red-handed, he liked her moxie and decided to take her under his wing, teaching all he could impart during a heisting spree to track the length of England. Taking after her mentor, she did eventually double-cross Hoxton once the opportunity arose, making off with a shipment of Military Order L-95s. Seeing her drive off with the take, all Hoxton could think is how well he taught her, and for her part, there was clearly still some sentiment there, hanging on to one of the assault rifles she'd stolen with Hawks as a memento of their time together. Seeing as time heals all wounds, and knowing a crew might teach her a thing or two about loyalty, Hoxton used his contacts, still in the UK, to reach out and invite her into the gang, specifically for a job that catered to her burglary skills. Fiercely nationalistic, 
Her pride in Irish culture comes across in her style of speech, weaponry of choice, and even her mass style. She also has multiple similarities to Hoxton in how she goes about her business and her attitude to heisting. The FBI files have her down as the first new crew member in the payday expansion, meaning Wick's presence was still unknown to them at her time of arrival. So what was this job that required new blood? The crew were after the diamond, but this tells us little. Why did the dentist want the diamond and what was its true value? All evidence suggests it was all about its financial worth. Of course, a diamond of its size and purity should fetch many millions of dollars, and the dentist himself mentions a buyer who he claims was a patient of his. However, Bain's gut told him otherwise. If the legends of the diamond were to be believed, it was no mere shiny stone, having many similarities to the cursed Hope Diamond. Also, the dentist was a man for whom we did the fetching, not someone who fetched for another. When Dallas met the dentist, they discussed how another criminal gang led by a man named Daxter attempted a hit on the museum a year before. I wonder if the dentist was sending the gang into another hornet's nest he'd poked at recently, just like in The Benevolent. Either way, after the successful return of Hoxton, the gang was locked into contract for two more heists. And like it or not, the diamond was one of them. The setting for this heist was the McKendrick Museum of Ancient Arts, sponsored by the very same mayor we helped into power. For a museum, it had become wildly popular and well-guarded, in no small part due to the diamond exhibit, but also as a result of housing a set of paranormal artifacts that went beyond explanation. Surely these were fakes and forgeries set up by our dear mayor to drum up some extra interest in his museum. I certainly wouldn't put it past him. Either way, seeing how the attempted robbery of the year prior was so ruthlessly crushed by Gensec, all evidence suggested that this would be no walk in the park. Hoxton, Dallas, the new recruit Clover, and begrudgingly, Houston set about to infiltrate the museum. The building was well designed to make out-of-hours entrance difficult. So, to make their job slightly easier, the dentist sends the gang in during early morning hours, close to opening time where security would be changing shifts and at their drowsiest. He also offers a number of favours, as he did at the Benevolent. The four employed Thermite to burn an entrance into the museum through the bars of its archive windows. From here, they split up to rewire a set of four security boxes, which controlled the power to alarm laser wires. In the process, finding and cable tying the museum staff who were holding the key cards required to break through a time lock into the exhibit. After waiting out this timer, they head straight into the main exhibit, which had one last measure of protection in place, a set of pressure plates linked to a randomized light box, with one wrong step meaning detection and the release of a potent tear gas. Memory puzzles were right up Clover's alley though, moving through the plates and taking the diamond from its pedestal without detection. The gang left the way they came, on foot to the escape van, Clover using her expertise in object exfiltration and pre-placed glass cutters to take some extra artifacts with her. And so, the liberation of the diamond was complete. Meaning according to Dallas's first meeting with the dentist, our final business would conclude with a trip to Vegas. However, this would take much more preparation than any of the gang's past heists. So as much as they may have wanted business with the shadowy dentist to conclude, it would have to wait. Fortunately, the payday gang seldom went long without work, with a new job closer to home offering the potential of a lucrative contract. You see, up until recently the crew had been receiving all of their munitions from Gage, but he'd suddenly up and left the country, and even Bane didn't know exactly where he'd gone. So a new weapon supplier was immediately called for, especially to cope with the crew's expansion. For this, Bane contacted the Butcher. 
the name which the police associated with the alias was Denisa Horvat, although this may have been itself an alias, hinting at her Croatian birth. Of all the contractors, excluding the dentist, she may have been the most experienced in her field, coming from a family of smugglers who traditionally used their vocation of animal butchery to conceal and move illegal weaponry through national borders, also dabbling with drug and chemical imports around Europe. Her current operation had been in place for at least 49 years, and the name The Butcher was known to date back to the Cold War era. The Bosnian Civil War had left the butcher as the final surviving member of her family and meant the trafficking business was hers and hers alone. Over the years since, she'd rebuilt and expanded the business, becoming a household name within the European criminal underworld. Bain's supply request gave her the opportunity she needed to extend her operations to the US, knowing she could leverage her assets to contract Bain's crew to do something for her. This something was Warhead Recovery. To get their hands on the Butcher's Mark, a nuclear explosive being moved in parts via the Virginia docks and onto a train that would take it to Norfolk, the crew had to cover all eventualities. This meant heading to both the port location to attempt to secure the bomb on arrival and intercepting the cargo train moving it inland if the bomb had been moved before the first group could reach the docks. This meant an eighth crew member was required if they were going to attempt both hits simultaneously. Fortunately, the Butcher had considered this already. She knew a man, a Croat just like herself, who was tailor-made for the Payday Gang. Dragon was his name. Back in Europe, he was a man who'd spent many comfortable years playing both sides as a rogue Interpol agent. Legally cracking skulls or whilst rubbing shoulders with some of the region's finest criminals, he operated on many different payrolls. Once the contact he was most loyal to, the Butcher, called for him to break his undercover status for the chance at a new, more esteemed role, he was happy to oblige stabbing his partner in the back to get his agency off the butcher's tail. His reward was a ticket to Washington, a new life, a new alias, and a new gang that shared his criminal ambitions, all as a part of Bane's deal with the butcher, offering her a little leverage in proceedings and the gang more firepower and a clear indication of the butcher's sincere intentions. Dragon ended up being one of the more violent members in the crew, but most frighteningly, he was also one of the most calculating. His profile with the FBI suggests he'd exert unnecessary force on captive civilians and certainly was one of the most well-trained cop killers under the payday umbrella, using his background in law enforcement to take advantage of poor police procedure. I suppose Bain couldn't really argue with results, and keeping the butcher sweet was far more important than worrying about morality. So, Dragon would become the necessary eighth member, joining the forest interception group consisting of the more gung-ho elements in the gang, namely Chains and Wolf. Over at the dockyard, those with a bit more guile snuck into the docks, using keycards to allow the Croat ship the Moretta entrance to the port mouth. They guided it to an accessible port location where it could be intercepted to search through its hull containers. Unfortunately, it seemed the bomb had already been moved inland by rail transit, meaning the four stations outside the city limits, including Dragon, were given the signal to move. They derailed the train with a controlled explosion and used a water pressure detonation on the bomb vault to get access to the warhead itself without blowing themselves up. This subsection of the gang was successful in hauling the bomb parts clear of the train and escaping the region via plane, much to the butcher's delight. Not only did she pay well, but there are some weapons that are easier to come by in Eastern Europe. So quickly the gang found themselves on the receiving end of multiple weapon shipments, including incendiaries. It really is no wonder the clowns were becoming even more feared amongst the ranks of US law enforcement. Soon after, business with the Butcher had concluded, a new prospective heister was knocking at Bane's door, this time entirely on their own accord. Jacket, 
was an enigma. He'd been known to the Payday Gang for some time now. I mean, who hadn't heard of Jacket? The sociopath had already allegedly wiped out the Russian mafia in Miami alone. Be they legend or hearsay, Jacket's escapades made some of Wick's achievements look like the work of a run-of-the-mill hitman. Only serving to expand on Jacket's legendary image and add to his mystique was his refusal to say a word. Instead, he used a 1980s dictaphone filled with splintered self-help tape recordings to get his point across. Unsettling, to say the least, but this meant the police had virtually nothing on him. Having moved to the DC area recently to specifically track down the Commissar who had ties to the Miami Mafia, Wolf first met him when abducting the Commissar's gang members for interrogation. Both exuded their own special kind of crazy, so there was clearly a mutual respect here, meaning they shared the task evenly without ever exchanging words. Jacket agreed to allow the gang to take his quarry on the understanding that he could take care of any further interrogations. A pretty reasonable guy. However, roughly a year later, after again hearing of the Payday Gang's ever-increasing notoriety and their success with the Commissar, Jacket was intent on meeting Wolf again, this time with a proposal. He tracked down and tortured an unknown number of police operatives until Bane could not help but notice his activity within the web of CrimeNet. Whilst Jacket made him uneasy and didn't seem to understand the true intentions of CrimeNet, Bane had to admit he was perfectly suited for their lifestyle. I mean, he already had his own mask and persona. And if the addition of Dragon was anything to go by, more muscle was necessary for the future. The police responding to the gang's updated arsenal by adding SWAT van turrets to their ranks. This in mind, Jacket was inducted into the gang with a degree of an ease. But better the devil you know and all that. For those of you wondering, this is the very same Jacket of Hotline fame, but living in quite a different timeline, with Hotline Miami's events taking place closer to modern day, not in the 80s as it does in the game which is why Jacket appears to be a young man in Payday 2. Back with the main storyline, whilst awaiting news from the dentist people as the server recovered from the FBI officers was nearing full decryption, Bane was contacted by an anonymous third party to steal a set of new model Falcagini show vehicles. Hoxton was beginning to get twitchy regarding this rap, and desperate for revenge, set out to meet an old associate who claimed to have some information which would aid in the search. So, Hawk sat this one out, leaving the remaining stealth experts to infiltrate the Tua dealership, which showcased these expensive cars despite limited security. The gang entered through the roof, gaining access to the show floor car keys with the manager's keycard and showing just why open glass buildings are an easy take. Using a controlled C4 explosion on a nearby construction site to create a makeshift entrance to a tunnel which led directly to a nearby dock. Using the actual car keys so the supercars would remain untouched, the crew smashed through the front windows of the open-plan dealership and descend into the tunnels. The cars handled pretty poorly for six-figure supercars, but even so, the DC police force were entirely unprepared for vehicular pursuit, failing to respond before the cars were long gone. Another string to the Payday Gang's bow. Meanwhile, Hoxton's meeting with his old friend Bonnie was quite a lucrative one for both parties. The big 6'3 Glaswegian knew Hoxton from when they both grafted in the UK. While she started off her career in crime as a bank robber up in Scotland, driven by the working class injustice inflicted over the Thatcher era, she'd learned there are far easier ways to get rich and nicer places to do so. So much like Hawks, she moved to the US to scale up operations during the late 90s, first being investigated for a series of honeymoon murders and insurance claims. Bonnie was eventually caught and convicted for the lesser crime she'd committed, avoiding a life sentence for multiple homicide thanks to limited evidence. Still, she faced a sizable stint in US prison, however ever the opportunist, she fared well there, gathering information that would improve her prospects once she was back on the outside. 
While in prison, Bonnie, who didn't seem to bother with an alias, as her surname was known to me McGee, learned of the payday operation, and heard along the prison grapevine that her old friend Hoxton was rumoured to be part of this gang. Seeing an opportunity within CrimeNet for herself, and hearing Hoxton's name come up multiple times, she decided to use the last remaining months of her sentence to gather all the information she could on this rumoured rat who'd betrayed him, as a bargaining chip for entry into the payday gang. Always a gambler, when the time came and Hox went to meet her, she staked her membership on this chance. On the condition that Hox vouched for her entrance into the crew, she revealed the nature of a supposed FBI safe house housing the rat, and told of her ex-cellmate, Juliana Morales. Now, where have I heard that surname before? Either way, Hoxton seemingly had the knack of getting his own way with Bane, convincing him that the 43-year-old still had a lot to offer the gang, and would be necessary thanks to her intel on the safe house and its alarm system. Bane agreed just in time as the FBI safehouse location had finally been traced, courtesy of the dentist. Finally, revenge was just on the horizon. The informant was being held in an undercover FBI safehouse that could be pinpointed to specific GPS coordinates. Seeing that the police were not unaware of his involvement, the dentist was more than willing to pass his information on free of charge, and Bane was even comfortable paying out of pocket for the rat's head and the recovery of any intel on CrimeNet. None of this was really necessary. Hoxton would have done it all for free, so without the need for any encouragement, he and those in the inner circle of the Payday Project headed over rapidly to the address outside the city. More by circumstance than good planning, the gang entered the remote safe house at the dead of night. Armed with the intel Bonnie provided, they intended to get in, slit the betrayer's throat, and get out without detection. The four breached the compound fence into an understated but sizable suburban residence. Spy drones were set up by one of Bane's police contacts to help with casing and intel. As expected, this was a house that had been repurposed for witness protection as not to draw any unwanted attention. Quickly, it became apparent that Bonnie's intel was spot on. The house was fully alarmed, but a quick case of the building revealed the gaps in its security. A delayed response system on the alert mechanism designed to avoid false alarms from the movements of guarding personnel meant a rapid entrance could gag the alarm system before it had the chance to ring out. Similarly, they spotted an open balcony, with the same laser detection security they'd encountered during their first hit on the National Gallery. This was another weak point in the FBI's defences. Entrance wasn't difficult. Neither was finding the panic room, which had served as the rat's entire world once the server went missing. To open this vault, two keycards and a live retinal scan from the FBI boss was required. The keycards were located around the building, obviously laid discarded between guard rotations. It also didn't take them long to find the FBI boss, who took little persuading to place his face in front of the scanner once he recognised the dreaded clown mass he'd been pursuing. With that, the informant's sanctuary was breached, and his life was in the payday gang's hands. A one-minute time lock counted down his remaining seconds. As the lock on the door decompressed and drew back, there he was, the backstabbing traitor, the one who'd seen to Hoxton's imprisonment, and seemingly aimed to disrupt CrimeNet ever since. His identity was... Now, hang on a minute. At this point, the gang didn't need to see his face to know his identity. Hoxton had been listening to his voice echoing through the vault door for the last minute, laced with a distinctive Colombian accent. However, it was unfamiliar to him having never dealt with the man before. On the other hand, his crewmates knew this target well. While searching for the panic room keycards, at Bane's behest, the others had set about dismantling the case the FBI had on them. Glancing over these evidence boards gave Dallas all he needed to decipher who was in that panic room. First, seeing the CrimeNet Connections pinboard, it was notable that the cops had amusingly little on Vlad. Something was not right there. But more revealingly, one contractor was conspicuous in their absence. 
Digging deeper, it became easy to see why. Operation Watchdog was the next piece of evidence the gang came across. At a glance, it was clear that the botched coke smuggling run at the docks was not a result of great detective work, but was in fact a setup. The police encirclement and pursuit was part and parcel to this double operation. And just who had contracted this mission with the gang? It was Hector. Rats, Firestarter, the pieces came together all too easy. The police had arrived at that secluded forest location surprisingly quickly, hadn't they? And what about the Mendoza airport raid? A similar lightning response time. Not to mention sending the gang into federal headquarters unprepared, then demanding a recording of their crimes in progress. Not only was Hector attempting to orchestrate the gang's apprehension, he was helping to create a case against them. After all that, him breaking communication now made a lot more sense. It wouldn't have taken much more for Bane to deduce who was disrupting operations if he'd kept probing at the gang. Hector hadn't gone in hiding from the police, he was in hiding from CrimeNet. In any case, it was clear that his contracts had all been part of an elaborate ruse. Hector was the rat, and now he was a cornered one. Hector, we're running out of time. I've prepared a safe house. We'll keep you protected while you work with my agents to build a case against the clowns. From what I've learned about them over the months, I'd say your life depends on it. Otis. Of course, there'd been many clues, and if Hoxton were a patient man, he would have taken the time to decipher them before garroting the man who'd seen him locked away for two years. But he was not a patient man. It hardly mattered to him who the traitor was. All that mattered was he was still breathing. And shortly, he wouldn't be. There are so many stupid criminals in the world that to be smart is a relatively easy thing. It only takes deliberation, where most would choose action. Hoxton saw to Hector quite brutally once the vault door swung open, over two years of resentment bleeding through his knife thrusts. Hox took his helmet as a souvenir and joined up with the rest of the gang to tear the safe house apart. Once enough damage had been done to the integrity of the FBI's clown case, the crew escaped as they arrived, loading all the evidence needed for their prosecution into the back of the van. Dallas's intuition told him to also secure six tape recordings of Hector's interrogation, concerned that his betrayal may have been part of a more major counter-criminal operation. Once back at the safe house, Bain was able to come through these tapes and work out just what Hector had revealed and a timeline for his double cross. To summarise on his backstabbing, as we know, Hector began his involvement with Bain after the Payday Gang's legendary second hit on the First World Bank, Overdrill, becoming a fence for the mine gold that the crew stole. It lines up that here is where his ambition outstripped his capabilities. Moving $72 million worth of gold comes with its perils. And it seems that in the process of fencing it, Hector found himself in DC police custody. However, despite his years of cartel and drug smuggling operations, he was only a facilitator, not the mastermind or the muscle behind the largest wave of organized crime the US had ever seen. Those in the clown case saw that anyone with links to Mr. Trust's fortune must also have had their hand in CrimeNet and therefore probably had some access to Bane. So even as a high-profile arrest, Hector was seen as a much more useful police asset than simply a state prisoner. As such, he was given a choice. Indefinite incarceration or cooperation with the police with the goal to arrest the Payday Gang in his stead. Begrudgingly, Hector agreed, owing no real loyalty to Bane or the gang, but understanding the price of criminal betrayal. When Hector was first pressured to aid in the arrest of the gang, he bought himself time by offering up just one of the members. The betrayal Hoxton was so fixated on. All evidence suggests that he and Dallas were in hiding together after Overdrill, and that Hector was aware of this location due to being part of Bane's post-Overdrill plans. All of this points to Hoxton being arrested specifically as Hector refused to give up Dallas. 
giving Dallas a chance to escape the police raid and as the dentist reminds him, leaving Hoxton to his fate. How did it feel leaving him behind? Hector's later payday two jobs were all a product of increased police pressure to go after the rest of the gang, in the guise of aiding his cartel operations. I personally wonder whether Hector was just being pragmatic here or genuinely understood his likely fate after he'd seen what the gang was capable of in Watch Dogs, using our crew while he could to tie up loose ends before his inevitable fate. After Hoxton was freed and the raid on the FBI headquarters took place, Hector was forced into police protection and essentially left to wait for his four horsemen to arrive. The book seemed to stop at Hector. All other contacts were under suspicion themselves, so Bain could rest easy knowing that the FBI were absolutely on the back foot. This wouldn't always be the case, but for now, the Payday gang had the upper hand and could return to growing their empire. Right on time, in fact, as Vlad needed a favor. Again, the details were vague, but at least he made it clear that the target location was the very same murky water warehouse they'd hit for Gage during Shadow Raid. Messing with the murkies always felt a little off, and worryingly this time, Vlad demanded more of an aggressive approach, given the crew had to move fast to catch his quarry before it went into transit. This may as well have been an outright declaration of war against the Murky Water mercenaries, or private security company, as they went by officially. But Vlad was paying unusually well, and seeing as the police were starting from scratch with the clown case, now was the time to make bold moves. Familiar with the area, the gang took to a nearby rooftop to zipline straight into the heart of the compound. The on-site mercs tried to defend the warehouse alone, but the blitzkrieg approach of the payday gang was too much for the skeleton crew to repel and unsurprisingly, the gunfire prompted a civilian in earshot to call the cops. Pretty notable that the Murkies resisted calling for police assistance, and not for the first time. They must have been hiding a wealth of conflict spoils they didn't want the law sniffing around. Either way, they didn't have much choice in the matter, as the forces responded quickly, desperate to rebuild their case. Meanwhile, the crew on the ground were following Vlad's instructions, prizing open the freight containers in the search of a portable vault. After they found it, Vlad finally gave a little more information, suggesting they jam crowbars into the vault's cooling fans to force the temperature-regulated vault to open. I suppose when faced with technology like that, the best approach is a brute force one. Worryingly, a vault that operated on a temperature-controlled system likely only contained one thing. This time, Vlad had the gang handling live nukes. Eight of them, to be precise, sealed in radiation-proof containers that were accessible once the vault had its emergency unlock mechanism activated. An impressive departure for Vlad from stealing tiaras and smashing up malls, it now seemed like he was doing business with an entire country. Which country Vlad intended to sell to was unknown, although he heavily implied the warheads would be heading to Europe, maybe not far from his own homeland. Bane was furious that Vlad again had put his crew in immense danger without fair warning but they were far too committed to refuse at this point. Vlad may not have had the dentist nap for preparation when approaching a heist, but for once he had made sure the gang was well supplied, as compound forklifts were readily available to help move the immensely heavy loot. In fact, he even left the crew a gift. Well, at least he made sure the crew would be able to steal a gift from the murkies, directing them to the rear end of the courtyard where their first means of escape was stored, the Longfellow. Apparently, this classic muscle car once belonged to Muammar al-Gaddafi, showing just how impressive and wide-reaching Murky Water's illegal seizures really were. Their level of militant opportunism was impressive, somehow acquiring a prized possession of Colonel Gaddafi, likely after the company involved themselves in his deposition. Murky Water was a dangerous enemy to have. 
In any case, this sort of powerhouse vehicle was just what they needed to speed the warheads to the exfiltration point, a train Vlad had compromised to get the gang out of murky territory in the nearby rail yard. During the escape, the cops show glimpses of their post-revenge resolve, sending out multiple sniper teams and turret-mounted vehicles to intercept and block the Longfellow's progress over the half-kilometer exfil route. After two perilous trips through the yard, all eight of the warheads were delivered to the open carriage, and seeing as the gang were able to create some distance between them and the cops, they were able to leave with the train without pursuit. At least Vlad was paying danger money. This wouldn't be the last of his schemes, but for now, it was Bane's turn to share a job he'd been working on. He was planning a statement heist, one that would show the public of Washington just how inevitable the payday gang was becoming, how bold they could afford to be after dismantling the police case against them, and embarrassing the premium security company Gensec while they were at it. The idea of a crime of such scale taking place while the nearby public went on enjoying themselves regardless had the sort of poetic implication that would etch itself into the minds of the populace once it became news the following day. Remember, Bane wasn't just about getting rich. He wanted to elicit some sort of change in how America operated, and by showing that while law enforcement failed to protect its assets, nearby civilians were able to carry on oblivious to it all, Bane had just the message of protector incompetence he was looking for. Using the fame of world-renowned DJ Alesso to make the heist even more of a headliner. The Alesso heist was a one-off opportunity, taking place at the Gensec Arena, the last destination for Alesso's East Coast tour. Gensec's bravado meant that the stadium wasn't just a top-of-the-line music venue, it also doubled as a major vault for the company, a flagship of the security company's hubris. But the dual purpose of the location also proved to be its downfall. The plan required the stealthing expertise of the likes of Clover and Houston, but also the demolition skills Wolf brought to the table. The crux being that the volume and ground-shaking base of Alesso's performance meant that explosives could be used without breaking stealth. The heist also hinged on an insider within Gensec, likely the same guy who tipped Bane off on the interception points for the armored transports a year prior. This insider hid C4 plastic explosive within storage cabinets connected to refreshment stores, which the gang could recover once through stadium security. This C4 was then planted on the underside of the vaults before heading up to the pyrotechnic booth to ensure Alessa's performance was tailored to mask the explosions. Taking out the console operator, the crew did his job for him, timing the pyrotechnics to their own detonations, not only putting on a great show, but also gaining access to the vaults. As Alesso's final song winded down, the aptly titled Payday, all gang members returned to the delivery room beneath the vault using specifically designed circular cutters to extract the plastic wrapped cash bundles. These bags were then moved into the vent system of the building, with Bane's insider set to collect them once the stadium was vacated. The gang innovated by using stool shoots to move the bags more rapidly to the pre-designated closet. From here, the inside man took over, instructing the members to clean down and mask off for their blended escape within the masses of crowds leading the gig. Partygoers in sharp suits may be suspicious, but the sheer volume of those exiting the concert made this an easy escape. The FBI files note just how cocky a move this was by Bane, the likes of which would be tough to replicate if the rumors of planned personnel changes at the top of the Washington police hierarchy were to go through. A worrying thought for the payday gang, but one they'd have little time to think about. The dentist was calling. Vegas awaited, and the golden grin was open for the payday gang. One final piece of the puzzle was required for the dentist's plan to work, though. A new heister with one specific talent. The payday gang had already began to spread their wings. New crew members had brought different strategies to the table. But they still lacked a real innovator. Someone who could change the very heisting game and make an impossible heist like the golden grin possible. 
This was something they found in the Falcon. Sergei Kozak, better known to the gang as Sokol. Born in Russia, this gifted young heister was Bane's missing puzzle piece in the dentist conundrum. At 25, he was likely the most fit, athletic and resilient heister in the crew, bringing the Payday gang a new dynamic. He was also predominantly in the heisting game for the money and the thrill of it, making him an easy man to understand and to trust. As for his backstory, it must be difficult for someone as in the public eye as Sergei Kozak was to remain an anonymous heister. But despite his bright future in the world of ice hockey and the contract as a grinder for the St. Petersburg Bombers, he lived for thrills altogether different. Sokol was his alias when the brutality of the sport didn't quench his thirst for adrenaline. No matter how many brawls he instigated on the ice, it was nothing to how he felt when emptying a vault. Much like the other gang members, he was experienced in robbing banks, having operated across all corners of Russia whilst touring with his team. But uniquely, he had experience when it came to casinos. In recent years, his violent conduct on the ice and allegations of doping off it had left his career in limbo, meaning his hobby was soon to be his occupation. The increasing frequency with which Sokol was pursuing heist alone had drawn attention from the Russian police, who were closing in on him. But in the process, he'd perfected the mechanism that sealed his invitation to the Payday Gang. Bane was willing to fly him out of the danger zone of St. Petersburg on the understanding he would bring the prototype that made his solo heist infamous, the Arc Laser Cutter. Meanwhile in DC, Dallas received the go-ahead from Bane. He and the three core members whom the dentist originally had his contract with were to be flown to Vegas and await contact from an expert on vault infiltration. The remaining crew were ordered to maintain the status quo in Washington. Of course, Sokol was flown straight into Vegas, time was of the essence, and a confrontation with Jacket, who'd remained with Hoxton's group, was hardly ideal before a job of this magnitude. Apparently, Jacket had some sort of issue with Russians. The plan was initially to take the casino silently using gas to drug the vast security team, which worked hand-in-hand -hand with the casino to provide the kind of security that the Payday Gang wasn't accustomed to. But, as we know, the dentist hated risk, so Sokol was drafted in to supply a plan B. It's a good thing too, as despite the unarmed limousine entrance, the crew's gear was not as well hidden as it should have been, and quickly Houston was pulled out, so a team of Dallas, Chains, Wolf and Sokol could put the latter's heisting tool to use. The four entered guns blazing, repelling the Nevada police assault long enough to enter the casino armory to retrieve and detonate C4 on the casino floor level, and soften up their entrance to the vault. Bile was signaled to drop winch parts into the courtyard, and using pre-stash fireworks as makeshift flares, a blimp, compromised by the dentist, was signaled to lower Sokol's new drilling mechanism through the casino skylight. This was the real deal. The Payday Gang had outdone the drilling power of even the Beast, having to winch down the Goliath frame before drilling could begin. You see, whilst heisting alone, Sokol had likely used a more portable version of the Arc Plasma Cutter. But here, the crew weren't looking to pick a lock with the drill. They were removing an entire section of the casino floor. This meant Sokol had to adapt his design to fit within a rig which could support a wider arc for the Plasma Cutter and allowed it to burn downwards. The contraption was unwieldy, but as prototypes go, it certainly displayed the genius Sokol offered the gang. He christened it the BFD. I'll let you work out what that stood for. Given the short turnover period, the drill design was still not perfect. It required an exorbitant amount of power and seriously ran the risk of overheating, hence the need for water cooling tanks attached to the exterior. I suppose all of its flaws could be forgiven when taking into account the mounted turrets Sokol chose to flank it with. 
Seven minutes of intense firefight followed, as the wide open nature of the drilling space took its toll, and repeat trips to the bathroom to fill up the water coolers were far from ideal. Dallas Swarsockle took a bullet or two, but simply shook it off time and again. A true grinder. At last, it had burned full circle, and a route into the vault was open. Dropping into it, the crew first noticed their reward. A cash vault larger than Big Bank awaited, and of course, the dentist had little interest in that sort of loot. No, the contracted item was further in, sealed away under additional security. Inside the vault within a vault was a simple box. A chest of ancient-looking origin. Adorned on its exterior was an Eye of Providence, a symbol which could be interpreted in many ways, not least as a reminder that we are all being watched over. The item was astoundingly heavy, but the two assault specialists Chins and Wolf forged a path back to the limousine, bidding farewell to the Golden Grin and Vegas. In the aftermath of the heist, the Las Vegas Police Department was recorded expressing frustration with the casino higher-ups, as they were unwilling to confirm the nature of what was stolen, with one employee report simply stating, they ripped the heart out of this place. What the chest actually was would remain a mystery, but this wasn't the first time the dentist asked the crew to recover a relic of the past, so it's easy to assume he was someone with an influential connection that was interested in history. But why the secrecy? In time, we'd find out. But for now, the debt of Hoxton's liberation was paid in full, and the dentist vanished from crime net as fast as he'd initially appeared. In response, Bane proceeded to turn all focus back to the gang's primary objective, one he'd yet to make clear to even Dallas. The first step, though, was contacting Gage again, as the DC police were beginning to up the ante, and it seemed Mayor McKendrick was no longer to be relied upon. As such, more firepower was in order, and a weapon supplier closer to home than the Butcher may resolve any supply issues for the gang now 11 members strong. Gage had just recently returned from extended leave of the US, likely forced on the run after Shadow Raid. But on his travels, he'd acquired new contacts of his own, expanding his inventory quite impressively. The Japanese weaponry he'd secured from his time in the country was state-of-the-art, although the medieval-inspired weapons he now offered were a lot less orthodox. Crazy, but the more medieval in nature, Wolf and Jacket certainly didn't complain. On his travels, Gage could only be so discreet, as the wheelchair-bound vet tended to stand out in the crowd if an individual knew who they were looking for which is why it was no surprise that he was shadowed back from Japan to the crime net web of DC by a figure clad in a cream-tailored suit and branded by Irezumi. Jiro, a man who'd come seeking Bane for answers. Jiro was a lifelong criminal, but one with an impeccable code of ethics. He joined the Osaka branch of the Yakuza at an incredibly young age, swiftly climbing the ranks and gaining his boss's trust and favor. This proximity to the inner circle led him to breaking an essential rule as a forbidden romance with the boss's daughter Yoshimi sealed his fate within the family. Not before she gave birth to a son though, Kento. Soon after his child was born, Jiro was shot and betrayed by the men he trusted. Although left for dead, he survived the encounter, but was still unable to escape the Japanese justice system without the protection of his once family, being sentenced to a minimum of 20 years in prison. He left that prison those two decades later to find his once lover dead and son nowhere to be found. Before claiming his bloody revenge on those he once considered family, his old boss who'd arranged his betrayal made one attempt at amends, telling him that Kento, his son, had been moved to America, and at a contact of the Yakuza's in the US, Bane would help to track him down. Hence Jiro tailed Gage back to his workshop in DC, met the gang at their next weapons deal, and introduced himself and his plight to Bane. 
Standing before the crew, his blue eyes betrayed a half-American parentage, and although English didn't come naturally to him, he was able to explain his desires and skill set to them. Bane didn't have all the answers he needed, but found it hard not to respect the old Gokudor, offering him sanctuary within the gang while he searched for more clues regarding Kento's whereabouts, if he were to lend them his strength and experience. Jiro was no bank robber, but violence, extortion and gang warfare had been his existence 20 years prior, so he was no stranger to this life. Much like Sokol, he was quickly feared by the DC police for his immense resilience to pain and seeming ability to grow in strength in spite of it. Over the course of his brief time in the US, a country where he saw people could be bought and sold, he learned an important lesson. Okanega subete. Cash is everything. Jiro would fit right in. Meanwhile, as Bane had anticipated, DC moved at once against the ever-expanding crime net. Mayor McKendrick had cracked under intense scrutiny of his policies and over calls to depose of him as mayor, calling on the creation of a new task force specifically designed to take down the payday gang by cutting off the serpent's head. The elephant's hand was forced, backing McKendrick to bring in the respected and feared Commissioner Solomon Garrett to lead a new crack team investigating the movements of crime net and providing him with the firepower to intercept the gang at every turn. Garrett brought with him a two-pronged attack. For a while now, there had been a growing sentiment of national Stockholm Syndrome within the civilian populace, as the gang exposed the major weaknesses of their supposed protectors time and time again. The new commissioner wanted to change this rhetoric and expose the crew for the murderers he saw them as, highlighting the vicious copycat killers that CrimeNet had spawned. At the same time, Garrett moved to fully militarise the DC police force, starting from the top with a new captain of operations, the decorated military police officer Neville Winters. With him came the Phalanx teams, riot control specialists designed to protect Winters' approach and provide support to cops on site. Winters would prove to be a foe the crew never truly overcame, yet his own success is also highly debatable, often being forced to retreat from combat once his shield war broke down. The crew's success in dealing with the new anti-payday initiative likely came down to just how much intel Bane was able to acquire on Garrett's plans and Winters' movements. You see, Bane was always a step ahead, receiving a tip that Washington PD was being restructured to combat CrimeNet specifically from his police mole, Wesley Smith. Smith was himself able to plant a compromised bobblehead dozer figure in the commissioner's office at Bane's command, granting CrimeNet access to his FBI account. Garrett's meticulous planning and recording of payday gang movements and past heists would prove to be a double-edged sword to FBI operations. Essentially, Bane and the crew had access to everything known about them and their heists, as well as access to his internal correspondences within the department. This meant the payday gang were always one step ahead, and although police resistance from here on in may have been greater, the crew were never in any danger of being caught off guard by Garrett. So, who would be the first contractor to offer the crew a job after Garrett's new hires had made operating in the US a greater risk? It could only really be Vlad, couldn't it? Who else is crazy enough to challenge the man who put down both the Irish and Italian mobs back in Boston? In his defence, Aftershock was driven by freak necessity and took place outside of Garrett's jurisdiction, in the wake of a high-magnitude earthquake in Southern California. He'd attempted to call on the gang two weeks prior to escort a weapons shipment and aid in its distribution, informing Chains on his morning run that he'd done a deal with a Seattle-based weapons syndicate, supposedly the largest criminal organisation in the US, to supply premium firearms with a bit of extra flair. Being honest, Vlad was never the guy to approach when it came to weaponry, and Bane had made it clear that after the fiasco with the nukes, any dealings with Vlad had to go through him. As such, Chains scoffed at the idea, leaving Vlad to plan the operation alone. 
In the aftermath of the quake, which devastated the highways linking the west and east coast, Vlad was left with little choice but to show his hand completely to Bane, signing off on a deal to send four crew members to recover his stranded munitions. The weapon safes were being transported by Vlad's shell company, Kowalski & Hutch, which suspiciously had its offices burned down and all records destroyed after the event. The crew were to provide support to his hired hands already on the scene, who detracted police attention in the disaster zone. The crew were airlifted in to soar into the vehicles and load their contents into another functioning truck, which could then be airlifted by chopper from an extraction location away from the crumbling overpass. All objectives were completed, and the shipment was recovered and transported to DC, where Vlad could finally do business, offering the gang first choice on a weapon each as part of their reward. Unfortunately for Vlad, these custom weapons would never catch on, with purists in the heisting underworld refusing to touch his bootleg products, some of which were badly damaged in transit. In the end, he was left with such a massive supply he had to start giving weapons away for free, hoping to forget about the entire sordid affair. Post Aftershock, CrimeNet seemed untouchable again. Not for the first time, they'd operated outside of DC with total impunity. Even with Garrett and Winters on their case, the cops were consistently a step behind and were currently failing to recover the integrity of the clown case. Even Vlad's wildly unplanned heist were proving little trouble for the now 12-man strong gang. But that illusion of security was about to be shattered by an ever-present adversary. Murky Water finally saw it fit to go on the offensive. After being embarrassed at the slaughterhouse and their own warehouse twice over, they organized a cyber task force to initiate an attack on CrimeNet's digital operations. The South African cybersecurity expert who led this task force went by the name of Locke. Vernon Locke was a man of abundant talent and very few scruples. His MI5 training and time working under the Murky Water banner had left him with quite a unique skill set. Hacking into CrimeNet was bold. What he did next was even more so. Instead of shutting down the network which facilitated and protected the Payday Gang's activities, he approached Bane with an offer. As a Murky Water insider, he held an innate understanding of their internal operations and weaknesses. He was also fully aware of the extreme wealth the company had accrued over dozens of sordid mercenary campaigns. His offer was two lucrative jobs, targeting his current employers. Normally, Bane would jump at the chance to earn good money whilst placing a dent in the Murky's bottom line. But being coerced into a job was a new experience altogether, as refusing would result in the complete shutdown of CrimeNet. Begrudgingly, he decided to take Locke up on his offer. After all, as the organization expanded, taking down CrimeNet had become the best way to halt operations, which Locke had refrained from doing. Even if the four heading out under Locke's command were walking into a trap, there were eight talented heisters lying in wait to spring them out. Upon receiving details of Locke's planned hits, it became plain as day that additional athleticism had to be drafted to ensure their success. Apparently, Bonnie had little interest in skydiving. But there was another figure in the hosting world with whom Bane was acquainted, with a notably altruistic view on felony. This modern-day Robin Hood was also quite the athlete. Originally of Venezuelan descent, Bodhi was somewhat of a heisting legend, given his crew's propensity to take on heists that challenged the very elements themselves. As leader of the ex-president's gang, he'd become notorious for committing crime to show the fallibility of the justice system. In India, his crew released more than 100 million worth of stolen diamonds over the slums of Mumbai. At another site, a mining location in Austria, they'd orchestrated a C4 explosion to induce a landslide which left the gold ore transport vehicles ripe for the taking. An impressive CV. Bodhi's one desire in life was to complete the Osaki 8, eight death-defying ordeals that left him at the mercy of nature. 
As of when Bane contacted him to offer a place aboard the notorious Payday Gang, he'd completed six of the trials and had lost most of his old gang members in the process. With only his final two tasks ahead, the Master of Six Lives and the Act of Ultimate Trust, Bodhi was left with a decision to make. Return to his homeland of Venezuela to defy death again at Angel Falls, or to sow more discord within the fascist ranks he so detested alongside the Payday Gang first. He found it hard to refuse. For now, Bane needed him to aid the Payday Gang in repeating one of his previous feats, the Birth of Sky. Garrett and the Payday Task Force caught wind of his entrance into the gang early, but crucially, he was still an unknown variable to Murky Water. Bodhi's arrival would take time, so a squad consisting of Wolf, Bonnie, Wick and Hoxton headed to Nevada to commence part one of Locke's plan. Beneath the mountain entailed hitting the compound he was stationed in at full force. This heist was a test of good faith, with Locke evidently exposing himself to danger to help earn the trust of Bane and his crew. Even so, Bane still had failsafes in place, with other members of the gang remaining on high alert nearby. Directed by Locke, the four blitzed the compound gates, finding planted breaching charges, blowtorches, and a keycard around the front entrance of what was essentially a military bunker. The facility was known as Black Ridge, once a governmental military property, before being purchased by Murky Water. As this base was one of Murky Water's primary command centers and storage facilities, Locke was familiar with the potential rewards of this heist. He was also creating the kind of disruption to Murky Water's ongoing investigation into the Payday Gang that would divert any suspicion away from his department's failed cyber attack on CrimeNet. In any case, the breaching charges and blowtorch were Wolf's speciality, making entrance into even a militarized bunker a cinch. The keycard granted further access to the inner complex by way of a quick security hack into the airlock. This interior betrayed the concrete and military vehicles on the outside of the bunker, with its technologically advanced control center revealing the true nature of the murky's well-financed operation. Using security cameras to inspect the separate vault contents, the team picked out the four which contained loot, ranging from priceless art to a master server storing government blackmail material. After emptying the vaults, the crew rode a zipline up a nearby elevator shaft to the rear entrance of the compound, coming face to face with Locke, applying the finishing touches of his betrayal to a trio of unfortunate murky colleagues. If he was playing both sides, he was doing so convincingly. He'd paved a path for the gang's escape, intending to blend in with the waves of Murkies to enter a readied helicopter, whilst the crew used Stash C4 to destroy Murky Water's advanced radar systems and refuel the chopper for evac. Locke's plans were not short on spectacle, with the crew making their escape from the primary landing pad, which the Murkies used to move their spoils of war. Police reports in the aftermath of this job reached DC too late for any evidence to really be salvaged but Garrett was sharp in his observation that the Murkies had a defecting insider on their hands. Sadly for them, they didn't catch on so quickly. What Locke had successfully deduced was that Murky Water was an organization so large it had lost sight of the intricacies of its own operations, and his absence would not be noted in time if the gang moved quickly. So within the week, Dallas, Houston and Chains had met up with the new crewmate Bodie to take on the Birth of Sky. Locke used his clearance to gain access to the lower decks of a murky-owned Z-170 Zeus cargo plane before takeoff from a nearby airfield. The cargo aircraft was designed to haul military equipment to their mercenary battlefields, but as the FBI files note, was more often used to transport their ill-gotten loot between their many storage facilities. As Locke had identified, this one would hold three pallets stocked with cash, as well as a regiment of murky operatives being moved following the previous assault on their Black Ridge bunker. On his signal, the crew sprang an ambush on the unsuspecting PMCs. Bodhi and Dallas ran a gauntlet through the hull, laying waste to the mercs, whose numbers advantage did little to aid them in the cramped aircraft. The two reached the switch controlling the cargo bay doors, where Chains and Houston had moved the money-loaded pallets into position. 
Quickly, they don parachutes and follow the free-falling cash out of the back of the plane, skydiving into a retail part below. The arrival of cash by air had not gone unnoticed, and police were already cordoning off the landing zone by the time the heist has landed. They quickly ascertain the location of the pallets, reconstructing one which is shattered on impact, and lit flares to inform Locke of their precise location. They proceeded to fasten the money securely to Locke's helicopter before he airlifted the pallets out of range of a police pursuit. By this point, the sight of bank notes falling from the sky had drawn quite a police gathering, and the arrival of Garrett's armored turret squad forced the crew underground for escape, using a contingency sewer plan and a pre-placed dinghy to move to the second LZ for pickup along the bank of the retail center. Locke had succeeded spectacularly. Certain he would be doing business with the gang again, he bid farewell for the time being, offering to cover CrimeNet's digital fallibility to prevent any similar incidents in the future. Bain had to admit he'd been a passenger on this one, and Locke was a man with the sort of ambition to follow in his footsteps. But even he wouldn't have the stomach for Bain's true intentions. With that burden in mind, he moved yet again to begin recruiting for a plan that was years in the making. And very soon, an unstoppable chain of events would force the Payday gang down a one-way street. But as ever, before the true consequences of the gang's criminal actions could be revealed, there was money to be made. Trust Vlad to be on hand to mobilize the Payday gang again. As the season dictated, he couldn't miss a chance to ride on the festivities and acquire some valuable product to enter the new year in style. Vlad called for a team consisting of Jiro, Sokol and the other newly acquired members of the crew to hit a surprisingly familiar warehouse. The now mostly abandoned old industrial side of the city had been a hotbed of crime for years, with the very same location being used by the gang to fence the stolen paintings all those years back during Framing Frame. Since then, the warehouse had been repurposed as a storage site for festive paraphernalia, except that was just a front. The Overkill MC was in fact running a new illegal supply chain in the city, using the innocuous warehouse to store, refine, and even grow an atomic cocktail of product for their drug ring. Vlad ordered the crew to siphon coke out of that line and into his, timing their raid during a cutting and packaging window as the product was due for distribution. The crew went in armed for intimidation, and at gunpoint demanded the cutters continue to prepare the goods. A brief gunfight with the guarding biker gang had alerted cops to the location, meaning the crew needed to not only forcefully motivate the festively designed cutters bagging the loot, but also protect them from gunfire. Under pressure from the encircling forces, the team made out with as much as could be carried, using metal grates leading to the sewer system to secure Vlad's quarry and escape the heist. After their success with codename Santa's workshop, Vlad was quick to follow up with yet another ridiculous offer whilst Bane was still preoccupied. This time, he'd surely outdone himself. With Hector's death, Vlad noted the gap in the powder trade, which the Honduran cartel was attempting to occupy, moving their product in the stomach of goats. Yes, goats. Things get unethical. Vlad's intention was to intercept their faux farm convoy, recover the goats, and extract the coke by hand. The plan was as follows. The crew were to head downtown in the Longfellow and intercept the cartel's supply using a civilian vehicle to run it off the road. They were then to recover the fleeing animals and load them into the back of their own escape truck in order to move them to a secure barn outside the city for product extraction. Things went sour though when the Honduran cartel tracked their goods down and entered into a full-blown shootout with the gang. This drew a response from Commissioner Garrett's team, who'd been on high alert after the firefight in the city. A three-way war did not provide the ideal conditions to liberate their looting, so instead, Vlad called on his brother Harudin again to come and collect the goats using an aerial loot-snagging extraction, again leaving the crew to escape the scene in the Longfellow. Whilst the crew succeeded in securing most of the goats, this heist was a damn mess. Even Garrett noted it wasn't the clown's usual MO, despite their financial gain on offer to them. 
From the scene of the barn, at least one goat was recovered, alongside Vlad's accomplice and escape driver. For his sake, he is hoping he chose his associates well. For the Payday gang, more than anything, it showed just how much the crew relied on Bane's pre-planning to pull off their usual clean heist. Fortunately, his absence in putting this job together had given him the time to arrange the details of that foreign contract he'd been negotiating, which had the potential to build a massive offshore connections. A core group consisting of Hoxton, Wolf, Chains and Dallas were flown to a high-class hotel in Los Angeles, so Dallas could serve as Bane's own personal emissary in sealing the deal with the elephant's influential Russian contact. Dallas met the elephant to discuss financials and the details of this offshore heist. The job was simple on paper. Head to a research lab hidden within the Siberian tundra to steal a server full of data regarding a Russian military experiment. Yet something wasn't quite right. The syndicate hiring the gang clearly had access to technology that was beyond what Dallas thought possible. And the elephant's contact and leader of this syndicate was surely not to be trusted. The man's name was Akan, and the data he had contracted the crew to deliver struck Dallas as immensely dangerous in the wrong hands. He'd soon find out his suspicions were well-founded. Now, let me warn you, things will get weird in this series, but Jimmy, Akan, it doesn't get much weirder. You see, Akan had been born quite literally in the midst of the Chernobyl crisis, and his proximity to normally lethal amounts of radiation while still in the womb left him stripped of melanin in his body and with genuine telekinetic power. He demonstrated those powers to Dallas by killing an innocent waitress with little more than a wave of his hand. The supernatural really does exist in Payday's world, and for now, we're just scratching the surface. This homicide would be the LAPD's window into the Payday Gang's involvement in the heist to come, as Dallas's primary alias Nathan Steele was traceable back to a receipt found on the waitress's body. Although, Garrett had little jurisdiction where the gang was heading. In any case, disgusted by what he had seen, but unable to safely refuse Akan's contract, Dallas was escorted towards the crew's van to head to the airport. However, on the elevator down, two women entered with a bouquet of flowers, which hid tools of assassination. After murdering Dallas's escort, they directed him to an unfamiliar hotel room to rendezvous with his crew. But it was time for a third surprise of the day. Being held at gunpoint by just one man were Hoxton, Wolf, and Chains. Jimmy is how the man introduced himself. Sporting a thick southern British accent and a sharp suit, he'd clearly done a number on Hawks already and now held all the cards. Yet despite his position of power, he gave Dallas an offer. To work with him against Akan, but on the same job. In a show of good faith, handing back the crew's sidearms. Unsurprisingly, not normally meant to make a habit of turning on their contracts, and knowing the danger Akan posed, Dallas indicated to Wolf and Chains to turn their guns on Jimmy, as if they needed any encouragement. Except Dallas hadn't learned his lesson from before, and Jimmy had made a bluff no ordinary man could make. Seeing that he'd not got through to the Payday Gang with civility, he chose to go on the offensive, by shooting himself. The four may have been perplexed before, but their amusement really peaked when who should come knocking at their hotel room but the man who seemingly lay dead on the floor in front of them. Except this time, he wasn't suave and controlling. This Jimmy was a cracked up nut job with an even less responsible offer. You might be wondering why there are two Jimmys. Well, that comes down to the technology that Akan was interested in. Genetic engineering and human cloning were a reality in this world, even if few knew about it. And it just so happened that Jimmy Prime, the original, had a few copies of himself running around, which he retained control over. After being turned quadriplegic on the order of Akan, and suffering from an unusual form of disassociative identity disorder, Jimmy gave all his clones vastly different personalities, and made each one intent on hitting Akan where it hurts. Our Jimmy was affectionately known as Coke Jimmy. 
you know why. And of course, he was just the right level of irresponsible to get the Payday Gang on board, offering them the exact same cut as Akan offered and ensuring them that Akan was pure evil. Ever the shrewd negotiator, he was more than happy to raise this offer to match the fee plus 50%, under the condition he could tag along with the gang. Perplexed, the crew independently agreed. However, the crew's switch of allegiance was swiftly noted by Akan's men once his own bodyguards were found dead in the elevator. Rapidly, a well-equipped team of Russian operatives was sent to take out the gang's transport vehicle, moving an EMP necessary for the mission to the airport. Except, they probably weren't counting on Jimmy being aboard. Equipped with his own duct tape mask and a line or two to get the juices flowing, he showed that he was true payday gang material, fighting off and killing the task force alongside the core four to earn a place in the gang for good. Unfortunately, the bomb the crew had been moving to Russia for the heist was likely damaged in the firefight, meaning a new equivalent EMP had to be sourced before they could launch an assault on the lab. As ever, when it came to illicit good acquisitions, murky water was the answer. But first, what was the deal with Jimmy? As I've mentioned, he was not a normal heister. In fact, this Jimmy wasn't even the real man himself, although it's not clear how much Bane and the gang knew about this. Either way, he proved himself to be dependable despite appearing as anything but. Yes, he was a maniac with an apparently insatiable sex drive, but in combat, he actually tended toward the periphery of fights, using his surprising guile to actively assist his crew members and take the heat off them. I suppose it helps being essentially immortal. Payday Gang membership was actually an objective of his to fund those addictions and further his research into genetic cloning. No matter his motivation, he was unsurprisingly fearless, but shockingly loyal, especially once Gage helped him out with a more fitting mass design. Back to the task at hand, Jimmy had intel on a secondary EMP being transported along one of the many murky water contraband routes, which was scheduled to stop off at a secret train yard. Heading back to DC to quickly intercept the bomb, Bane stressed that recent events with Murky Water and Locke meant that it was pivotal that the heist was stealth to completion, as not to poke at the Hornet's nest. Sokol joined Jimmy and the other experienced silent operators at the transport facility. Entering in the dead of night and using the nearby overpass to perform recon, they began to breach the train's security measures with various improvised tools and keycards. Unmanned surveillance drones displayed just how on their guard Murky Water was ever since Shadow Raid, but after a few close calls, the crew were able to use the dockside location of the train yard to their advantage, escaping by boat with the deconstructed EMP in tow, alongside some unmarked weaponry as a gift to Gage. Jimmy was understandably ecstatic, as a crew consisting of himself, Dragon, Chains, Wick and of course Jacket loaded the EMP into a plane bound for Russia for the second part of their contract. The intel Akan had given the crew on the lab's location was good. With aid from a local contact, Fedor as the gang's pilot, they were flown low over what appeared to be a disused lumber mill. Naturally, this was a ruse, which became apparent quickly when advanced anti-air guns fired a barrage at the plane. The gang decisively leapt out to take care of the AA gun before it did any more damage to their exfiltration vehicle or to the EMP. They demolished the targeting system to allow Fedor to make another pass with the bomb and had the weapon itself to turn it on the external walls of the compound. Special Russian operatives stationed at the lab met them in open gunfire, displaying characteristics of the arsenals utilized by the anti-payday gang in DC. The gang pressed onwards though, familiar with their current predicament, setting off the bomb near the hidden entrance to the research facility. The purpose of the EMP was now apparent. Not only was it to disable the fence preventing entry to the facility, it was also to shut off the tech planted within the clone super soldiers, who would have presented more than a slight issue to the crew had they been conscious. 
The objective now was to move these incapacitated men onto a biological scanning machine activated with the handprint of a recently deceased lab scientist. From here, their genetic data was saved to a server which could be extracted and repurposed to create a cloning production line. As crazy as it was, Akan's initial intentions were becoming clearer, as well as Jimmy's reasons for wanting to stop him. With access to these test subjects, he'd be halfway to creating a servile army of powerful soldiers. The crew scanned the cybernetic men and fled the lab with the data server and a briefcase Bane had requested, making their way across the open tundra while under immense pressure from Russian sniper support. They escaped the snowfield courtesy of Fedor. As far as the data was concerned, um, Jimmy probably destroyed it. I don't know, I wouldn't put it past him holding onto it for a rainy day. Either way, it was better off in his hands than in the murderous Acans, whom Jimmy assured the crew wouldn't be in a position to pose them any real danger very soon. Also, the investigative committee of the Russian Federation would never cooperate with Garrett's task force, so Bane's crew went on with impunity. After returning from Russia, Jimmy became a permanent fixture within the crew. Naturally, he was a valuable asset, so those who'd spent their lives stealing and robbing banks set about teaching the maniac a trick or two. Harvest and trusty banks were not ready for this storm. A team of vault-cracking experts, Sokol, Hoxton and Clover, hitting banks with a virtual immortal in tow. The crew were bound to cause a stir. In fact, their reputation had grown so much that during a routine bank robbery, a certain rocky blue-herd heister decided to crash the party. Sydney would soon become another ally of CrimeNet. Sydney's real name was Kelly King, and back in Australia, she'd been part of a delinquent gang known as the Dingoes, who operated within her hometown of Melbourne. Her weapon of choice was the Bootleg, a heavily modified SG416C rifle she'd obtained back in Oz, offering fire rate and capacity to match her unhinged style. Although she was only 24 when she moved to the US, it's notable that she already had an extensive criminal record from the Melbourne Police Department. So much so, her movements were already being traced before any interaction with the gang occurred. Although soon, it would be a three-way robbery, which the FBI would know her for. You see, Sydney had done her research and knew exactly how the payday gang operated. Seeing this as the perfect opportunity to make some money and test herself against the best, she arrived at the scene of his standard payday bank hit. Seemingly intent on stealing the take, she made an unhinged assault upon the responding cops, as well as disrupting the crew's escape with an array of explosive tools. The four heisters on the scene may not have appreciated her aggressive opportunism, but they sure as hell were impressed by it. Bane in particular took notice, realizing this time a piece of his long-term puzzle may have just fallen on his lap. Sydney made off from the scene of the crime with a bag of the payday gang's loot, but was clumsy outside the confines of the heist, being easily traceable by Bane, who came knocking with an offer. Make far more from within the payday gang than by stealing from them, and only have to worry about shooting in one direction. It's a win-win, really. And with her acceptance, the crew had gained yet another element who would be tough for Garrett and the anti-payday initiative to plan around. It's worth noting that Sydney remembers appointing herself a member of the gang on the spot, although Bane recalls how she stole from them first. Maybe a sign of her psychosis, or possibly betraying her true intentions in getting caught up with the gang in the first place. With the payday gang now 50 members strong, going on the offensive against those who'd continued to operate against them became Bane's prerogative. After the madness with Akan, it's almost a surprise Bane chose to do business with Simmons, the elephant again. But he just so happened to have the connections that would get him closer to another new ally and an invaluable piece of tech. The elephant had direct contact with the Overkill MC, that influential biker gang whom the Payday gang had alienated over numerous heists in the past. And he was willing to sever his ties with them for a continuation of his good relationship with CrimeNet. Bane was willing, and hired the elephant to approach a particularly ambitious brother in the group with an offer, which the man known as Rust accepted readily. 
Turning up at MC's bar, Simmons used a large-scale drug purchase as a guise to isolate key members of the gang before this new contact could sever those old fraternity ties, harming the biker's chain of command and proving Ross' loyalty in the process. As ever, when Bane sought out a heister, they had something he needed. Tom Rust Bishop was a message to any crime syndicate who would consider opposing the payday gang. CrimeNet was worth more than old ties and loyalty to any discerning criminal. However, the 61-year-old offered a lot more to the crew than just a message, which led to Bane handpicking him. Throughout his career, he'd been given the moniker of the Devil, with a battle-hardened exterior built on years of experience in shootouts, taking bullets, and wielding his own lever-action shotgun, the Breaker 12-gauge. By getting him on board, Bane would have an asset not only to help him wound the criminal competition, but also an inside man with intel that would help him acquire a virtually priceless piece of military tech. However, before giving up that intel, Rust needed something returning to him. Dragon Chains in Dallas were sent to meet Rust and an abandoned industrial site on the outskirts of the city, presenting him with his mask and divulging Bane's plan. However, before that could be enacted, Rust insisted that news of his betrayal would have spread through the DC chapter of his old gang, who would likely take revenge, using a mechanic friend of his, as well as his prized chopper, as leverage. He wouldn't play ball with Dallas until he'd got both back. Bane was surprisingly more than willing, and had actually sent reinforcements for this exact sort of situation. The four were joined by Sydney, Jacket, Jiro, Houston and Sokol, the extra muscle to pull off two jobs at once. Heading to the biker's base of operations, the leaderless overkill MC were just expecting rust, so boy were they surprised when they were reacquainted with his new allies. The shootout drew police attention as Garrett's task force had been surveying the gang ever since their ties to the elephant became apparent, and soon it was an all-out war. With Mike, Russ Mechanic still needing some parts from the clubhouse to get the bike moving, it became clear that the time window for stealing Bane's tech was closing in. Assured he'd get the bike, Russ left, accompanied by Houston, Sokol and Jiro, to storm a train aboard a freight railroad on the other side of the city. The remaining heisters protected the mechanic and fled the scene with Russ pride and joy in the wake of an all-out war with the biker faction. In the aftermath of the carnage at the Overkill MC's clubhouse, the Special Payday Task Force managed to arrest a member of the biker gang, Scott Sagano. Sagano willingly entered into the witness protection program and informed Garrett directly that Overkill MC recently got their hands on some type of advanced weaponry. Garrett's superiors wanted this tech return, but the commissioner himself just saw it as a chance to make the gang regret having the audacity to hit a moving train. Meanwhile, Bile dropped the gang at the coordinates Rust had provided, straight onto the rear of said speeding train. However, they arrived to find the bikers escorting the tech being brutalized by law enforcement likely silencing witnesses who had knowledge of that classified weapon. Pushing from carriage to carriage whilst under heavy aerial and vehicular assault, the crew forced their way into the front of the train, encountering a small group of bikers holding out from the cops and protecting their quarry. After dispatching of this well-armed contingent, Rust finally had his hands on the BCI, a headset which tapped into revolutionary brain-computer interface research to allow a human wearing it remote control of weapons of war, such as military drones. You can see why the FBI wanted knowledge of this technology to be limited, and certainly not in the hands of the Payday Gang. Unfortunately for them, they were already too late, as the crew redoubled their efforts to get back to Bile and escape from the rear of the train. In the biker heist, Bane had made a statement to all opposing criminal organizations. He'd also acquired technology that was worth millions to the right buyer, and by stealing, made the military police wary of their own weaponry. At last, it was time for the Payday Project to enter its final phase, the first step of which was initiated by Hoxton. The gang desperately needed a new home. 
Now consisting of 16 uniquely skilled individuals, Hawks saw it fit to get out of that old laundrette basement and move to a central base of operations, which could facilitate each member's own requirements and allow them to organize internally in comfort. For the first time, his influential lineage was of use. After wiping any evidence of the old safe house from existence, Hoxton contacted the Hoxworth residence. His old family butler, Oldstone, was more than happy to come serve the last in the Hoxworth line over in the US, and had few scruples over his master's occupation. Oldstone moved quickly to turn the new three-tiered residence Hox had secured into a livable, but more importantly functional, home for those with a proclivity for crime. A new firing range, gym, armory and surveillance centre were all organised by the veteran butler to aid in the crew's expansion and ensure CrimeNet could continue thriving without interruption. Just as the crew was starting to feel unassailable, inviting other notorious criminals to an opening party of sorts for this new chapter in CrimeNet's history, another faction had suddenly started to pay attention. Henry Carter, of the Department of Homeland Security, informed Garrett that with all these criminals converging on DC, the payday case had become a matter of national interest, and so he was sending over a top-secret strike force, Force Z, to disrupt whatever the payday gang was putting into motion. Not to be outdone, embarrassed by the DHS having to meddle with his investigation, Garrett finally received the clearance he'd been seeking to introduce a new subset of law enforcement specialists to his task force, the medics. These specialists could aid the New Zeal team in making the gang's life a living hell. During the height of this police power in DC, the crew even had to repel a police assault on their new safe house, which remained structurally safe only because the security where Bane's crime net provided, preventing police intelligence from pinpointing the location as the true home of the payday gang. However, it wasn't just Garrett and the task force who were bolstering their ranks. A darker, more intangible threat loomed, one with blood ties to the gang. Jiro's search for his son was soon to begin in earnest, but first, it was of course December. Vlad was back. I mean, it was Christmas. You can't have Christmas without Kozak. The crew had just recently expanded their arsenal, with a shipment coming in from Wix people over at the Continental, and Gage finding yet more ways to package and modify their assault weapons. So, Vlad thought it was high time to go big this year, not aiming to hit quiet industrial DC, or head to the sticks as the gang did the year before. Instead, he was sending them into Midtown America Mall at the height of the festive season. This one was bound to get messy. Yet again, he trusted Harudin with moving his product, who, in a mad panic, decided to hide the coke in whatever gifts he could find around the mall. The fool dressed this time as a mall Santa had overdone the booze once again, and after being apprehended by the police for acting suspiciously and the misdemeanor of public intoxication, he put Vlad's coke smuggling ring in great peril of being exposed. This time, though, Bane had the crew on standby, and although the central location of the mall would mean a fast police response time, they were more than ready for Vlad's usual madness. Bane was sending in the core four, after all. After freeing Vlad's stepbrother from his police interrogators, they set about locating the gifts filled with his coke. These hiding places included expensive gift bottles of wine, prized jewelry displays, and even VR headsets. After locating all remnants of Vlad's shipment, as well as securing a few gifts of their own, Bane called in Bile to first drop C4 to blow out the mall's skylight, and then return to winch the crew out of danger. If it wasn't for the crew saving a relative of Vlad's, Dallas wondered whether he was trying to get them killed, demanding that they escape on the base of a building-sized Christmas tree that hardly provided ample cover. Either way, Vlad got his damn tree, and the crew got paid. From their report, it seemed the FBI was none the wiser to Operation Stealing Christmas's true purpose, and Vlad was able to keep his product flowing around the capital. Oh, and those new weapons... Worked pretty well. 
Speaking of munitions, the crew had been tipped off during the safe house warming party earlier that the Butcher was expanding her operations to the east coast and may have been in need of muscle to enforce this transition smoothly. She'd actually been running weapons in the Caribbean for a while now, drawing plenty of attention from neighboring cartels whose smuggling efforts were far less sophisticated and well-backed. So when it came to sending her first convoy to the waters of the Magic City, her vessel, the Meerswine, was hit with full force by the pretending kings of Miami, the Sozas. They killed her men, claimed her weapons, set fire to her ship, and documented the entire event in gory detail, sending the butcher images of their brutality along with a threat. Soza says stay out. You see, the Sosa cartel had been at the pinnacle of the Florida criminal pyramid since the mid-80s, prying that crown from the infamous Tony Montana during their hit on his Miami Beach mansion back in 1983. However, they'd yet to run into a force like the Payday Gang. Just maybe the spirit of Scarface would get his revenge yet. The Butcher contacted Bane, who in turn assembled a squad ready to mobilize immediately. A quartet of Dallas, Chains, Giro, and Sydney packed their bags for Florida. Souza's number was up, and a third party seemed to smell that in the water. Upon touching down, instead of being greeted by Bane's usual insider entourage for pre-infiltration planning, a diminutive man met the four with a cocksure smirk. He introduced himself as Tony Montana, the name of the man whose fall from grace some 30 years prior had heralded the Souza's meteoric rise. To those he was less acquainted with, he was known as Scarface. This man told the group under no uncertain terms that if Ernesto Souza, the now head of the family, was going to die, he was going to do so by his hand. Normally, someone like Sidney would laugh at the idea of some foreign stranger getting in the way of payday gang business, but this man was enigmatic. You could tell he was made for more, and he claimed to have once owned the mansion itself. In a brief exchange with Dallas, Bane not only cleared him to assist in the mission, but effective immediately extended to him an invitation into the payday gang. I'm sure Sidney wasn't impressed after all she'd had to go through for a chance with the crew. What's stranger, Bane didn't even sound surprised when Dallas rang to inform him of what had transpired. It was almost like he knew. Sending over a new custom mask which paired perfectly with Montana's devil-may-care attitude for the task at hand. Before they could launch the Butcher's campaign for revenge, we have to consider just who this Scarface was. He wasn't Tony Montana, at least not the one you may have heard of. In this universe, the events of the 1980s were no work of fiction. The real Scarface was a Cuban refugee who'd wanted for more, reached the pinnacle of East Coast criminality before falling victim to his own hubris and substance abuse, being caught between the law and the Sozas. Scarface was dead, but his spirit may live on just yet. The man now going by the name of Tony Montana, who stood before the Payday Gang, wasn't just some cheap imitation. Whether he was a relative, an old friend, or just a fanatical copycat, one thing was for sure. His knowledge of the Scarface mansion was real. Without a doubt, he was a Cuban national, and certainly he had the capacity to become public enemy number one, as the first Montana did 30 years prior. Tony Montana reincarnated or not, he believed he was Scarface. That's all that mattered. The depths of his delusion played into his favor. His hatred for the Sozas was very real, and so were his skills. He was no bank robber, nor was he a subtle operator, but Tony dealt in absolutes. His weapon, affectionately known as the Little Friend, was modified with a 40mm grenade launcher, allowing him to breach and clear ruthlessly. Tony also carried with him an injector filled with adrenaline, which could put him into a trance-like state where pain was no longer a barrier. Madman or not, he was paid a gang material, and now he had the opportunity to prove just that, as well as enhance the legend 
of Scarface. Back on Miami Beach, the now five-person squad entered the mansion's compound silently. Thanks to the intel provided by Tony, the crew were in knowing the external henchmen were simply lookouts, meaning the higher-ranking mansion guards would be none the wiser if they could be taken out silently. Scarface knew exactly where he'd find Ernesto Souza. They'd have to prize open the Grand Villa to have a chance at his life. However, the police reports received by the DCPD recount this as a hit, so something must have gone wrong. Or right, as Tony would have seen it, seeing red once he spotted the head of security at the pier head. Things went aloud. After alerting the Sozas to their presence, the plan changed. Now it was about coaxing the rat out of his hole. Using a security USB, they hacked entrance into the mansion, tearing it to pieces. They set fire to the Sozas' collection of priceless art and called in Bile to dump and destroy their vintage cars. Ernesto had strange taste in art. Shady figures, men at sea, a pyramid. Surely he wasn't also obsessed with that hoax they'd seen at the McKendrick Museum. It was a hoax, right? In any case, the Sozas weren't about to allow everything their family had claimed most 30 years ago go up in flames without a fight. Ernesto unleashed turrets, his personal guard, and finally emerged himself, heavily armoured and armed. Tony saw his chance and unleashed his explosive fury upon the Sosa Patriarch. The death of the Sosa Cartel mirrored that of the Montana Cartel almost poetically. Scarface's smirk must have been wider still under that mask. Before fleeing, they opened up the mansion's hidden vault, escaping with millions of dollars worth of yayo and even more dirty money. The butcher was also delighted. Her reputation was bound to grow, and Miami might as well have been handed to her on a silver platter. She'd have more work for them very soon, but for now, a fellow crew member was in need. Wicked asked for little since joining the gang, simply appreciating not having to work alone for once in his life. But now, his old organization, the Continental, had come knocking. They needed Wick for another job. Upon informing Bane, the legendary hitman was surprised to hear that the mastermind behind CrimeNet didn't view the Continental as competition. Instead, he was interested in how the org's currency, Continental Coins, could change how CrimeNet went about its business. He signed off for Wick to be joined by a core group of heisters to do the Continental's bidding. It hadn't been CrimeNet's policy before to involve themselves in other criminal syndicates, but the Continental had just too much sway and firepower to be ignored. Essentially, the crew, sent to Brooklyn, New York for this job, were to be escorts, taking up positions to overwatch Sharon, the apparent concierge of the Continental Hotel, as he carried a secretive package for delivery with the Continental's regards. As anticipated, other unwelcome elements sought out said package. The gang provided covering fire from a derelict apartment building, whilst drawing most of the armed police response away from Sharon. The gang fought over a nearby building site to again keep Sharon in their sights spotting and taking out snipers holed up in the sprawling downtown complexes. They recovered the item which Sharon requested, a metal briefcase locked away with marked cash and unregistered weapons. This was clearly not a good neighborhood. Upon ziplining down the elevator shaft to meet up with Sharon, the crew prepared for their escape, calling in Twitch to come in amongst where the police had set up a roadblock, knowing that this would be the route out that the responding NYPD would not anticipate. They fled the scene with Wick's old friend suffering little more than a graze. That's the kind of professionalism that gets contracts signed. The Continental was now open to the payday gang. For his part, Sharon wouldn't forget that he owed Wick and his new friends, a debt he looked to pay almost immediately. Sharon drew Bane's attention to an exclusive fundraising party being hosted by none other than Mayor McKendrick, knowing the DC mayor was no friend to crime net. 
I suppose it's fitting that when you bite the hand that feeds, that hand may well turn hostile, as was the case with the good mayor and crime net. The payday gang had put McKendrick in power during election day. He'd repaid them by installing Garrett, Winters and the anti-payday task force. So if he thought re-election was on the cards, he had another thing coming. Sharon informed the crew that this party would be taking place on a luxury yacht, anchored on the East River and owned by a conservative advocate of McKendrick's, Ethan Powell. On board would be some of his most influential sponsors alongside his fraudulently gained campaign funds, likely stashed around the boat. That wasn't enough though. Sharon wanted his debt paid in full, so he further dug up evidence of a remote server that would be on board with access to all of the mayor's offshore accounts. McKendrick wasn't loved by the people. If he was to see executive power again, it would be purely on the back of the palms he could grease. By siphoning this money out, the gang could exact their poetic revenge and bolster their own offshore balances. McKendrick's speech on the bridge of the yacht provided just the distraction needed, entering from the stern via speedboat. Wick was joined by Payday's stealthier elements to pull off this robbery in silence. The four identified a laptop which held the temporary locations of his sponsorship funds, hidden throughout the yacht in place of lifeboats and stashed wherever they wouldn't be found. These wrapped bundles of cash could be bagged up and tossed out to the open water for the pickup boat to snag later on. The setting of this heist made any unsuspecting members of McKendrick's security team easy prey, and even easier to dispose of. After liberating all the liquid cash funds, the crew returned to the laptop to unlock entrance to the boat's server room. Here, they were able to overheat the servers, allowing an override to be activated. With McKendrick's financial hard drive now exposed, the crew had all they needed to ruin the man who'd caused them so many issues in the past. This heist was so well executed, knowledge of it happening was limited only to McKendrick's inner circle, as the corrupt mayor would soon be the first political casualty of Bain's new America, and Wick was able to again concentrate purely on the payday gang's future. A future that was about to become very uncertain. You see, Vlad had arrived at the safe house. Normally, this meant trouble, but this visit was irregular. He knew something or someone was moving against the gang, but made little attempt to clarify who or what. He simply wanted to see how much the crew knew. Meanwhile, Dragon had started to become distant. Something was wrong. Surely the butcher couldn't have been involved. With distrust suddenly sown in and outside the gang, things were only compounded when a mysterious letter arrived at the safe house. Esther Tate was all that was written upon it. Surely that couldn't mean... No. Vernon Locke was the only one with real answers. And for Jiro, this had even more meaning. It all started with Vernon Locke getting in touch. He said he had information that someone was out to destroy us. And he knew of a time and place where we could intercept an agent of this unknown enemy. That shifty mercenary is a lying bastard, but we still had to investigate, of course. CrimeNet had wronged many people, but few in time had lived long enough to harbour that hatred. Just who could be working to bring them down? In any case, Locke had been given the go-ahead by Bane to conduct an investigation into this individual, sending the Core 4 alongside Jiro to apprehend and interrogate the man if needs must. Returning to the French Embassy in Manhattan, which had served as the location of one of their first ever heists during the New York spree, they laid low to anticipate the arrival of Locke's apparent Mark, who the IT specialist had been tracking for weeks. To everyone's utter amazement, who should come rounding the corner but Matt Roscoe, ex-cellmate of Hoxton's and one-time would-be betrayer of the Payday Gang. 
The recognition was immediate and mutual. Roscoe turned where he stood, fleeing at breakneck pace. The crew began pursuing his van yet again on foot. The irony wasn't lost on Dallas and company. Roughly five years apart, the same streets running through Manhattan, Heat Street was playing out all over again. More unbelievably, someone had tried to warn them. Locke called for his man Eddie to help the gang pursue Roscoe in a vehicle, but pot shots taken by Wolf had already drawn police attention, and like deja vu, he too was shot up when attempting to pass through a blockade. Carrying on on foot, in the wake of a speeding ambulance and whilst fighting off well-drilled New York police responders, the crew found that Matt had again ran his car off the road. Naturally, it was time to burn him out, like last time. History again would repeat itself. With a now badly burnt Roscoe emerging from the furnace of his vehicle, the gang were quick to force him further down the road to a planned pickup site, laid out in advance if things got messy. Under extreme police pressure, they had to loop back around, escaping using the elevated road up the highway, which they already knew could accommodate an escape chopper from all those years prior. With Roscoe bound and on board, it was time to return to the safe house and hand him over to the specialists. Wolf and Jacket had a knack for these things. Roscoe would not tell us anything about the threat against us or who he was working for. But he told me he knew of a Yakuza member named Kazuo who was imprisoned in a Long Island correctional facility. Somehow, Matt Roscoe was more afraid of his new employer than he was the payday gang. His stay in Crime Net HQ must have been hell on earth, and yet somehow, all they got from him was a name. Kazuo. Jiro took this information to Bane with the intent, but not the means, to hunt the man down. Another stage breakout would be too great a risk, especially knowing little of the area and with the threat of this unknown group looming large. Instead, Bane saw it fit to call on a number of his contacts within the penitentiary to engineer a prison riot. A violent uprising against the US justice system was right up his alley, and it had the desired effect of initiating high-profile prisoner transfers away to another prison. If Hotson's breakout had taught them anything, it was that prisoners in transit were easy game for the payday gang. Wolf, Houston, and Sydney joined Jiro on the flight back to New York. They were taking a massive risk on information given by Matt Roscoe. It was clear Bain feared whomever this group represented. The plan was more radical than anything the gang had attempted before. The payday members waited to ambush the prison convoy on Green Bridge, whilst Bain's other insiders were tasked with mounting plastic explosive to the bridge's support beams. The intention was to trap their vehicles on the mainland side of the bridge, preventing a return to the fortified prison. They succeeded, but at a cost. The initial controlled explosion ignited fuel from a nearby engine, and whilst many civilians were able to flee their cars, others were undoubtedly caught in the blast. Quite frankly, if you want some insight into the depths to which Bane was willing to sink in order to protect CrimeNet, look no further. Greenbridge was a damn massacre. After the secondary explosion prevented any of the transports from moving, the four assaulted the convoy with full force, decimating their poorly armed detail and soaring through with portable circular saws, which Wolf often carried as backups. Any other prisoners that escaped during the assault would be worthwhile collateral, distracting the police efforts to recover order and stability on the bridge. In the back of one vehicle, Kazuo was immediately recognizable. He was a Yakuza all right, Jiro could see that at a glance. The crew proceeded to escort the prisoner along the bridge and to the top of nearby scaffolding. Here, a Fulton balloon system was already prepared to get Kazuo to safety one way or another. Seeing how well Vlad's goats traveled using a similar system, Bane was inspired, calling on another inside man, a pilot named George, to time this flyby extraction whilst under fire from a turret-mounted police chopper. The snagging process was successful, 
but the whiplash must have been something else. However, before they could check on the state of their VIP, they had to get themselves off the bridge first, pushing hard against the police blockades towards the mainland, where they could finally flee the bridge using a maintenance stairwell built into one of its support pillars. Kazo wouldn't tell me everything, but we now know that Kento is still in the US, and he's working for the AXA. Does he know I'm alive? Does he remember where he's from? I don't know. I must find him, and then I will have my answers. And another question remains. Who is planning to attack the Payday Gang? Roscoe is not telling us everything. I think he's more afraid of his employer than of us. Whilst the gang received little reassurance for their efforts and remained at the mercy of this unknown threat, the news was enough for Jiro. His son was alive. A reunion was within his grasp. Bane, on the other hand, was becoming reclusive, more so than usual, hastening plans and setting into motion events that would change not only the fate of the Payday Gang, but likely the entirety of the US. He had to assemble the final members of his team for one last heist, but with this unknown threat at large, recruitment was an innate danger. So he turned to a man he could trust. Gage was a snake in the grass, but he'd had so many chances to betray Bane whilst under extreme police scrutiny in the past, it was clear he was loyal, even if he had little choice not to be. As a dealer and smuggler, it shouldn't be a surprise that Gage had contacts over the Mexican border. And it just so happened a famed Sicario contact of his was itching to earn his keep without relying on others' blood money. When approached by Gage with Bane's offer to become the 18th member of the Payday Gang, the man, Antonio Macatasso Benitez Rodriguez, grasped the offer with both hands, crossing the border with a weapon shipment taken straight from his former employees, a major cartel in his homeland of Monterey. With that, he took on a new name, Sangres. The Mexican national was a skilled murderer who paid respect to those whose lives he cut short with his Dia de los Muertos inspired mask. A crack shot with his 44 Castigo revolvers, he showed ambidexterity befitting his hitman trade. Sangres offered the Payday Gang a cold blooded edge that would be necessary in the fight to come. Not long after his arrival on the US side of the border, Sangres was called off from his planned arrival in Washington. Bane was transferring the entire gang out of DC, as Locke had made first contact since the Heat Street incident. Yet Locke's proposed job had nothing to do with Kento. Simply, he was selling weapons to the butcher. Maybe Dragon's suspicious behavior had been merited. Just what was Locke up to sitting on weapon shipments? What could he need muscle for when the butcher was another close contact of Bane's? Whatever it was, Bane wanted insurance out of town where the deal was taking place. Dallas, Hoxton, Wolf and Chains being sent personally to mediate the transfer of arms taking place in an Alaskan shipyard, with other members asked to wait in the wings should something go wrong. You should know, this Alaskan deal would change CrimeNet irrevocably. What's more, Garrett had started to receive letters. A greater power was on the move. But before higher order threats could be considered, the gang had a job to do over in Alaska. Hoxton, Dallas, Wolf and Chains had spent the night aboard Locke's trained convoy. Not ideal rest before a job. To make matters worse, at the intended pre-heist rendezvous, Locke was a no-show, and they'd been hurried into his train without their usual weaponry or pre-planning. It seemed acceptable, bearing in mind all parties involved in this deal identified under the crime net umbrella. But even so, if they were needed, guns were essential. They were, however, surrounded by the old murky's newly acquired munitions, which would be going to black market with the butcher. Bane encouraged the crew to take liberties. It was clear he knew there was sure to be trouble, and they could hardly protect Locke's Hall 
or themselves for that matter, without some firepower. Pulling into the docks in the early morning, Dallas finally heard something from Locke. The deal was a bust, and the surprise Locke was offering the crew was not a pleasant one. He'd sold the Payday Gang out to the authorities. Sets of well-drilled Task Force specialists already held advanced positions to gun down the crew where they stood and cover Locke's escape in a marked FBI vehicle. As ever, the clowns had other ideas, tearing through the wave of first responders and pushing to the shore front. The Butcher was clearly not in on the betrayal as her crew were already under fire from the cops swarming up and down the ship. To launch a fight back and potentially escape the frozen dockyard, they needed the Butcher's captain back on deck. The four returned to the dockyard, sawing the captain free from his captors and attaching a fuel hose to the vessel, giving the mere swine too the juice it needed to get clear of Alaska. Rushing back to the ship and clearing its decks of the task force for a second time, the payday gang unmoored the ship for their escape. With the cops repelled, the butcher's crew pushed off from land and into the waters of the North Pacific. Heading below deck, the four discussed their next move and, unsurprisingly, revenge was already on Chains' lips. And on the butcher's. It was her who'd suffered most acutely from Locke's treachery. But something told Dallas he needed to see the full picture. There was more afoot than what met the eye. You see, Commissioner Garrett actually knew nothing of Locke's betrayal, despite the specialist cop synonymous with his task force being present at the dockyard. We see from his correspondences with Garrett, John Burnham, the Anchorage Sheriff, also knew nothing of the planned ambush. And despite his police department actually coming into contact with Locke the night before the arms deal, he was clearly an unknown up in Alaska, with Garrett still actively pursuing the Merc for his suspected connection to the Payday Gang. The only conclusion was that Locke had gone straight to the DHS for his betrayal, and information of the operation was above the anti-payday task force's pay grade. That, or something very strange, was taking shape. Either way, nothing looked out of the ordinary to the gang. This had all the blueprints of a second great crime net betrayal. After moving the entire crew back to the DC harbor, Dallas finally called Bane to share his fears and plan their next move. Bane sounded calm, defensive even, it unnerved Dallas. Going back to the safe house made little sense with Locke still at large and having stepped foot in its classified location before, yet Bane saw it differently. So, back to the nerve center they headed to wait on the next move for Crime Net. After much convincing, finally Bane gave way to accommodate Dallas, under pressure of the other gang members, to hit Locke where it hurts. The plan was to attack his primary financial channels and draw the weasel out of hiding. Bane claimed to know exactly where his funds were tied up, and it would be a trip fondly remembered by Hoxton. The Garnet group was in their sights once again, some five years later. But first, Bane moved to induct a man into their ranks who could combat those acting against them from the shadows. A genius of the criminal world who could solve the puzzles that lay ahead. It was difficult for the crew to accept another new member into their ranks during a crisis such as this though. Sangres had Gage's blessing but Bane's new man, August, came as a total anomaly. Although, it didn't take long for him to convince his new peers. August Lindenhurst was a professional from impressive stock. The high-class art thief hailing from Long Island, New York, was set apart from the rest of the gang by his wealth and education. He didn't steal out of necessity, but for the love of the art he stole. Bane needed a man with his expertise in the ancient and mysterious, and who was willing to risk his neck to obtain such artifacts. You see, the secrets of Cagliostro were finally revealing themselves, and August had history with the relics that Bane thought key to unlocking those secrets. 
Garrett was on to Bain's attempted acquisition, looking through his files and seeing that Lindenhurst would likely travel to DC with a number of his prized artifacts. He emailed border control at Washington Airport to intercept his belongings and secure an arrest. But Bain, keen to get August on side as quickly as possible, sent Oldstone with the proper paperwork and his cutting British wit to reclaim the goods and leave Garrett with nothing to prosecute on. Duke, as he was now christened within the gang, added plenty beside his educational background. Much like Sokol before him, he'd proven he was more than capable of working alone, so with the aid of three others, would be quite the heisting force. Now in his 50s, Duke was known to the FBI after decades appearing as a suspect in high-profile art and antique thefts. It's fair to say he had experience, although Duke's methods were cited as generally non-violent, and the cavalier nature of most of his heists had kept him low on the FBI's radar. The Payday Gang's MO did not fit with his, so whatever had drawn him to CrimeNet was clearly important if it was worth killing over. Despite this, he retained an air of class, wearing a statue of David-inspired mask and wielding his efficient cross-kill guard pistols. Clearly though, joining the gang weighed heavy on Duke's conscience. August claimed the flask he always carried on heist was more symbolic than anything, used ritualistically to help him focus. But the whiskey he always topped it up with suggested otherwise. It certainly never hurt his aim though. Like Sangler's, he had impressive ambidexterity. What's more, his archaeological background would prove to be essential as the gang moved forward against the supposed unknown threat and now open treachery of Locke, although Bane didn't make it entirely clear to the gang that the next months would be so wrapped in the legends Duke specialised in. Money and influence was always what drove the Payday gang, so it was time to go back to doing what they did best, a trip down memory lane. The return to the Garnet Group's high-rise offices was a long time coming. Told you they'd be back. It was time to show what they'd learned in over five years of heisting. This time, they'd be relieving Nathan Garnet of his most precious diamond reserves without any slip-ups. And with Locke having recently made massive investments in the thriving business, it was sure to be more than just the statement it was back in the day. It just so happened that Garnet hadn't learned his lesson, continuing to throw family birthday celebrations within the headquarters, which made a heist like this much easier to pull off. Unfortunately for his son Ralph, after five years out in the cold following his cowardice during the first Garnet hit, yet again, he'd be at the centre of the Payday Gang's plans. Just as they did the time before, the crew entered using a suspended window cleaning platform and glass cutters. The difference was, now they had an abundance of stealthing talent within their ranks. The gang had the router boxes controlling the motion detectors next to the vault and accessed the laptops with the vault access codes. In the process, they bumped into Paul Ralph, who again had been trusted with the keycard required to enable the code. With this, they had all they needed to breach the Garnet Group's soft centre yet again, remembering the armoured glass from their last trip inside the building and coming accordingly equipped with glass cutters. Their escape from the building was all but secured, leaving as they entered with millions worth of diamonds. Garrett had been watching the Garnet Group's headquarters closely for years, Seeing it as an undeniably tempting target for the Payday Gang to revisit, as bull markets had seen its stock rise far above what it was worth in 2012. Rumour had spread that Garnet's personal fortune of reserved diamonds was greater than it was during the first hit, so it was one of the many mousetraps Garrett left intentionally exposed for the Payday Gang to entrap themselves in. While they caught him off guard this time, the Commissioner saw it as a success. The Payday Gang's predictability and core desire to covet wealth would be its downfall, or so he thought. If only he knew. The true purpose of this heist was to destroy Garnet's stock price, wounding Locke's investment, and surely drawing out a response from the traitor. 
Garrett did sense something wasn't right and that this job felt targeted, but soon he'd miss the boat on ever being the one to end the gang's operations. His meddling in crime net's affairs would be the least of their worries soon enough. Thus began a period of decline for the Payday Gang. Maybe Locke had succeeded after all. Whatever fear he'd planted in Bane's mind was obviously starting to impair his judgement. Despite Duke being a fine acquisition to the gang, they were still under siege, and had made little headway in locating Kento and whatever organisation he was wrapped up in. A panacea to the wrong problem, Bane again saw the only way to turn their fortunes around was by recruiting. In an attempt to combat Garrett's media campaign, which had made civilians generally more vigilant of the gang's operations in DC, and in turn had hampered their old casing tactics, Bane contacted a couple who he believed could alter the Payday Gang's image in this politically motivated plight. Ethan and Healer were known internet personalities with a widespread following. However, they had no previous, no experience, minuscule training with a firearm. They offered nothing tangible to the gang. Honestly, this was one of the most bemusing decisions Bane made as head of CrimeNet. He was cracking under the pressure. Amongst the gang, they commanded little respect, and for what it's worth, their own image was undergoing scrutiny at the time. It's safe to say public perception of the Payday Gang was not altered by their addition, at least not for the better. With new acquisitions meaning less income to go around, it became clear that CrimeNet was leaking money. The old jobs that kept the crew ticking over had been halted by Bane, obviously concerned they would expose the gang members to whatever was working behind the scenes to dismantle the Payday Project. This paranoia had seen the coffers dry up and the crew begin to get antsy. They didn't doubt Bane's leadership just yet, but something had to be done and soon. Fortunately, a contract that would take the crew to LA and see them working with one of the area's most influential crime families, the Cabos, seemed like the perfect triage. The objective was to again hit out at the Garnet Group branch location, targeting Locke's interest, but also with the promise of another vault full of valuable jewels. The patriarch of this family who approached Bane with the job offer, Joe Cabo, had already assembled a team of highly capable and experienced criminals. Cabo favoured the Payday Gang to assist in this job, because much like his own hires, they stressed anonymity and aliases, making it hard to track any of their deeds back to the family. Their assisting crew were simply given colours as their code names, and their real names were apparently not known even amongst themselves. Working with professionals like these in a quiet downtown location was surely the recipe for a comfortable financial success, a chance to change the tide back in CrimeNet's favour. But, as it happened, everything leading up to this situation may well have been orchestrated by those puppet masters working behind the scenes. Maybe Locke's warnings were founded on truth. Just days before Dallas and company were scheduled to leave for Los Angeles, they intercepted a message to Garrett from a Japanese email address. Buresage Niwa, Kinokoite, the hanging gardens at beyond yesterday. The subject, Anuit Coeptis, invoked the imagery of a new world order. If this wasn't an elaborate prank, it was worth paying attention to. The message itself simply stated, He has plundered your seas, ravaged your coasts, burnt your towns, and destroyed the lives of your people. Mr. Garrett, what is stopping your nemesis worth to you? The quote was based on an extract from the Declaration of Independence. Clearly the email was taunting Garrett for his numerous failed attempts at stopping the Payday Gang, but more importantly, it opened up a precedent of communication. You see, these emails were not intended for the Commissioner's eyes only. His methods were old-fashioned, and they'd likely fall on deaf ears. Instead, whoever was sending them knew the Payday Gang had access to Garrett's files, and likely wanted them to see. 
It should have been a wake-up call to Bain, and maybe it was. But he went ahead with the job anyway, choosing to keep no members of the gang close at hand, a potentially fatal mistake. Upon entering the eerily quiet boutique to commence codename Reservoir Dogs, an ambush was sprung. Mr. Brown took a fatal bullet before Mr. Blonde could say a word to the cashier. Less lethal methods were clearly out of the question. You see, the LAPD knew exactly what was coming, and who to expect. Yet Garrett was again unaware. Surely this had something to do with whoever was sending these cryptic messages to law enforcement. In any case, as Brown's body fell limp and the rear lifts opened, all hell broke loose. Most of Cabo's men fled to cover or from the scene altogether. But by all accounts, they needn't have, as it was the payday gang they were after. Unfortunately for the cops on the front lines, this wasn't even the crew's first ambush this year. They were more than equipped to fight back. After fending off the initial assault wave, they dug in, holding down the storefront whilst hacking access to the vault entrance. Using a combination of Wolf's trusty drills, Mr. Blonde's liquid nitrogen backup plan, and C4 dropped in by bile, this vault was more than breachable, although not before finding it to be electrified. Whoever they were dealing with knew the payday gang well, maybe even first-hand. In any case, Wolf was undeterred, hauling Garnet's precious gemstones out of the building under a hail of bullets from SWAT responders. The crew chose to flee on foot through to the back alleys of the designer LA shops, drawing cops away from Mr. Blonde's escape with the loot in tow. But... Just as they rounded the corner to meet Twitch at the van, Bane's transmission cracked up. A raid was taking place on his surveillance center, a location which even Dallas wasn't fully aware of. Shots were audibly fired over the radio, and in the short time he had, in a frenzied panic, Bane told the crew everything he could. dark, two instructions rang clear. Trust in Locke, head to Brooklyn. Bane's recent strange behavior must have been a product of his obsession with the secrets of Cagliostro, and a desire to not drag his closest allies into the firing line with him. Whatever was buried in Brooklyn was the first step. But first, before they could even think of helping Bane, they needed to get out of LA, and if what they'd been told was true, Locke was their ticket out. Things started to fall into place as Locke explained the events of the past months, contacting the gang after they'd bunkered down at the pre-planning location towards the outskirts of the city. He told them getting out of DC was the reason for his Alaskan betrayal, as someone Bane used to believe could be trusted was apparently listening in. Locke needed to create the illusion of distance between himself and CrimeNet to keep working for Bane in safety. So, the whole thing was a ploy. It dragged the crew away from prying eyes of the organization at their heels, likely this Beyond Tomorrow group, and it bought time for Bane to decipher what he could of their intentions. The Butcher won't have appreciated it, but for the Payday Project, the mess in Alaska was a necessity. Clearly Locke didn't really have a stake in the Garnet group. It was the group themselves Bane had been after, proven by them working hand-in-hand -hand with whoever had set them up in the Reservoir Dogs Massacre. 
Trusting Locke may have been difficult for the likes of Chains and Wolf, but at this point, they had little to lose, and Locke little to gain from further deception. Maybe the weapons he'd left them with were no accident after all. In any case, to prove his sincere intentions, he orchestrated the crew's escape from the south coast. In the brief time window of isolation, Wolf and Mr. Blonde had tortured a member of the LA Task Force for information on the Sting operation. But clearly, these orders came from the very top. The poor grunt had no idea how they'd known. But it sure made Wolf feel better. With the rest of the force hot on their heels though, Locke formulated the escape plan. They were to hold their ground, secure their share of the diamonds, and leave on Twitch's mark, taking the heat off Cabo's men. Battered, bruised, and leaderless for the first time in over six years, they were still able to pull through, Locke proving he had the talent for being the bane of a job. After finally escaping LA for good, all 21 active members of the crew rendezvoused at the safe house, which Locke was certain Bane had done everything to keep from being compromised. There, a second email was found. Though sent to Garrett, it was definitely intended for them. Sent on the eve of the Reservoir Dogs heist, its timing coincided with the assault on Bane's secure location in DC. The cryptic image attached was exactly the reason why Duke had been brought in. He was able to decipher that the message was in fact written in cuneiform, an ancient symbol-structured script first used by the Sumerians of Mesopotamia roughly 5,000 years ago. It read, from the hill to the path of the river, to the crossing of the honored dead at rest, you will find a place of reckoning. The timing was too perfect. This group beyond tomorrow had to be the ones who took Bane, and now they were trying to use him as a way to lure the Payday Gang to where they needed them. Those who Locke had warned them of weren't trying to destroy the Payday Gang, they were trying to use them, and the connection to Japan filled Jiro with dread. Was this all foreshadowing an ending to things on Capitol Hill? For now though, they'd ascertained a target. It was time to take the first step. As we know, according to Bane, a return to New York was on the cards. Murky Water had thrown Locke overboard, he was officially ousted, which was reason enough for him to believe his old employers were involved in Bane's disappearance somehow and had caught word of his final transmission. With Locke being instructed to carry on Bane's work were something to happen to him, it was now on his shoulders to direct this next move. Although taking the fight to the Murkies made the most sense to him, he acquiesced to Bane's wishes, and thanks to Duke, whose Lindenhurst lineage and antique possessions were linked to the secret, the crew were able to pinpoint the location of their next heist. He translated an ancestral note left on the back of Bane's painting, the view of Mount Vernon, finding that what they were after was buried within the foundation of the original Brooklyn Bank, and had been there since its grand opening in 1900. Now, it was part of the Harvest and Trustee conglomerate. With the year drawing to a close, but time of the essence, the core four took the bank by storm. The time for subtlety was through. No point going in silent when you need to blast through a bank's very foundations. Using the van as a makeshift battering ram, their entrance was a spectacular display of frustration, clearing out the bank guards and soaring through to the lockdown teller's booth. A pupil of Bain's school of heisting, Locke had employed one of his last remaining connections to plant entry equipment and C4 in a nearby dumpster. Access to the vault was all but secured. Locke reminding the crew to take whatever cash or loot they could find to help rebuild what they'd lost with Bain's capture. The vault itself was noteworthy. The fleur-de-lis motif, a symbol of French royalty, was familiar to the gang, and after using C4 to blast through to the 100-year-old coffer with Bain's quarry inside, it became clear that its meaning was relevant. 
picking through the ancient lock they found within an ornate medallion with the same fleur-de-lis carved on its surface. It looked expensive, but certainly wasn't the key to Bane's freedom. In any case, it was what they'd come for, so Locke set about pulling them out, utilising an old favourite of Bane's, Thermite, and a sewer escape. The gang pulled off the heist, but after arriving back in DC, had surely hit a dead end. All wasn't lost, however. Duke knew this relic held far more than just financial worth, decrypting the cuneiform inscription as reading, For the Watcher of the Star. That seemed to mean more to Duke than anyone else in the crew, but after intercepting yet another Beyond Tomorrow correspondence, this time sent to Mayor McKendrick, who remained in office for now, the pertinence of what they'd just stolen became more evident. Attached was a message and a map of sorts. The message read, The Watcher has fallen. His end will be delivered. Again, mention of this Watcher, this time with a threat attached. Surely the Watcher couldn't have been Bane. It was unlikely, but not impossible. Everything they had known had been turned on its head in a matter of days. Names and places like Enmakar, Suma, and Mesopotamia kept appearing in Duke's research, but there was nothing concrete to go off. Bane had always given them direction and purpose, and as the year rolled over to 2018, the Payday Gang was still none the wiser as to Bane's location. There were murmurs amongst the group that he'd been killed back in DC, and they were following the instructions of a dead man. Locke was a capable organiser, but he wasn't a leader. Without an ideology, without a purpose, and without the protection Bane's global surveillance offered, the Payday Gang's time was limited. Finally though, a lifeline presented itself from the most surprising of locations. Commissioner Garrett's FBI files would shed light on what had transpired, and what was to come. First, thanks to the forensic analysis taking place on Bane's headquarters, the crew were able to see a final message from Bane. Sergeant Brian Painter, the man tasked with the special analysis operations within the Payday Task Force, would soon become the man Garrett trusted with the organization's final roll of the dice. As public support began to turn against the task force, funded by the taxpayer's dollar to such an extent, at this point, it may have been cheaper just to let the Payday Gang steal the public's cash. In any case, Painter's correspondence with Garrett had this image attached. Whilst the cops were none the wiser, the Payday Gang had Duke who was well-versed in the Hebrew required to understand Bane's message. Written at the top of the page was Ned Nazar. On the figure's forehead was Watcher, and finally hidden on his chest, Nephilim. Ned Nazar II was a pivotal figure in Babylonian history, a great king linked to the tales of the Watchers, a group described in the biblical first book of Enoch as fallen angels, cast down after being tempted by the beauty of human women, breaking their vow to silently watch, and giving rise to an inhuman offspring, the Nephilim, or fallen giants. What the hell could all of this mean? Was Bane trying to tell the crew that angels and demons were real? Maybe he was. However, to Duke, this was a more grounded message. From what he'd understood so far, Bane was considered a watcher. Nebuchadnezzar II was known to be the architect of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. The account, Bode Sage Niwa, the Hanging Garden, was the one who foreshadowed Bane's disappearance in an email to Garrett. Bane was telling the crew who had taken him. Beyond yesterday had to be dealt with. As if proof of Duke's theory, soon after the same email account sent Garrett another message and installed a new piece of software to the FBI terminal. The MUDUTU was a cipher solver designed to encrypt their future correspondences with the task force leader, likely to keep the information away from prying eyes. Again, Duke's knowledge of ancient linguistics and symbolism 
was essential. It was meant to be read Madutu, meaning knowledge when translated from Akkadian. By using the application with the correct numerical code block, the corresponding Beyond Yesterday messages could be read, both by Garrett and the Payday Gang. From the first message, Duke solved the code block thanks to his Sumerian knowledge. 35,990 was the answer. Then, inputting the coded message, it read, Commissioner Garrett, you are no doubt aware by now that our organization has taken the liberty of locating and removing the individual known as Bane from the criminal underworld. We are sympathetic to your frustration in not being able to bring him to justice and thus offer you a proposal. There is a certain individual in Washington, D.C. who is in possession of an item that belongs to us, and we would like that item returned. The individual in question happens to be a person of great means, as well as a member of the United States Congress, though not a very honorable one. As such, he has surrounded himself with quite stringent security, and it would be difficult for even our organization to reach him and conduct a thorough search of his offices to recover it. You, however, could do so, if you would be willing to set aside your oath of allegiance and strict adherence to the law in this one instance, for your perceived greater good. We are willing to aid you in your charge of ending crime net, provided you facilitate the return of our item. Tomorrow, at 6.30am, we will have an associate waiting at the donut shop that is closest to your office. If you are interested, meet him there, and you will be provided with more details. It was immediately obvious who Beyond Yesterday were after. Senator Simmons, the elephant, another associate of Crime Nets. Of course he was wrapped up in all of this. It was risky to move on the elephant first. The gang didn't know what angle he was playing now. Duke demanded his crewmates hold steady as he and Locke were working on their next move. In the meantime, it was obvious what Garrett's decision would be in all of this. He was willing to do anything to see the end of his nemesis within the realms of legality or not. A month later, he sent one of the Beyond Yesterday email addresses his own coded message. This time, the key was even more convoluted. 91926317160. I met your man. The materials you supplied are being looked at to confirm they will hold up to legal scrutiny. To be clear, I have suspected he is dirty for some time. So despite the manufactured nature of the evidence you have provided, as well as any intent you may have to compromise my ethics for nefarious reasons, you should know that I will lose no sleep over this, illicit or not. Locking him up will be in the interest of serving the greater good. Therefore, provided this item you claim ownership of is not overtly dangerous or has a highly illegal status, I will consent to release it to you in exchange for the individual known as Bane. I am, however, concerned regarding the reaction of your representative when I asked him about the current health status of the prisoner. Justice will be served either way. It matters little to me but it would have been preferable for him to stand trial. Once you confirm receipt of this message, I will begin preparations to apprehend the congressman. This was all the crew needed to hear. Bane was alive, a prisoner of Beyond Tomorrow. Whatever they were after, if the Payday Gang got their hands on it first, they'd be able to draw Beyond Tomorrow out of hiding. Oh, and now, the cipher symbol's message was changed. It read, Kataru, meaning alliance. It was time for Beyond Tomorrow to show their hand, for up until now, they had been using a code name. In their next response to Garrett, they gave Duke just what he'd been waiting for. This message was hidden under six layers of complex riddles and code, and was certainly not one intended for the gang to read, at least not in time for them to do anything about it. Unfortunately for this group, they underestimated Duke. He decrypted the final message to simply read, Then we are in agreement, Mr. Garrett. 
The Katara are pleased that Bane's condition is not of paramount importance to you. On the day after you have made the arrest, our representative will again meet you at the same hour in the same donut shop to discuss when and where the exchange will take place. The Kataru was this group's true identity. Important information Duke had been hanging on to. After receiving this message, Garrett proceeded with the plan against the elephant. It was clear that McKendrick didn't take too well to his old political ally being publicly arrested, but Garrett no longer cared for mayoral backing. It was the Kataru who'd give him what he wanted most. Operation Karamojo saw the anti-payday task force launch a sting operation on Simmons' political office, arresting the admittedly corrupt politician on suspicion of money laundering, one of the few crimes he didn't truly commit. Obviously, they wouldn't be able to hold him for long, but in the raid on his house, they acquired whatever it was the Katara were after, as well as some old documents which provided the fuel to force Duke's hand, revealing his place in all of this madness. Sent to the forensics team and intercepted by the Payday Gang's listening device, what they found in the elephant's possession was a letter sent by one August Lindenhurst. There was a regent in the late 19th century named Lindenhurst, a close friend of my grandfather who was entrusted with all his secrets. Lindenhurst was murdered, probably by another regent, but not before hiding the medallion. Unless Duke was some sort of time traveller, it was clear that the Lindenhursts were at the forefront of protecting the knowledge of whatever this artefact Baldwin's lament was. The letter went on to discuss the kings, the watches, and painted a more detailed picture of what the Kataru were all about. The Heil Triangle, Holy Trinities, Cagliostro, and the Alchemists. What's most notable was that the symbols and iconography that appeared on this letter mirrored those the Kataru often used in their own messages to Garrett. With his Kataru family ties now self-evident, Duke was forced to share what he knew with his crewmates, and suspicion started to grow amongst the gang that he was a double agent for the Kataru. He was quick to make it clear that he was loyal to Bane, and had been since first working with the criminal mastermind on a job back in the 90s. The two shared a common interest in all things ancient and criminal, Duke due to his family history with the Lament, and Bane out of a fascination for how these supposed artefacts could change the world. Duke had been unwilling to share this information in the past out of respect for Bane's request to avoid involving his crew in the madness of the secret. He went on to explain that the Kataru hadn't always been hellbent on ruling from the shadows, but were originally a benevolent organisation, tasked with maintaining knowledge of these ancient secrets and traditions, but keeping them out of the wrong hands. His grandfather had been associated with the Kataru as its intentions wavered, and in recent years, Duke recalled its membership had been driven to covet that which it was meant to protect, much like the Watchers from the Old Testament story. As a result, the organisation had fallen from grace, driven to ruin by a rogue member. Duke understood much of the Kataru's ways and methods, but he still didn't know who had pushed them down this dark path. A few thousand years ago, three great kings got together, decided to rule the world and made a pact. They called themselves Kataru, which kind of translates as alliance. Illuminati, Freemasons, enthusiastic amateurs in comparison. Legends say they acquired a magical artifact of some kind, if you believe in that sort of thing. And somehow, they seem to be behind all this. When my father passed, I inherited all of my grandfather's notes and research. It wasn't long after that I came into contact with Bane. Duke was telling the truth. His sincere allegiance to Bane and the Payday Gang was further proven when Jacket found a loose cassette tape in his meticulously kept collection. Me and you gotta assume I'm dead. 
should have paid more attention in Vegas. Locke has probably filled you in on some things by now. I didn't want to keep you in the dark about this secret society crap, but there was a lot I didn't know. If we played it right, this would have been the end all. To give us everything we ever wanted and keep the cops off our asses for good. I figured things were going to get easier when Duke came in to help with the missing Lindenhurst pages of Cagliostro's book and this watcher business. After all, his family's been knee-deep in this stuff from the start. But this is bigger than us. A lot bigger. So you got to make a choice. Either retire to an island somewhere, let the world sort itself out, then hope this shit doesn't follow you. Or keep going. Help Locke finish what I started. Find Baldwin's lament. Remember, guys, whatever happens, trust your partners. And Jacket, don't you go hogging this tape. It's not just for you. This was all Dallas needed to hear. It was obvious Duke was following through with Bane's wishes. This galvanized his and the gang's resolve to get Bane back and finish what he'd started. They were going to solve the secret. First, though, they'd have to draw the Kataru out of hiding. And now, thanks to the FBI files, they had access to just what they'd need. With the elephant still in police custody and his possessions being held as evidence, the gang would have the perfect bait if they could secure whatever the Kataru was seeking from the elephant. This meant, not for the first time, a trip to the FBI headquarters was in order, and time was of the essence. The world as it was, and without Bane to lead the operation, it was decided that breaking feds would be completed silently. Also, given he was their eyes, ears, and only connection to the Kataru, Garrett had to be left unharmed. Failure here would be the end of things for the Payday Project, so only the finest in the crew stepped up to take on the headquarters, silently entering through a skylight on the uppermost floor of the sector. There must have been over 30 guards and cops stationed there even this late in the evening, but a brewing storm muffled their footsteps and quietened their entrance. Locke was pulling all the strings he could to assist. His remaining contact in the FBI made access to the task force offices easier by moving the security access laptop to one of the side rooms, giving the crew all they needed to hack their way through the new security protocol. Once inside in that familiar hall, the only goal was to find Garrett's office. Locke had been tipped off that whatever it was he was handing over to the Kataru, it was now in his possession, not in the evidence lockers. Sliding between patrols, the crew found Garrett making a phone call. Aware who that may have been on the other end of the phone, they acted quickly, pulling the power on the commissioner's office and drawing him out. They overrode the lock on his office door and slipped in as he left, searching for any sign of the elephant's relic. Behind a bookshelf was a safe, and by trying the four-digit passcodes plastered around the office, they brute-forced their way in. What they found inside was familiar. A great gold coffer. Not identical, but incredibly similar to the one they'd taken from the bowels of the Golden Grin. Associations came flooding in. The Eye of Providence. They should have known. Emblazoned on this coffer was another symbol. This one was known as the Fiat Lux. Let there be light. In any case, Duke would have more time to analyse the box once they were out of the lion's den. With Garrett on his way back to the office, the crew quickly fled, taking one of the elevators down to the archives, where Twitch was waiting to blow the crew out of the building and drive them back to the safe house. In the wake of this heist, another high-profile hit on the FBI, rumours of deep state involvement had made their way into online conspiracy circles. These theorists give us lore enthusiasts a unique understanding of just how perfect the gang's timing was. Garrett was about to deliver the elephant's coffer, right as the crew tuck it from under his nose. From this point on, we see a change in Garrett. He stopped personally tending to the payday case files. 
This wasn't about taking down CrimeNet with a good old-fashioned police investigation anymore. The Kataru were his only option, and now the Kataru were not best pleased. Their next intercepted correspondence was a thinly veiled threat. Mr. Garrett, we would have thought you more intelligent than to conclude that not answering our last attempts at telephone communication would result in a positive outcome for anyone. Suffice it to say, you do not appear to fully realise whom or what you are dealing with. The truth of the matter is that if you remain loyal, fate may yet gift you the prize you seek and hinder you from falling into Lamhu. Regardless of recent happenings, something is now in motion that cannot be ended. The gang were hardly concerned for Garrett's sake, but something that was on its way right now was a storm at the Qatari's front door, or more specifically, at the gates of a pivotal pawn of the Qatari's ambition all this time, known to CrimeNet since their trip to the slaughterhouse years prior. Locke had been investigating leads on the Kataru and where he might recover the lockbox the crew stole from the dentist in 2015. Of course, his old organisation seemed the perfect place to start. But the more he dug into Murky Water's past, the more connections he began to find to the Kataru. Suddenly it dawned on him where he'd seen the Kataru's symbology before. Henry's Rock, the largest Murky Water storage facility hidden away in the Nevada wastes. They were no mercenaries. They were a branch of artifact hunters. He'd been working for the pawns of the Kataru without ever knowing it. Upon this sudden realization, Locke again hacked the Murky Water network, finding facility camera footage to confirm his suspicions about the rock. Sure enough, the coffers were there, including the one they'd taken from the Golden Grin. Either the dentist was selling to Murky Water, or he was the trusted party who betrayed Bane. No matter, once Locke knew for certain that the risk was worthwhile, he called in all remaining favours he was owed within his old company to forge a path to the answers. Getting four crates and a few heisting supplies through the compound gates was all he could muster, but it was enough for Dallas to go ahead with the plan. Getting out of the facility was going to be the real challenge. Fortunately, Jiro was willing to lend his expertise to the crew for this heist. Experience was something they'd need to formulate a way out of the military-grade compound. But in truth, for Jiro, he was just acting on a hunch. He'd seen the emails, the names, Kataru written in Katakana. His countrymen were involved somehow. He sensed it. All he could do was pray it wasn't as he feared. Anyway, a cramped container entrance was familiar to the gang, springing their ambush at initial inspection. From there, the four had to work their way through Henry's Rock the hard way, first by overriding the lockdown that set off upon their apprehension, then by hacking into the murky water mainframe and gaining access to their labs and experiments, at the heart of which lay the coffers. There were four rooms to consider, a biolab, an archaeological research room, a weapons lab, and a digital R&D station. From the facility footage Locke had combed through, he learned a lot. Murky water had hired scientists to investigate the myths and legends of the ancient Kataru. Locke had seen where they were stored, but each room had their own mysteries worth analysing. A great mummified corpse was held in stasis in the biolab, identical to the one preserved and on display in the McKendrick Museum. I guess it was no hoax, as the gang had assumed. This body matched the photos taken at the Sumerian dig sites with its alien, elongated skull. This was a Nephilim. Long since dead, but once very much alive, they were part of the power which the Kataru were trying to harness, and one of the many secrets they were sworn to protect, not experiment on. At the very least, for the gang it was proof that some of this secret insanity had to be real. Within the weapons lab was state-of-the-art technology the Murkies had been developing for use of the Kataru. 
a laser weapon which could degrade layers of thick concrete in seconds. As well as the same state-of-the-art turret the gang had stolen from the Genset freight train all those years ago. Just how deeply rooted in CrimeNet's affairs had the Kataru been in the past? Did this mean Gensec were also pawns of the group? The final research room, the archaeology lab, left them with the most questions. Recurring artifacts were up for analysis, some Sumerian, others Mesopotamian or Mayan, all tied to the mythos of the Kitaru. The most shocking was that which held the coffer, a great gold chest with three hidden release buttons. After pressing all three, it opened up further. Underneath were four masks, four clown masks that looked thousands of years old. But surely that was impossible, when the masks were exactly those worn by Dallas, Chains, Wolf, and Houston. Could it be that cycles of heists had gone before them, wearing those same masks? Surely not. Maybe Bane had just got the design from one of his old manuscripts. Whilst the contents of the rooms helped grow an understanding of what was happening here, it was the arcs that they were truly after. After dragging the dentist's artifact back to the conveyor belt leading to the entrance, they located a third and final arc, this one displaying another cosmological symbol, the reflected diamond. The meaning of these symbols were noted by Duke, using a great Kataru triangle in the center of the compound for reference. But for now, this knowledge would be useless without bringing the three arcs together. So, with the artifacts in tow, the gang had all they'd need to draw the Kataru out of the shadows. But first, they'd need to escape Nevada. An aerial escape courtesy of Bile from the entrance to the compound was their only option, dangerous as it may be. But on their way out, a shutter opened up in the main hall. Out of the gloom stepped forward a figure. Jiro's deepest fears were realized. In front of the heisters, protected by bulletproof glass, stood the acting leader of Murky Water, Jiro's son, Kento. The rest of the crew hardly noticed the Yakuza's shock, captivated themselves by the monitor behind him. On that monitor, a live feed of two figures was being streamed. One sat slumped, bloody and beaten, but face covered. It was Bane. The other was just out of view, but Dallas recognized those rounded glasses in a second. He was the only one who'd actually met the man in person. It was the dentist stood next to Bane. They had been betrayed again, but now, at least they knew who to direct all their ire and hatreds towards. Bane was alive, if barely, but it was enough to know. Now Locke had to get them home with the coffers. Fueled by the sight of Bane's brutal torture, as well as Jiro's heartbreaking revelation, they pushed on to the exit, finding the strength they needed to hold off the two anti-personnel turrets at the entrance, hacking their activation switches and giving Bile a space to touch down and lift them out of the desert and away from the murky water stronghold. This wouldn't be the last they saw of murky water. If anything, it was a declaration of war against them, as the anti-payday task force fell into obscurity and the real fight against the Kataru pawns emerged. In fact, from here on it becomes impossible to trust the validity of the FBI file database, as half of what was being reported was for the benefit of Garrett's superiors, keeping them off his tail whilst he worked with the Kataru. Back in Washington, Jiro sat devastated. To finally find his son after two decades in prison and all those years searching, to be at the head of an organization that had caused his new family so many problems, it was an impossible revelation for him to take. He couldn't bear to turn his back on the gang though. His blood or not, Kento had been groomed from birth for this, and Jiro was a total stranger to him. Now, with a clearly insane secret society vying for control of the world, his choice was simple. Follow his strict code of ethics. Aid in destroying Kento and all he'd worked for 
if need be. Whilst Jayura weighed up his resolve, Duke was leading an investigation into the coffers they'd recovered, whilst Dallas and Locke discussed their next move against the dentist. If Duke could unlock the secrets of the Arcs, the gang would have a great advantage in taking the fight to the Kataru. However, the patience Duke required was running thin amongst his crewmates. They'd seen the footage of Bane. They knew there was no more time for riddles. After sleepless days studying the Kataru Triangle for meaning, though, it finally came to him. The answer was in the occult symbology of Robert Flood's Heil Triangle, a creationist theory. The three realms of Renaissance cosmology were indicated by three symbols. The Eye of Providence, representing Heaven's realm, the Fiat Lux in the Celestial realm, and the Reflected Diamond in the Physical realm. Attached to each symbol was a pillar of the Qatari's leadership, the King Doctor, the King Elephant, and the King Scribe, each granted a coffer to guard. Within these three coffers, it was implied there would be something to aid in the ruling of each realm, the key to Borwin's lament. All of these were connected by a central symbol, the fleur-de-lis. And where had Duke seen the fleur-de-lis before? Of course, Bane's advice was golden. The artifact they'd recovered from the foundations of the Brooklyn Bank, which Duke now called by its real name, the Medallion of Perseids, was the key. With the medallion in hand, the coffers slid open for Duke. In the first lay obsidian rings. In the second, an obsidian sphere. The third, the scribe's coffer, was empty. Duke assembled the pieces they had, and the rings began to rotate around the orb which appeared to hold an otherworldly gravitational force. But it was clearly missing a part. Whatever the coffers held wouldn't share its secrets without the scribe's key. This revelation came exactly at the moment the elephant called. He'd been released without charge by the task force and knew just who'd put him in their custody in the first place. Whilst it was obvious the Elephant knew far more about the Kataru than he'd ever let on, at this point, the enemy of the gang's enemy was their friend. It just so happened Simmons wanted his own revenge and had the answer to one of the gang's greatest questions. The coffer's stolen contents were in Salem. The Shacklethorn auction beckoned. The Shacklethorn Manor was unlike any other heisting locale the crew had faced, and the Elephant knew it. As much as they hated to admit it though, even through all the subterfuge and supernatural mystery, he was pushing them in the direction of a solution to the Kataru riddles. It was evident he was no ally to the dentist, who'd seen him locked up and publicly disgraced over the months prior. Duke's digging had revealed Simmons was himself a king and bearer of the Ark, meaning he knew firsthand that the scribe hadn't paid as much attention to his own coffer over the years. Its contents were missing, soon to be on the move, just as the dentist had planned. The senator could guess where they'd find that missing part, but how such a job could be pulled off was not really his area of expertise. As fate had shown, every step on the dentist's meticulously laid plan could only be thwarted by the payday gang, and this was no different. But motivating the crew to go chasing the ghosts of the Kataru was easier said than done. Believers, sure, they'd seen what they'd seen, but Hawks didn't give a damn whether the Nephilim existed or not. For him, and many others in the gang, securing Bane's safety was all that mattered now. To guarantee their cooperation on this essential heist, the Elephant pledged to use his connections to locate where Bane was being held for a rescue within the coming weeks. This sealed it. Shacklethorn was their destination. The sort of job Locke had been preparing for since he first hacked Crime Net some three years ago. He had a protégé an ace up the sleeve, it was about time to unleash. Joy was her name. A cyber genius at just the age of 22, Locke had been training her from a young age to apply those talents in a way that would see them both profiting tremendously. 
Very little was known of her background within the gang though. She held dual Japanese and American parentage and had a love for tech and video games. But obviously, there was a lot more to her than that. Why would she have been tied up with a seasoned mercenary like Locke at such a young age if she didn't have a history? Some members even wondered if Locke's crime net hat back in 2015 was actually her doing, while still a teenager. If that was the case, she went above and beyond the credentials required to be a member of the crew. Although she was predominantly brought on board to counteract any murky water cyber initiatives, Locke had made sure that she was trained and ready to fire a gun if need be. Not only was she more than willing, but she'd even invented a battlefield technology which could disrupt the communication devices normally used by military types, disorientating and incapacitating them. The gadgets and intelligence she offered to the gang may have even proved to be the tipping point in the war against the densist. Locke was inducting her now because she was an essential part of his Salem plan, but she was more than ready for the sort of violence the payday gang dealt in. Back to the plan, the old building which Simmons claimed to hold this final artifact was known as the Shacklethorn Mansion. According to the Elephant, a slew of recent events had unearthed long-lost relics tied to his own lineage, missing since the early 1900s. The ill-fated 1905 Shacklethorn expedition had been located, and the artifacts found amongst the belongings of the long-since-dead explorers were now of great value to the sort of high-society types that covet the secrets of dead men. It just so happened these items were now the centerpiece of a secret auction, being held in the original mansion of the expedition lead. All of this rang far too close to home for Duke. It was August Lindenhurst, whose body had been recovered after all. Securing entry to such a decadent auction is where Joy came in. The elephant could obviously not make good on his invitation, meaning there was room at the party for a few sharply dressed individuals. On the eve of the heist, before heading to Boston to prepare their assault on the auction, Tony made an accidental breakthrough. The notes played on his grand piano caused the rings to glow and resonate. Clearly, they were attuned to sound, but without the missing hexagonal piece, there was little that Duke could conclude. Even so, with Duke's background in linguistics and understanding of letter frequency analysis, he was able to spot one last clue as to what the future held in store. Once the ring began to glow, alien text inscribed around the rim of the spiraling contraption could be read from right to left as Where the four stand, portals will open, and see thee how the world comes to an end. Whatever they needed to do, they needed to do it quickly. New England was ominous as ever. Like something out of a Lovecraftian horror, the crew's limousine approach to the mansion's forest location was punctuated by driving rain and thunderstorms. Joy had digitally secured entry for four at the auction party, also providing the intel Dallas, Chains, Houston and Wolf needed to approach a hit in the building that was both ancient and modern in its architecture and security. Duke waited in the wings. This was his fight, but something about the security images Joy had provided him with before infiltration shook him to the core. This heist needed the cool hands and impartial minds of the core four. The plan was a pragmatic one. Intel on tight security and a frosty reception with metal detectors at the onset made a cased entrance virtually impossible for the crew. So much for the tickets. Instead, they used a utility ladder to approach the balcony and begin the search for the Kataru item. As the centerpiece of the auction, it was held under the tightest security in a vault within another lockdown room. The plan was to split up and hack into the control panels to open up the antique backroom storage. Heading to different corners of the sprawling mansion, they came across many of the other items up for auction, as well as pieces of art which confirmed that the elephant's directions were on point. There was something about the building which made it feel like the dentist was watching. Shacklethorn and its tragic expedition was intrinsically linked to the madness of the Kataru, that was for certain. All of the relics from the expedition would be worth taking during their escape, 
as they could hold some clues to the answers Duke sought. Meanwhile, Wolf spotted the centerpiece of the mansion's art collection, a painting of the burning of the White House in 1812. But something wasn't right. At the top of the piece, a shadowy figure loomed that was inexplicably familiar to the Swede. So much so, he only just noticed the glint of a familiar pair of glasses toward the left of the image. It couldn't be, could it? Unfortunately, the artwork had distracted Wolf for too long, and he was spotted before the four had secured access to the vault. Weapons free was the call, but the response from the Boston PD was instantaneous. Beyond yesterday, the dentist section of the Kataru had been whispering in the ears of law enforcement once again. It was a problem for the gang, who were mainly equipped for whisper work, but now were greeted by Boston's finest, operating in the image of the payday task force. However, the small advantages they had, the tight corridors of the mansion and the high-profile civilian presence, was all they needed to leverage. Bunkering down to hack access into the rear of the building, freeze the vault's entry code and find a way in. The auctioneer's GenSec secured office was the obvious solution for finding the fixed code for which they drilled into and hacked his laptop. With this and a conveniently located blowtorch in hand, they were able to pry open the vault and remove the single item found within, a thin black plate made of the same cool material as the rest of the coffer's contents, and in a hexagonal shape. This was what they were after, the scribe's obsidian plate. Moving back up to the second floor of the building where Bile could access the balcony for exfiltration, they took all they could carry of August Lindenhurst's recovered belongings, paying their respects to the secret hunter that had gone before them on their way out. As their chopper sped to a safe location for post-briefing, Wolf couldn't resist a final glance over his shoulder. There in the distance, he could have sworn he spotted a figure just like the one he'd seen in that White House painting. There'd be time to discuss that later, for now getting the tablet to Duke in DC was most important. Returning to the Washington safe house overnight, they explained what they'd seen in the Shacklethorn mansion. As Duke poured over the tablet, solving the fresh inscriptions from the alien language he'd transcribed previously, he gave the crew a lesson in myth, history, and geography. This plate read, If needs must, for those who are called, to remake your legacy from within. Beneath were depictions of great deities from ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, Mesoamerica, deities tied to myths of creation and destruction, death and rebirth in societies that were themselves long since dead. The implication, Duke explained, was that this tablet was the first key to resetting the cycle. Remember, we've seen the gang's mass before, back in Henry's Rock. The world, under the dentist and his Kataru forces, was nearing a calamity, and now... As in the past, the Payday Gang were being called to remake their legacy from within. Stood by these gods were the Nephilim and an astrological depiction. Surely the implication was that the gods of ancient legend were no myths at all. They were the Nephilim as perceived by the people of each era. Bringers of life and death that all evidence would now suggest came from outside our solar system. A theory, for sure, but not something that gave the Payday Gang all the answers as for what to do next. Translating the tablet in full, Duke went on to find that three of the four structures to the left of the tablet were great historic monoliths of human history associated with those gods. The Pyramid of the Sun, the Great Pyramid of Cheops, and the Great Ziggurat. The fourth, the Dreaming Temple, was not somewhere Duke or the crew were familiar with, but it held coordinates and a symbolic representation which Dallas did recognize. Geographically deep in the South Pacific Ocean, he remembered seeing an image just like it, a boat at sea with a great temple rising out of its surface. The Diamond Exhibition. Suddenly, it all came flooding back, where Wolf had seen the shadow before, 
The paintings on display at the McKendrick Museum must have in fact told the story of the previous generation's attempts to solve the secrets of the Ark and the Kataru. The unearthing of the ancient Nephilim, the discovery of the Dream Temple, the loss of the Shacklethorne expedition. Glancing over the belongings of his grandfather's friend, August Lindenhurst, the story became more apparent. The research ship they travelled on was named the Baldwin, and the man's ring displayed the scribe's insignia, hence the scribe's tablet being in his possession. An astrolabe that was modern beyond its years, used for making astronomical calculations. He must have been a watcher, and alongside the original Shacklethorne crew was seeking the lament, just as Bane and Baldwin before him. Clearly this angered that generation's Nephilim, as when looking back at an image of the painting depicting the expedition's tragic end, we see a man on a dog sled fleeing from the wrecked ship. In the distance, bearing down on the man, that same shadowy figure, the Nephilim. Remember how Lindenhurst was found, with a crushed ribcage and his heart plucked from within. These creatures were far from benevolent, and Wolf, not immune to superstition, shuddered to think what he'd witnessed back at Shacklethorne. The gang's understanding of this supernatural situation was improving, but little they'd learned so far would help in the fight against the dentist. However, there was one last translation Duke had struggled with, one that would finally give them some direction once again. Near the gods and Nephilim, there was an image of the Watcher from Bane's sketch. Written next to it was the Ark of the Watcher, as well as a set of coordinates. Plugging them in, this time they weren't looking at sunken cities. This was 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House. The crew now knew where they must go, but not yet what must be done. For that, they'd need Bane, and fortunately, the elephant had just found a lead on his location. It was time for him to throw his cards on the table. Simmons went to Congress demanding a grand jury investigate corruption at the highest level. The president had been compromised by the dentist, and this was the elephant's best chance to disrupt his game plan and recover his own watcher. Bane. You see, by all Kataru accounts, Bane was a Watcher, and it was now clear that the Watchers were individual servants to the Kings, like Kento clearly was to the Dentist. Getting him back wasn't only in the gang's interest. Since being released from the custody of Commissioner Garrett, the Elephant had spent much of his resources investigating murky water strongholds in the US. The only facility under the murky banner which suited holding a prisoner was Fort Clatsop an old fortified prison situated off the coast of northern Oregon, repurposed for military use during the Second World War and surreptitiously purchased by the Murky Water Group in the 1970s, around the time of the dentist's first attempt on the Benevolent Bank. This had to be where Bane was being kept, and if its nickname, Hell's Island, had been well earned, freeing him was a matter of the utmost urgency. With the core group still drained physically and mentally from the Shacklethorn heist, Jiro, Duke and Hoxton were more than willing to pick up the slack for Bane's sake. Jiro even had a connection to this prison. Hell's Island had been the final resting place for many of his compatriots during World War II. If Bane was receiving comparable treatment, he wouldn't sit idly by. Also, he knew wherever the dentist held Bane, Kento would not be far away. It was decided, as preparations for tying the gang's loose ends began internationally, that the four would be sent into the prison with Locke joining them in person. Arriving at the isolated military base in a civilian submarine, they rappelled up to the sewer entrance in the hope that they could take the encamped murky forces unaware. But the sound of the dentist through the system speakers warned otherwise. Joy had failed to keep the crew's comms with Locke silent, and the dentist had anticipated yet another move. There was a murky water ambush set to spring at the sewer grate's exit into the showers. 
Fortunately, the gang had come equipped for a siege on this fortress. With ease, they repelled the first wave of mercs and held down the area. From there, the crew pushed on into the security block, using thermite to burn through to the control switchboard. Identifying the battered and bruised Bane from the footage they'd seen back in Henry's Rock, they opened up his cell gate. Once free, however, the aging heister took off into the compound, not wanting to wait for his crew once he heard Kento was in the building. Jiro steadied himself before joining his crewmates at the base level of the prison, in pursuit of Bane. On their way, they passed a number of the warheads they'd stolen for Vlad. Maybe the Ukrainian knew what he was doing, taking them out of the wrong hands back in the meltdown heist. In any case, the sight the four witnessed as they moved methodically through the living quarters of the base was unlike any other they'd seen before. Murky water bodies were strewn all over, cloakers, bulldozers, all dead, assumedly, at the hands of Bane. As they moved further on and his apparent death toll increased, the crew began to speed up. Something wasn't right here. The glass into the room in which Bane had been tortured was smashed without a care for self-preservation, and as they neared the door controls to the building's exterior, the bodies of the indiscriminately murdered began to really pile up. Emerging at last into the open air, there Bane stood, clutching the limp body of Kento as both slumped to the ground. Locke climbed down from the walls of the fort, holding his position for the escape plan. Hauling Bane on his shoulders, he started to move towards the planned escape from the helipad. Jiro's gaze remained on the lifeless body of his son for just a moment. Honor above all else. Kento had been his son in name only, and his true family needed his help escaping. The gang fought off the leaderless murky water garrison, extending a bridge across to the Xville location and covering Locke and Bane as they went. The escape with Bane in tow was secured. But it wasn't all good news. He had no life-threatening wounds, but was clearly at death's door, speaking in delirium of the Mayan gold, and the Three Kings. Once back in DC, with the best care the safe house could offer, Bane's predicament became clear. He'd been injected with a serum that was killing him at such a rate that there was little that could be done. Bane's strength in dealing with the murkies was no coincidence. Yes, he had a prolific history as a heister in the past, but it was whatever was running through his veins now that gave him the strength to kill with such impunity. Now, his body was suffering the consequences. His cells were expiring rapidly. From samples they took, it appeared that the virus was the very same they'd stolen seven years back, the Mercy Hospital strain. They should have known that job had murky water written all over it. Now the virus's effects were irreversible and fatal. It was ironic that the job which provided Bane with the Cagliostro manuscript and led him down the path to becoming a watcher in the first place was the very same that had sealed his fate. But why they'd chosen to use the stuff on Bane was another question. Maybe to ensure his death but preserve his use as bait for the gang? Either way, the crew had a matter of days to use what Bane knew and take on the true final job. You see, he didn't need anything explaining to him. Although it was sheer force of will keeping Bane conscious, he planned the Payday Gang's hit on the White House years before. A heist to end all heists, and give his crew a future he could never see. For Bane, it was always about enacting change. For this final heist, it was necessary to mobilize every single crew member. They wouldn't all be going in together, but groups of four would lead their own campaigns against the enemies of the Payday Gang in the final days of Bane's life, to clear a path for the end. At the safe house, a package arrived from the Kozak Bakery. Vlad Kozak was the final king, the scribe. Much like the elephant and the dentist, he was behind so much of what had occurred with the Payday Gang. But, as with the elephant, he was no friend to the dentist. He was more so the Joker in the pack, occasionally helping, occasionally hindering. But now, he'd picked a side. 
The original diamond was packaged with a pair of cupcakes, a gift for the gang. But was it too late? With the crew splintered across the world, and with just days to go before their trip to Penn Avenue, the dentist was finally putting his own plans into motion. A suspected nuclear detonation in the middle of the South Pacific was how it was reported. The Dreaming Temple had been forced open. Where the four stand, portals will open, and see me how the world comes to an end. The dentist was putting his final plan, decades in the making, into action. But how the Payday Gang chose to respond is not entirely certain. As with most good stories that are passed on by word of mouth, the tale has been warped and distorted to the point that some say they disappeared when needed the most. The thieves were only out for themselves, after all. Others tell of a group who changed the very course of America's history. Who you choose to believe is entirely up to you. What we know for sure is that Bane was on borrowed time. With the serum gradually shutting his faculties, he was no longer able to walk and was fading fast. The old mastermind was starting to obsess over his plan to lift the burden of past mistakes from his crew's shoulders. Whilst worldwide, the fight against the dentist allies raged on, in DC, it was at a standstill. The Dreaming Temple was already open, but a White House approach seemed impossible. That was when Duke found it. The way to access the Lament and the Ark of the Watcher. Listen, it's important you understand this. The dentist, he's no mere man. In this life, he's a practicing dental surgeon, Dr. Hellman. But that's the key, in this life. What did he say back at Hell's Island? When you've been around for a while, you learn to let things go. I've seen the bigger picture. He's been a thorn in the side of Lindenhurst long before Duke, who coveted the diamond, the lament, and was always found where the Nephilim could be traced, Duke. Hellman is the healer, Akataru King, but the healer hasn't always been Hellman. He's been around as long as the Kataru have existed, and the clues are there in broad daylight. You just have to see it. The power he's seeking is reincarnation. That's what the lament is. Once you understand this, you'll understand why he can't afford to succeed. Look at history. He's done this before. Always been there, from Franklin to Himmler. He commands the Nephilim and changes the world in his own image. Civil wars, genocides... Now he's after the most powerful office in the world. Don't just flee into hiding without stopping him in the White House. The time was right. Locke had been tracking the dentist's movements by hacking into the personal computer of the investigative journalist, Rachel Riggs. She'd been given her own reasons to suspect Hellman was involved in recent events, and had the resources to follow his progress. It appeared he was getting impatient playing the puppet master, as he began to appear at White House conferences within the president's inner circle. With his allies across the world disappearing and Kento's death proof that murky water was at their limit, this was his gambit, weaving what was left of his military force into the presidential entourage. News came through from Locke that the dentist was now on his way back from Egypt. The Temple of Cheops, the Great Pyramid, was the second he'd opened. The telltale radiation of a supposed nuclear detonation was the sign. The dentist was halfway there, but with Simmons pulling all the strings he could to get his travel to Iraq denied, Washington would be his next destination, surely. This was their chance for an in-person confrontation, to intercept the opening of the lament. But before they could make their move, a breaking news broadcast informed the world a spike of radiation was confirmed in the DC area. Air Force One was down, the president, attempting to flee the capital, was missing in the wreckage. The dentist's plans were unfurling faster than anticipated, 
However, this chaos provided an opportunity for Bain to take his boys to the White House and wipe their slate clean. The objective was to locate the Ark of the Watcher for themselves and to find and steal long-rumoured-to-exist presidential pardons so the crew's old crimes against the nation could be wiped from history. It was rumoured that there were 24 pardons, signed for the end of the Civil War by Abraham Lincoln, but assigned no names for which to pardon. These pardons couldn't be destroyed once ratified, so had been held in a secure vault deep within the Presidential Emergency Operations Centre. They were the thief's holy grail. No matter the crime, once your name was written into the pardon, any charges against you would be absolved. A blank slate. The one thing that could buy a return to normalcy for the payday gang. This was Bane's last job. It was all he'd thought about at the Hell's Island facility, and he knew, as his time ran out, so did his crews. Assuming the role of Bane for one final time, with Locke as his mouthpiece, it was time to pull off the greatest heist of all. Although there were contingencies in place for a loud assault on the now more sparsely populated White House grounds, it was in everyone's best interest to keep things silent. With Kento gone, the murky water operatives answered to the dentist, who had called them away from their foreign wars to defend the temples. Capitol Hill was encircled by the finest murkies in the company. As such, a disguised infiltration was the best the crew could hope for. Locke had been doing that for years. He dusted off his finest murky water outfits to send the crew in with a chance of entry without detection. This wasn't a crime net job anymore. It was entirely personal, with Locke flying the chopper for both infiltration and extraction. Stepping out of the helo, the four who'd started the saga of the Payday Gang would also be the four to end it. Acting as high-ranking operational reinforcements to the White House garrison, they strolled straight into the historic building, avoiding cursory glances from the other mercs who might see through their disguise. Once in, it was up to Hawks to mask up and find a way into the Peoc. Step one was gaining access to the Oval Office. They first found the radio frequency identification pad, which, with a bit of tinkering, gave away the wired LED combination which controlled the system. By matching these lights to the colour of linked wires from cable boxes around the building, they could cut the connection and make the RFID scanner open to any frequency card. This was all information Bain had scouted years back when the White House heist first entered into his plans. What he hadn't anticipated back then was the alarmingly high Secret Service presence in the White House interior, seemingly bolstered by the dentist's own forces. Obviously, he'd used his influence over the 46th president to make sure security was tight around the Peoc. The intel that Joy had gathered indicated that the Peoc entrance keycard would be still within a safe found somewhere in the Oval Office. As it was the only way through meters of thick concrete, they went after the safe, finding it hidden behind a painting in the office itself. Fitted with the Franz Jaeger Mark II system, Hawks had to find a combination to this safe to avoid the loud approach. Bain had planned for this possibility, suggesting via lock that they hack into the hurriedly abandoned laptops left by presidential aides to the White House after the reported leak. From their lax security communications, the crew came upon a USB, which stored the code to the safe. With the Piot keycard now in hand, the team regrouped at the East Hall to infiltrate the hidden bunker of the White House together. They found it, as Bain had predicted, hidden behind a mechanical bookshelf mechanism. The entrance to the Piot was built like a modern air raid shelter, amongst the ornate scenery of the White House itself. An airlock before a steep descent into the nerve center of the US machine. Glancing around the vast communication centre, again they were joined by high-ranking Secret Service members who were best subdued before proceeding with the vault. There was a briefing room to the left, inside of which was a painting of Mictlan Tecutli, Aztec God of the Dead. But it was the vault that Bane was after, 
Locke had Joy luck into this prior to the operation. This was one of the toughest vaults the gang had ever faced, the Kataru-designed TK model. This time, though, they didn't have access to liquid nitrogen or C4, so she deduced the only way in was by manually hacking the computer system and operating the door's controls. A lengthy and nerve-wracking process, but not beyond the old South African's capabilities, who was able to access and eventually open the final vault. Inside were the most precious goods the gang had ever had the chance to pilfer. The four filled bags with the 24 pardons, 150 years spent waiting for a purpose. Their prize secured, Locke was alarmed to hear the situation was rapidly evolving. Something had changed. US fighter jets were being ordered to the capital. The president was still missing, but someone had taken charge. And that someone was now powerful enough to rain down the full force of US military power onto the heads of his eternal enemies. Still cased in the murky clothing, the four fled to Locke and Bane's chopper as they circled around for the hurried pickup. The DC airspace was no longer safe. But the final job was complete. Bane, through heaved breaths, congratulated the crew on their final job. From the First World Bank to the White House, a meteoric rise of legend. It was impossible to place a numerical value on their freedom, the chance to leave the world of crime and return to a civilian life. It was all they could ask for after the harrowing months prior, losing Bane and Jiro, his own son. This was the real payday and was always Bane's planned out. Change the world, force America to see the corruption they were at the mercy of and disappear without a trace. In his final moments though, it hit him. They'd failed. The world was changing, but not for the better. Cagliostro's guide had sucked him in, a solution to the issues of modern day through the secrets of the past. But he'd been blind and simply opened the gates of power to those who'd misuse it. Even with the immunity a pardon offered, his fading thoughts came to the realization, how could they ever be safe whilst the Kataru lived on? Bane died knowing that Duke had seen the bigger picture all along. He'd been blinded by his past mistakes and guilt. The incident was reported by the vestiges of the Payday Task Force as the world reeled from the events of the past week. The Payday Gang attempted to use the world crisis as an opportunity to enter and steal something from the White House. The audacity of their actions is remarkable, even for the Payday Gang. It was also to be their downfall. Working with well-coordinated surveillance and tactics teams, the clowns were intercepted and successfully stopped. In the brief firefight that ensued, all present members of the gang were killed. Payday mastermind Bane, in a break from his usual MO, is confirmed to have taken part in the operation and his body has been identified as one of those dead. Subsequent arrests were made to bring in the rest of the gang, effectively ending their reign of crime. Of course, none of this was true. By stealing the pardons, the gang were making an implicit peace offering, which the Washington PD and what was left of Garrett's broken and corrupt task force couldn't refuse. By proclaiming them dead, law enforcement was acknowledging the pardons and praying that the gang's newfound legal reprieve would signal the end of their criminal days. They wouldn't have to worry. The payday gang were willing to follow through with the ceasefire, retire after all they'd earned. But deep down, Duke also knew there'd be shadows chasing them for the rest of their lives. In any case, Lot flew them directly out of the state and the country. The plan was to rendezvous with the other four-man squads sent across the world at the Silk Road team's base of operations somewhere in Mexico. Whilst they'd all succeeded in their own individual campaigns, there'd be no celebrations for a job well done. Bane's death was inevitable but somehow actually seeing him gone cemented the reality that the Payday Gang was also no more. 
he was to be laid to rest alongside his legacy. They dug a grave not only for Bane, but for the gang's identities, discarding their mask to be buried alongside the man who'd earned them their notoriety. The end of an era. Time to go their separate ways. Dallas alone hesitated, hanging on to the mask that had been his life's purpose for almost a decade. He remembered how it resembled those they'd found in Henry's Rock, crumbling like they'd spent years underground. He couldn't shake the feeling that he was repeating a mistake from long ago. Could this have all gone differently? Glancing up at Locke, the veteran mercenary gave him a knowing nod. It was over. Time to let go and start anew. But I've already told you, scurrying into obscurity and disappearing? Does that sound like how the kings amongst thieves would let it all end? Whispers on the horizon of new adventures tell me that things ended quite differently. The question you need to ask yourself is what if Duke decided to sit at the piano once more? Of course the Payday Gang don't meet their end so meekly. Why do you think Duke dedicated so many years to researching the Kataru? Bane's infection with the Mercy Virus was a thorn in their side, but certainly wasn't enough to make them rush into a heist like the one planned at the White House. As the dentist moved, so did they. They weren't going to be the Payday Cycle presiding over the end of the world. Temples did fall but so did Hellman's connections, impeding his progress, but more importantly, isolating the corrupt king. After all, they were banking on him showing up for one final encounter. For this is truly the final story of Payday. Duke had puzzled over the obsidian plate for weeks. Since connecting it to the rest of the king's device, they'd been able to get nothing from it. At last, with Bane back, he'd be able to ask the old heister a few questions. Sheer force of will is what kept Bane awake and his heart beating, but delirious as he may have been, no one understood Cagliostro's manuscript like Bane. In his delirium, he spoke of prophecies and assertions he'd heard the dentist mention to Kento whilst at Hell's Island. Another will die, the last will ascend, and... No king shall fall while the Irin serve. According to Bane, this explained the dentist's actions and seeming immortality. You see, lament was the key to this process of ascension, allowing the Kataru kings to live beyond a normal lifespan in a new body. The first prophecy is what made Helman, the healer and most ambitious king, move against the others, intent on making certain that it was he who ascended and lived on. But with individuals of such power fighting on a global scale, we see where the very fabric of the world was at stake. Nephilim and nukes would be all it took. Things were now coming to a head because the dentist was panicking. Once a king loses his watcher, he becomes vulnerable. Mortal, even. Kento was now dead, and this was their chance. Bane implored Duke to bring over the diamond, which Vlad, the king's scribe, had returned. He told Duke to place his hand on the old Cagliostro manuscript. It held one last answer the crew would need for the trials to come. Reaching out to pick up the Guide of Bane, Duke felt a warmth emanating from beneath his hand. As the temperature reached a scorching level, he recoiled, only to see the Guide, which in many ways had landed them in this predicament, up in flames. With seemingly no way to stop the blaze, the old book was burned through, and all that remained was a single word. Guide. 
The remaining pages were unrecognisable. Duke realised this was Bane's plan all along. No chance for anyone else to be sucked into the madness of seeking Bullwind's lament. The possibility of an end to the cyclical ages of the Kataru. If only one could get to the lament before the dentist. With no more clues to comb through, Duke was at a loss. The dentist was lashing out like a dying animal, concentrating his murky forces in the capital as he travelled to force open the temples. Time was running out. Whenever Duke hit a wall in his experiments on the device, he'd often head into the nearest room, Tony's elaborate office, to reset and refocus himself. An able musician, the grand piano gave him an opportunity for a moment's respite. But this time, something was different. Duke needed to replicate a tune that had been buzzing around in his head for weeks. It was an old melody his mother used to hum to him as a child, a happy memory that was now offsetting his focus. The combination of notes came to him without much thought. The oldest known melody, the hurry in hymn number six. After playing the melody's final B-flat, all of a sudden, the obsidian plate resonated. Before the device had reacted to sound, but this was more than that. The whole device was responding to the song, and with it, the rings had ceased to rotate, and new text had become legible. Written in the same Kataru language Duke had deciphered when they first got their hands on the king's coffers, they each appeared to be a unique prophecy, centred around a mythical set of four thieves completing great feats of larceny back in ancient times. This couldn't have been a coincidence. Over the years, across the many heists they'd performed, there were clear parallels that could be drawn with the 20 tasks the device had laid out in front of them. Starting fires and stealing weapons of death, crime as the earth shook, a hit on a boat without bloodshed. Of course, the dentist had coveted the coffers as an insurance policy. The Kataru contraption wasn't meant for kings, angels or demons. It was meant for the common band of thieves, whose duty it was to keep those powers in check. By taking it out of the payday gang's hands, the dentist aimed to deny fate a chance at stopping him. But it was too late. They were more than worthy. Now, they simply needed to step up to their roles. The breakthrough may have encouraged the crew, but it hadn't changed the fact that Bane was fading rapidly. Providence may have been on their side, but it wasn't on the aging heisters. The Watcher's place in the story was all but through, but that didn't stop him from insisting on joining Locke for this joint operation to hit the White House. With signs of radiation and the president fleeing the capital, now seemed the perfect time to seek the Ark and foil the dentist simultaneously. Knowing that this had every chance of being a one-way trip, the White House heist was left to only the four most worthy. Hoxton, Dallas, Chains and Wolf. Those who'd now worked alongside each other for almost a decade, the four unlikely heroes. Their progress was to be closely followed by Duke, waiting beside the obsidian plate to translate any Kataru text they might meet on their journey down. A guide, just as he'd been told he would be. As the gang set off from the safe house, Bane discussed his old plan for hitting the White House. The Kataru madness had left it obsolete, but his original intention was to infiltrate the Presidential Emergency Operating Center and escape with the famed Lincoln Pardons. If the White House was home to an ancient Kataru site of power, it would be deep underground in the same east wing at the core of the Peok. Nothing was concrete, but for now they'd be following Bane's original plan that had been years in the making. There was little point in approaching this heist silently anymore. The Payday Gang was staking their existence on this gamble, they may as well do it in style. Locke's suggestion of wearing murky water disguises did, however, give the ground team that element of surprise. Enough time for Locke to fly his chopper clear before a hail of bullets rang out across the South Portico entrance. Even the impending shadow of the Nephilim wasn't enough to dissuade their assault. 
before charged through the atrium, pushing to the west wing after hacking corresponding coloured door control panels situated around the entrance. From there, it was straight towards the presidential suite itself, now in lockdown after the breach of security was called in. Fortunately, the murkies employed to defend the dentist had left ample tools of war lying around the building, thermite included, allowing them to burn through to the office without doing it any structural harm. There, behind a painting, was the safe they were looking for. Using Wolf's pride and joy, an original model wired drill to break through the Mark II secure safe without it ever jamming. As Joy had predicted, the Piot keycard was theirs, and after pushing back against the escalating murky assault, all the way to the East Hall, the gang found what they were looking for. The Piot was, as expected, already at DEFCON 1, as military personnel and murky water soldiers alike flooded in, seemingly with one purpose stop the Payday Gang from going any further. Bane had suspected that his crew would know exactly what they were looking for when they saw it. The Kataru model vault first drew their attention, indicating just how ostensibly connected the dentist had been to the US government. But if his plans were to come to fruition, he would have more than a pervasive influence on how the world was ran. With Air Force One reportedly down, Bane had pieced his plan together, a reincarnation into the body of the most powerful man on Earth an unthinkable outcome that would leave the Payday Gang hounded for the rest of their lives. That's assuming the world could sustain itself in an all-out war of the kings. That thought lingering, it was then that they saw it, a painting in the Piot conference room emanating a strange light. The figure adorning the painting was one they'd seen before, Mictlan Tukutli, the Aztec god of the dead. It was Patient Zero's neck tattoo at Mercy Hospital. The fates, or maybe the dentist himself, was playing a cruel trick on the Payday Gang. Just as it was Bane's gateway to Mictlan, the underworld, it was implied that his crew would be going the same way, quite literally this time. After lifting the painting off its restraints, the crew prepared the breach into the hidden chamber of the White House. Duke assured them this was the right place, citing the door pattern's similarity to that of the dig site painting from the diamond. Sure enough, hidden behind the wall, was seemingly an old mine shaft, barely lit and spiraling towards a further descent underground. Peculiarly, once in the confines of the underground system, the dentist mercs immediately ceased their pursuit. The crew, now alone, headed deeper underground. After some time, losing communication with their eyes on the surface, lock. Odd, since they could still contact Duke. Something was up, but for now all they could do was forge onward, further into the darkness. Finally, the unstable lift bounced to a halt. In front of the gang stood a set of four massive levers, all connected to what seemed to be a giant circular clock face, etched onto which was the Kataru alphabet, repeated three times on three layers in unique patterns. The architecture surrounding them was an odd combination of archaic, modern, and alien. Nothing about the technology aligned or looked right within the cold walls of a cavern. Almost as if multiple generations of human culture had collided with some cosmic entity to create an entranceway. This had to be the final test of the Ark and Duke's purpose as the guide. As Dallas touched the centerpiece of the wheel, the outer section retreated into the contraption and a shrill inhuman sound echoed around the chamber. The final inference of the obsidian plate was coming to fruition, as servants of the Nephilim and guardians of the Ark emerged quite literally from the walls and thin air to protect their secrets from being unearthed. These, what can only be called creatures, attacked like animals, sharing their likenesses with who we know as the Egyptian gods Bastet and Anubis. 
In actuality, judging by their supernatural abilities, Duke was right to assume that they served a force far more primordial than that. Carrying out the will of their Nephilim creators, these guardians were a living testament to the reality that the world of Payday could not source its origin to traditional scientific belief. However, it didn't matter how ancient or celestial they were, bullets worked just fine, and years fending off cloakers had prepared the gang for their combat style. Unfortunately, their numbers seemed to be endless, meaning the puzzle the crew faced had to be completed whilst under siege, and with a time window limited by their ammunition supply. In the madness, it would have been easy to miss the fourth segment of Kataru characters that had just emerged from the great device. This time, the letters were placed to form a sentence, a riddle for Duke to decipher. He quickly ascertained that the solution had to be a five-letter word, and his familiarity with the Kataru language meant he was able to narrow the options down immediately. The first riddle read, I stand in front of the humble man on the wicked path as a companion. Remembering back to the illustrations in Cagliostro's guide, it was a sword placed in front of the humble man which could lead him to wickedness. After instructing the crew to pull different levers around the room to spell out the word, yet another question was posed. Again, cryptic, but Duke's knowledge of the Kataru's own mythology and past experiences with their puzzles made this child's play. Drawing on all he'd learned of stars, gods, and the guide itself, Duke was successfully able to navigate the crew through a series of four riddles in total, one for each who had earned their right to enter. As the lever was pulled for their fourth and final answer, the room filled with a bright light, dispersing the charging guardians as the panel rose into the cavern roof. An entranceway to an even more hidden chamber. Stumbling exhausted through the corridor carved out in the rock, the four men became the first humans to lay eyes on this marvel in over two centuries. There it was, the Ark of the Watcher. Throughout history it had many names, but now it was known as Baldwin's Lament. As the gang marveled at the scale of it, they noticed the chalky remains of a body. This must have been Baldwin, and his death at its hands was the reason why the structure in front of them was known as his Lament. All that remained of poor Baldwin was a watcher's ring and the imprint of a hand moulded from the gold it once held. The markings leading up to the lament gave some indication to the nature of how it all functioned. The alchemical symbols for salt, mercury, lead, antimony and gold revealed all the components required for an ascension to take place. As they studied their surroundings further, the strange serenity of their predicament was shattered by a familiar, measured voice. Dallas. It would be prudent of you to open the door and allow me entrance, lest I must put Bane and Locke out here to a rather grim and lead-filled end. The dentist was at the gates. Unable to enter as the thieves were, he needed the payday gang to accept his request for entrance into the mausoleum. Their decision was not so simple, though. Hellman held hostages. Bane and Locke were supposedly at the barrel of his gun, and there wasn't the time to call his bluff. It certainly explained why they'd lost contact back in the elevator. Walking carefully toward the entrance again, the lock mechanism responded to the worthy, opening at last for the dentist. For the first time in several years, since Dallas first met him, their eternal nemesis was before them. In the flesh, stood next to a wheelchair-bound Bane and holding Locke at gunpoint. Before a second could pass, the payday gang acted on instinct. A watcherless king was very much so mortal. For millennia, the dentist had been untouchable, so it was little surprise that he didn't consider the very real possibility that a heavily armed gang of born killers could gun him down without a second thought. An oversight he was given only moments to regret, as a fatal shot pierced his skull. The dentist fell, dead on impact. 
In an instant, one of the kings was no more, a cataclysmic change to the world's balance. As if responding to the death of the king, the very ground began to shake. Something was happening on the surface. In any case, the cavern was no longer a safe place to be, but Bane knew the great pyramid that lay before them was their only chance to return alive. The lament may have consumed Baldwin, but history wasn't about to repeat itself. Bane had deduced that Baldwin had failed to stop the dentist in 1814 due to picking the wrong tools. US Treasury bullion had been deemed impure by the Ark, backfiring and turning the Watcher to dust. He'd also finally solved the mystery of Overdrill, the Hector connection. The drug lord didn't set out to betray the gang. He was another unfortunate pawn, doomed from the moment he agreed to Bane's deal for the mine gold. Said gold just so happened to be of the right purity required to activate the Ark of the Watcher safely. From the moment it was taken from the First World Bank, the Kataru had swarmed. The dentist likely aided in Hector's original conviction and betrayal, and then assisted the Payday Gang in enacting Hoxton's forced revenge to get his hands on Hector's gold. But now, thanks to the dentist's miscalculation, it was in the gang's possession. As ancient as the Ark itself, this was its purpose, slotting neatly into the symmetrical grooves surrounding the pyramid. The catalyst for ascension. Just as it seemed like the White House itself was about to collapse and make this their tomb, a blinding light enveloped the chamber. The lament was activating at the behest of a human. Okay, guys, this is where reality becomes legend. Five of the crew awoke on the surface, but Bane was nowhere to be seen. The world seemed much the same as before, but strangely, it was as if a weight had been lifted from their shoulders. The crew may not have found those famed pardons, but in some way, they felt free. Regrouping in the eerily quiet safe house, it was decided that it was time to lie low. They just about had their fill of DC for now. Calling all four-man squads to a secondary meetup location, those old offshore funds would finally be put to use. Traveling to an unknown location somewhere in the heat of the tropics, the crew surrounded themselves with luxury, from thieves to kings in their own right. In the days that followed, the 46th president was found in a condition far better than anyone could have expected. Now, as the gang tuned in from their offshore hideaway, he was making his first official statement after weeks of silence. At the conference, he made a presentation. To Commissioner Garrett, the highest accolade was awarded, the Medal of Valor. You see, it had been reported in the aftermath of the White House terrorist scare, the Payday Gang had attempted to take advantage of the instability in a daring attempt on the riches of the White House. The Commissioner and his task force had been deployed and finally put an end to their spree of crime. All lies, but a set of lies that bought the gang their freedom. But why was this president offering them an out? Well, as the president finished his rousing speech, petitioning for a hard-working society willing to cooperate and inspire one another, there was one telling quirk. His final words, let's do this. It was obvious. Just as his body had succumbed to the virus, the lament had gone to work. As the dentist had planned for himself, Bane was, in all but appearance, now the president of the United States. The Payday Gang had truly pulled off the greatest heist of all. Not only had they earned their own freedom, they did so by stealing the nation from the grasp of the corrupt and manipulable ruler that had gone before. In the days and weeks that followed, some members chose to return to their old lives sooner than others. Jiro and Clover pined for the nostalgia of home. The Butcher was given hair pay and a little revenge for Alaska. Others, like Sangliz and Sokol, thirsted for more, chasing further fame and fortune in their own solo exploits. 
And if you listen to the speculation, Hoxton decided casino ownership was to his liking. But, as we've learned over the past weeks, the truth isn't always so simple. These are just rumours and hearsay too. Can you imagine Hox settling down, entering the corporate space? No. There are still those of us out there who wonder, even after all they'd been through, even as the Kataru slinked back into the shadows and the Murky Water Mercenary Group went bankrupt, whether the greatest heist of all was still yet to come. To round off the story of Payday, I asked you guys to tell me what confused you the most. Now, originally, I intended to insert greater explanations into those sections of the story, but that really messed with the pacing of the storytelling. So, instead, for those of you still interested, I've decided to give my more detailed explanations here at the conclusion. So, in order of appearance, first up, I was asked, who or what are Murky Water? Simply put, it's a private army or mercenary group for hire. Their design and backstory was heavily inspired by the infamous Blackwater Company. Blackwater have since rebranded as Academy and are a contractually hireable military company. But there's a hell of a lot of secrecy around what they do and there are many reports of atrocities they've committed in the past. Mirroring Murky Water's shadiness and adding some truth to Bane and Locke's implying that they were functionally terrorists. I imagine their original function was just to be a more private and militarized nemesis for the Payday Gang outside of the NYPD. But given their unsavory beginnings, it was easy to tie them up in the evil actions of the dentist and make them functionally his private army under the command of Kento. This retroactively explained their links to many of the Payday Gang's marks and may even be how the dentist found Dallas's identity in the first place. Also, if there was ever any heavy tech to be stolen, it was generally theirs originally. Moving forward, the company was supposedly disbanded after the good ending, as it was the dentist funding holding it all together. So if we do see them again in Payday 3, it will be a new murky water altogether. Locke's betrayal comes out of nowhere, and I think people are genuinely confused by that. There's a few reasons why, in my opinion. First, Locke was originally intended to be a villain, and Ian Russell's performance on his first two heists are indicative of that. He seems a lot more sinister and uncaring back then, but a flurry of events changed plans, or so I believe. First, his character was incredibly popular, so much so it would have been a shame to lose him in another Payday Revenge arc. Second, Simon Vicklin's position with an overkill was becoming less clear, and finding an adequate replacement for Bane likely started to enter the back of people's minds. Hence why we see Simon take a backseat after Reservoir Dogs, and Ian take a more central role as the fake betrayal storyline took over. I personally don't believe this was the plan originally, even during the events of Alaskan Deal, hence why the explanation for his betrayal feels so out of place. Basically, Bane wanted the gang out of town whilst the Kataru were prowling, and he wanted to remove the finger of suspicion from Locke, so the Alaskan deal betrayal was orchestrated. But that still leaves us with lots of questions, like why didn't he warn anyone involved? You know, nearly killing the gang and the Butcher's convoy due to this secrecy was not a great idea. I really don't understand why this was done, and I personally believe it was because it was a retcon. So if you're confused as to the why of it all, yeah, it's pretty much contrived to fit into Locke returning in the plotline. Which was made due to fan sentiment and because Ian is an asset to Overkill that they preferred to keep contracted and I for one, I'm really glad they did. It's an important story point, but not one worth overthinking as I don't think it was the original intention of the Overkill story writers. 
Next, why are the Corfors masks found at Henry's Rock? Well, this is a really good question, and at first glance it could simply be a funny little easter egg. I personally buy into something a little more lore significant. The associated achievement, Hidden Secrets, just says you found something really weird, so that gives us very little. But my understanding of this goes one of two ways. Either it's implied that the ancient Egyptians, heavily associated with guarding the Ark of the Watcher, foretold the part the Payday Gang would play in opening and protecting it from the dentist, or it's something more Dark Souls inspired. Cyclical narratives are all the rage in video games today, and the idea of playing out the same past over and over is pretty well covered. It's very possible that this is what the masks are implying. Basically that four men wore these same four masks thousands of years in the past to again protect the Ark. The argument I see against this implication is that Dallas's mask has the stars and stripes of the US flag, so the idea of its design being not modern is ridiculous. Well, there's a few things I'd say against writing it off like that. First, we know Bane becomes president after the events of this Payday Gang's victory. Was to say that in the world of Payday 2, the previous cycles of the Payday Gang didn't also find themselves in positions of major power and influenced how the US history of symbolism emerged. Maybe the stars and stripes were based on Dallas's mask, not the other way around. Also, if the gang are somehow connected to these Nephilim, which are basically confirmed as aliens, perceived as gods by ancient humans, then their omnipotence may have predicted the future significance of the patterns and bestowed it onto ancient Dallas. I also think it's the case that the Overkill guys, when they were designing Dallas's mask many years ago, thought, yeah, this is a cool Stars and Stripes pattern for a very American character, and so when they wanted to reuse that for this narrative, it didn't really enter into their heads. Honestly, I have to admit, I'm really reaching here. It certainly is a crazy theory that you don't have to buy into, but it may explain the mass and their purpose at Henry's Rock, else they're just there for you to have a little laugh at and be incredibly confused about. Another fantastic question I received asked, what was in the Dreaming Temple? Well, I honestly don't know. It's sort of implied that the dentist had to open all of the temples to access the Ark of the Watcher, hence why he heads there, but what it actually did or was inside is still pretty uncertain. However, we do know quite a few things about that temple and have actually seen it before. The location is heavily linked to sunken cities from literature, either Lovecraftian or the famous city of Atlantis. Now we know there's a few paintings in the McKendrick Museum focused on Atlantis, specifically these ones. Notice this means that the temples have been found and explored previously. One of my pet theories is that the dentist was unaware the Dreaming Temple had already been searched and was barren by the time he got there. If it wasn't, maybe he could have just used it to reincarnate there, that's always been something I've considered. Equally, there are many hints that it's just an elaborate key which had to be supernaturally opened to enable access to the Ark under the White House. Who knows really, I think this one exists more for the Cthulhu fans out there, if I'm being perfectly honest. One of the most frequent points of confusion are the Angels, Giants, or Nephilim. These are all names for the same thing, or entity in my opinion, and calling them gods wouldn't be that far-fetched either, as to me they were the physical inspirations for the ancient gods of old polytheistic religions, at least that's implied by the Obsidian Tablet. Essentially, they're cosmic beings, or aliens, which have come from a far more advanced civilization to influence happenings on Earth. Although they seem kind of dumb just to look at, they're meant to be immensely intelligent and influencing things on Earth for a millennia. 
The temples seem to have been built in reverence to them, and the Ark appears to be life-extending technology which came to Earth with them. In many ways, they don't really serve a purpose and are more to flesh out the backstory of the Payday universe and create that eerie feel on Shacklethorne Auction. It's not that Payday is functionally supernatural, it's more that super-advanced alien technology has created that illusion, and we mainly have the Nephilim to thank for that, as humans have perceived them as their gods for many years. Oh, and they are connected to the kings, but it's not super clear exactly how, like they could be descendants, servants, retainers of the Nephilim, it's totally uncertain, and um, I'm not even going to hazard a guess at it. This final question is the part of the payday law which I find the hardest to understand personally, so I'd love if you guys would give me some discussion points in the comments and hopefully together we can sort of straighten this one out. Basically the question is, what's a king and do they serve a specific purpose? Yet I really don't know. The identity of the three kings isn't even confirmed, although the dentist elephant and Vlad do make by far the most sense. Basically, the way I see them in my head canon is as powerful and likely ageless beings thanks to their understanding of the alien power of the Nephilim. Duke states that they were simply three kings that decided to rule the world together thousands of years ago due to this shared knowledge. The pact they made was called the Alliance, or Kataru, and using the Ark, or what would later be called Borwin's Lament, they reincarnated to maintain their power and influence across centuries. However, over time, the equality of this alliance would fall. In 1905, the Lindenhurst letter remarks on how they would quarrel often and their watchers, men chosen to act as retainers and serve the kings whilst keeping their ambition in check, were not so ageless and would be unable to constantly perform that task. As such, we have the dentist becoming more influential and ambitious, whilst Vlad the scribe seems to have been driven towards madness by this endless life and abandoned his throne. I assume that each initially had a separate role within the Alliance, with the scribe likely chronicling history, the healer working from the shadows, and the elephant from the front as a more public statesman. If you want the Cliff Notes version, they were three men who found a way to live forever and chose to use this power to rule the world. They decided to appoint watchers to prevent any of the kings from trying to usurp the others and share the power equally. Thousands of years ago, this was easier to do than it is today, so the alliance has been stretched and as of Payday 2 is now splintered. As such, the most powerful king, the dentist, aims to break the alliance, seize the keys of the other kings and directly take control of the United States as the president, likely throwing the world into turmoil if he were to succeed and something he probably attempted in the past before being secretly stopped by the sacrifice of the Watcher Baldwin. Yeah, the kings are incredibly confusing. And that does it for all of your questions. Except yes, Dallas did indeed get a medic bag. It's a massive yacht that probably did happen and will be referenced in the next game. I want to reiterate one last time though. Thank you so much for sticking with me and this series for the past year. I'm so proud of what we achieved with the story of Payday and have you guys to thank for its immense success. For now, the series will continue with the side stories of Payday. Once the City of Gold campaign is complete, I'll be covering that in its entirety as we move towards Payday 3. As you know, I'll be covering everything about Payday 3 once we have our hands on it, but of course with a real eye to the lore in particular. As for my opinion on the endings to Payday 2, it's tough, but I do believe the secret ending is the canonical one, but Worry Overkill may have written themselves down a cul-de-sac with it, so I can't wait to see what they come up with to explain the setting and even existence of Payday 3. 
I'll be sure to answer any more questions you have on this series. Please do send comments my way. There's still many gaps in the law that require a healthy amount of speculation and discussion to solve. But I hope this video clarified most of your questions. If you're interested in a machine that can play Payday 2 perfectly and should be an ideal gateway into playing Payday 3 when it launches, do check out Apex Gaming PCs. I'm very proud to be partnered with them and any potential purchase would really help me and the channel out. Ladies and gents, once more, thank you so much. I'll see you all very soon. As ever, thank you very much to my mean infamy patrons and above. If you want to join that infamous club to see yourself in the credits or get early exclusive access to my videos, including the story videos, check out my Patreon link below. Remember the Discord is open to all if you crave some more payday discussion. Thank you very much for watching this video, and I'll see you all very soon for the next one.